Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, the True Planetary Galactic History History and True History History of Nasara. Blessings to everyone as we continue to celebrate the Easter energies, this weekend being the Orthodox Easter. So let's go into our heart center right away. There is a lot of divine mother energy coming in. So breathe that in, in its pink and platinum frequencies. As we go into the heart, going into the heart center, the portal to all that is, and we ask to fully connect with and integrate our soul, our higher self, our monad, our mighty I am presence, and all of our multidimensional being through to our God presence and God's presence. Feel the wonderful love of the divine coming through your pillar of light that anchors you directly to source from the heart and mind of God, Goddess, into the heart of Mother Earth. Feel your pillar expanding as we call forth Divine Mother to hold this planet in her heart of hearts. And we do the same, holding Mother Earth and all of her inhabitants and all of the kingdoms in our we call forth at this time everyone to join us in this ascension and meditation work let us affirm I am my I am presence as my I am presence I am one with the I am presence of every man woman and child I am one with the I am presence of all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. We call forth for one and all, all soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward our spiritual lineage, our soul family, and soul pots. We welcome for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, as we honor Mother Earth on this Earth Day weekend. We welcome all of the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, and all of the kingdoms of nature. We welcome the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, 
the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healing teams. We welcome all of the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries. We welcome all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light and all of the Healers and we welcome at time our beloved brothers and sisters, Plastic Federation, and all of the teams that with the so-called, especially from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron from Venus, all of the cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service to us here today. As we recommit ourselves to being that bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven asking that our Mother, Father, God overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it individually and collectively for the highest good of all. Ten billion times, ten billion fold. Take a nice deep breath. Let this energy, this soft pink and platinum light fill you and surround you as we call forth to join up all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws and ascension ways. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received in every cell, chakra, Meridian, layer of a orc field multidimensionally, as well as on a conscious, subconscious, and superconscious level. And the maximum that we can receive through our mighty I am presence and God presence, Goddess presence. We invite in <clears throat> all those from our circle of support. From the very first name to, that created it to each and every one of us, each and every individual, each and every family member and loved one, each and every pet and animal, each and every man, woman, and child across the planet, each and every group and organization, business, corporation, institution, each and every nation, each government, each military, each set of leaders, governmental leaders, educational leaders, spiritual leaders, business leaders, financial leaders, leaders of every kind across this planet, every weather pattern, every meeting, every summit, 
every situation, every condition of life. We call forward to receive the blessings here today. And we add the energies of this month, the Festival of the Christ last Saturday, the Easter, Passover, the Ramadan, and the Orthodox Easter tomorrow. We add all of those energies and all of the attention going toward any individual or collective event on the planet. We call those energies into our collective cup of consciousness to utilize that that energy, that attention for the process of anchoring heaven on earth in our collective cup of consciousness as we bring these ascension frequencies to the planet. We ask that Gaia receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her work field multidimensionally, through every ley line and song line, through the grid system, the love grid, the light grid, the unity grid, all of the multidimensional grid system, and through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site, every place of power, every stargate, every city of light, as we truly fulfill our promise of being that planet of light, as we continue up this spiral of evolution with Mother Gaia, as she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star, as we call forth for humanity and the earth and all of the sacred kingdoms to be held in Divine Mother's arms, we call forth the divine love, the comprehensive divine love, and the transfiguring divine love to work with us individually and collectively, anchoring the highest frequencies of love individually and collectively for all. Mighty I am present, great host of ascended masters, mighty legions of light, great cosmic beings, great cosmic light, great angelic host, angels, angel divas and archangels, cherubim, seraphim, and the great lords of the flame from Venus. Come forth in the mightiest power of divine love the earth has ever known. Establish thy unfed flame here in every sanctuary, in every home on this earth, and keep it forever sustained. Teach and show every human being the fullness of its mighty power, perfection, and Charge through every human heart the full flame of divine love and divine joy from each one's own mighty I am presence. So expand its light and cosmic activity through each individual that all will feel and know the mighty victory of its divine presence forever. We thank thee that this is done now, forever sustained and ever expanding. We give thanks for this. 
We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We call forth the energy of divine peace, bringing forth all frequencies of peace to this planet individually and collectively, bringing forth the golden ray of peace, eternal peace and infinite abundance, mighty I am presence, great host of ascended masters, Mighty legions of light, great angelic host, great cosmic beings, great cosmic light. Come forth in your most dynamic cosmic action of the violet-consuming flame. Blast all destructive qualities in action from all war materials throughout the world forever. Annihilate their cause and effect in humankind, the earth, and its atmosphere for all eternity. Seize all stored up energy in those channels this very hour. Charge with St. Germain's and all the other ascended masters' consciousness of the I am. And blaze it now through every human being, through the earth and its atmosphere, to create and maintain ascended master protection and perfection to all forever. Mighty I am presence, charge this our decree with that light and love as of a thousand suns, and in the selectivity of the cos- great cosmic light, send it forth to do its perfect work forever. Mighty I am presence, great host of ascended masters, mighty legions of light, great angelic host, great cosmic beings, great cosmic light. Come forth in your most dynamic, almighty power of the unfed flame. Withdraw and withhold forever all energy, money, power, supply, and influence from every discordant activity in America, the three Americas, and all throughout the world. Annihilate their cause and effect from all humankind in the earth, as well as all of our precious kingdoms. Replace all such activities with the Ascended Master's light substance and mighty miracles of perfection instantly manifest everywhere, eternally sustained and ever-expanding. We thank thee, thou dost always answer our every call instantly. So be it, and so it is. At this time, we're going to take a little journey a journey to the golden chamber of Melchizedek. So we call forth the golden light to fill us and surround us and call forth all the divine masters, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy for assistance as we call forth the planetary and cosmic axiotonal alignment. Allow yourself to relax and soak in all of these cosmic energies and ascension activations as we call them forth for ourselves and for every man, woman, and child, all in divine order. We call now to the seven Kohans, Joachul, Lord Maitreya, and Lord Buddha, to provide us 
a gigantic group workabout as we ask to be taken spiritually to the golden chamber of Melchizedek in the universal core. We call forth each person's 144 soul extensions from their monad and mighty I am presence to join us, all one divine order. We call forth to the seven kohans for the opening of all of our chakras, all ascension chakras, and all petals and facets of all chakras. We call to Archangel Metatron for the permanent anchoring and activation of the Microtron. We call to Sirius for the anchoring and activation of the scrolls of knowledge appropriate one of us from the great of Sirius. We also asked to the highest energy accelerated we can receive. We call forth the Kamara, the Mandu, for help in establishing planetary and cosmic antikrana that connects each individual's oversoul and monad to God. We call forth the Melchizedek, Mahatma, Metatron, the Elohim Councils, and the Archangels for the permanent anchoring and activation of the planetary and cosmic tree of life. We request the complete opening and activation of the seven cosmic seals and ten sephiroths, as well as the hidden sephiroth of Das. We call forth from the cosmic and planetary hierarchy the anchoring and activation of all fire letters, key codes, and sacred geometries to help in this process. We call to the archangels for the full anchoring and activation of our 50 chakras, taking us through planetary ascension as well as our 330 chakras, taking us back to the Godhead. We call for the permanent anchoring and activation of our 12 bodies, including the solar, galactic, and universal bodies. We call forth to Lord Melchizedek, the Mahatma, Metatron, Archangel Michael, and the planetary hierarchy for the anchoring and activation of the anointed Christ over self-body, our Zohar body, our over-self body, our electromagnetic body, our gematrian body, our our epigenetic body, our higher Adam Kadmon body, and the Lord's mystical body, as described in, described in the Keys of Enoch. We call forth the permanent anchoring and activation of the 64 Keys of Enoch in all five sacred languages. We call forth the illumination of the 72 areas of the mind, as described in the Keys of Enoch. We call forth the Decadelta light encodements and emanations from the ten superscripts of the divine mind. We call forth the Metatron for the anchoring and activation of the 76 names of Metatron to permanently flow through us. We call forth now for the removal of all veils of light and time. We call forth to Joel Kool, Lord Maitreya, and Lord Buddha for the permanent anchoring of the greater flame of the monad 
and mighty I am presence into the lesser flame of the personality and soul incarnated on earth. We call forth to the mighty archangels for the permanent anchoring and activation of the 12 heavenly houses and 12 cosmic stations. We call forth now to Lord Buddha for the permanent anchoring and activation of the planetary sun and the planetary cosmic heart into the core of our being. We call to Lord Helios and Lady Vesta for the permanent anchoring and activation of the solar sun and the solar cosmic heart into the core of our being. We call forth to Lord Melchior for the permanent anchoring and activation of the galactic sun and galactic heart into the core of our being. We call forth now to Lord Melchizedek for the permanent anchoring and activation of the universal sun and universal cosmic heart into the core of our being. We call now to the Mahatma and the multi-universal logos to permanently anchor and activate the multi-universal sun and multi-universal cosmic heart into the core of our being. We call to the Godhead for the permanent anchoring and activation of the great central sun and God-Goddess's heart into the core of our being. We call to the source of our cosmic day and Melchizedek for the anchoring of the 43 Christed universes. We call forth to Lord Melchizedek to initiate each person into the order of Melchizedek in divine order for each being. We ask that each person who inwardly gives permission now receives from Lord Melchizedek the rod of initiation with no earthly person needed as an intermediary in this process. We call now to the planetary and cosmic hierarchy and collectively request a complete merger of the light bodies of all the inner plane ascended masters present with this group body, both individually and collectively, all in divine order for each being. We call forth God, Goddess, the Mahatma, Lord Melchizedek, Metatron, the Elohim Councils, Archangel Michael, and all the other archangels and archive to anchor from the cosmic treasury of light the light packets of information from the tablets of creation, the Elohim scriptures, the Torah or the Ten Commandments, and the cosmic book of life. We now call forth to the planetary and cosmic hierarchy and all the interplane ascended masters that accompany each person for combined love and light shower, the likes of which this world has never known before. We give thanks for this as we say, Kadosh, 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 Adonai Sabaoth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Take a nice deep breath. As we ask our inner plane spiritual hosts to be easily and effortlessly taken back in this group Merkaba, back into our own individual rooms, into our own individual physical bodies, 
we call forth Sandalphon and Gaia to assist us in integrating this with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, in love, in light, in laughter. And we give thanks for the divine blessings received here today. And take a nice deep breath. Feel yourself anchoring this with ease and grace. As we ask for the same for every man, woman, and child. Integrating all of the divine frequencies that we can receive. And all of the frequencies of divine love. Divine peace. Infinite abundance. And all of the blessings of the new golden age. I thank you at this time for your divine service. And I invite you to further divine service every Sunday and Monday when we do the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. The teleconference call. And we begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time with greetings. About 25 minutes of greetings. And then Tower and Rama give us a brief update. At 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time, we begin our work in earnest of bringing heaven to earth through our meditations, our prayers and evocations, our visualizations, our spiritual activations. Please plan on joining us every Sunday and Monday. It's a teleconference call, so the main number to dial is area code 425-436-6260. Again, that's area code 425-436-6260. The access code to use is 946-7441-POUND. 7441 pound. We would love to have you as a regular member of our light community doing this service work with us. And once again, I thank you. And I wish you each a most glorious, glorious week. Continue to bask in that resurrection flame, that mother of pearl. And all of the blessings of this divine time next Saturday, we will be celebrating our full moon, or I mean our new moon and eclipse, our first of our eclipses. And on Sunday, May 1st, is the Ascension Day of St. Germain. We continue to have a powerful time. Our next full moon is the Festival of Wesak, the holiest time of the year. So this is indeed a very sacred and holy time. So we thank you, thank you, thank you for your divine service here today and on the calls. We want to take this time to thank Torn Rama for their divine service. And I thank Rainbow for her divine service as well. So Rainbow, there's a lot of feminine energy in this talking stick. Allow it to fill you and we share it with everyone across the planet. The Divine Mother's Love, the Platinum, the Pink, 
the beautiful frequencies, including lilac, including the gold and the energies of the golden chamber of Melchizedek that we just brought forth for everyone. And all of our elementals, our fairies, all of the divine beings of this planet, all of the sacred kingdoms, a lot of flower energy, a lot of gemstone energy, and just a lot of wonderful, wonderful gifts that we're sharing here and anchoring here today. So infinite blessings to you all. Have a magnificent week as I pass this talking stick to my sister, Rainbird. Well, thank you. I'll take that talking stick. It'd be really heavy if it wasn't so full of light. <laughs> so thank you, Cheryl, for your divine service as well. I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's all chickens that make it happen. And uh, each week we need $300 to cover our expenses with DBS Radio. And this week we need 540 We're a bit short. It's almost like being a week behind. Not quite. We're, we can we can catch up. But it's important that we take that action and do what we need to do. So here's how we do it. Go into your heart space. See what is yours to give. Then go to bbsradio.com. Click on Radio Station 2, and you're looking for the menu. You can scroll down to find that menu, or you can... Um, uh, yeah, find it another way. <laughs> Click on that menu. And we're looking for the 6 o'clock hour on Thursdays, Fridays, and Fridays. The program's there on Thursday, the uh, night at the round table with the panel. And on Friday, the hard news with Tara and Rama on Friday night. And these are Pacific times. And, um, yeah, as you click on that icon, that'll take you directly to our account. We're using your bank card. You can make a donation in any amount. So that's how we do that there. Thank you for taking that action. And the other program, of course, is this one at the 1.30 hour on Saturday, the True History, Hershey, and the Fair and the Galactic Origins with Tara and Rama. You can click on that icon as well. Any one of those three will work. And we are grateful for you taking that action. So much gratitude. So we're also... Uh, assisting Tara and Rama with their financial needs, and this week is rent week, so they're needing 1150 for that. Then they have $400 in bills that need to be taken care of, and another 300 would be awesome for living expenses, so that they could eat in the process, eat and have gas for the car and food for the kitties and for themselves. So that's what's needed. And here's how we make a donation to Tara Ratma. You want to go to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And there, as you click on that menu bar at the top of the home page, the menu will drop down near the bottom of that list. It's the donate link. Click on that. That'll take you to Rama's PayPal account. And once you're there, you can make a donation in any amount using your bank card. If you have your own PayPal account, you can re- you can reach the friends option by going to uh, by using excuse me by using Rama's email 
that he uses at PayPal. And that email address is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And that'll give you the funds option, give the commercial charges. Either way, it's perfect. We're grateful for your gifts and for your participation and paying it forward like that. So much gratitude. As you're sending something, please let Rama know through his personal email. And that is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999 at Comcast.net. Let him know what you sent, when you sent it. And then, um, as you need it, the physical address for, for Tara and Rama is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D, Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. And that's Post Office Box 280-280 at Santa Cruz, New Mexico. And the zip code in Santa Cruz, New Mexico is Eight seven five six seven. And I'll repeat, eight seven five six seven is the zip. That's all the information you need that uh to do it needs to be done. We're so grateful for um all that you do and, and grateful for your financial gifts for sure. And uh as <laughs> this is what carries them through and it carries all of us through what we're doing now, so uh, lots of gratitude for all involved. Um, I also want to give you the uh, sign-up link for Shop Free Mart, and it is as follows, HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfreemart.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-N, and that's the username for the 2013 Rainbow Roundtable account on, at Shop Free Mart. And I also give you the number for the new gen account for joining. And if you want, <clears throat> you want, want to use the HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash and then www dot new gen coin N U G E N coin C O I N dot com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M. And an update on that is um, that it's very difficult to put money in at this time, but it's if, as you are registered before the end of April, you'll still be eligible for the 10% bonus bonuses uh, when you purchase your coins. And that part is important. And then as things clear up in the central office where you can actually get through to support. That is the only way you can use a bank card is through support right now, which is making it extremely hard to get through. So I'm wanting to just say, no worries. This is temporary. Go ahead and register and get registered in April. And then as, as you're able to contact support, you'll be able to put the money in. And don't worry if you can't get through, they're working on it. Uh, so that's what I had to say about that. And also, um, Micah and myself are the ones who are working with Tara and Rama's account. And uh, if you need anything for support, it's either through him or me. 
and to not call Marshall for support unless you want to sign up under him, which would also be appropriate. That's fine. If you would like to support Marshall that way, that's awesome. So I just wanted to let you know that Micah and myself are the two people to contact um, if you need any assistance. And we are, um, yeah, we're, we're working on putting matrices together. So maybe between the two of us, we'll figure out how to do that in an easy way and help people get others to sign up under them in that way, in that circular fashion. <laughs> or daisy chain, sometimes called. But whatever, we're grateful for all of you and all, of you, all the ways that you show up in your lives. So 13 thank yous, honey in the heart, long life. Live long and prosper, and I'm passing this talking stick, and it's it's beautiful. Cheryl made this talking stick, and she didn't leave anything out. It's just got all the elemental kingdoms, and it has the angelic and mineral, and other, all the kingdoms of light, and that feminine aspect is shining bright. Uh, that pink and opalescence, and all the good stuff, the gritty. Tara and Rama, here comes this talking stick with all the elementals and the little people, so lots of fairies and feathers, and lots of men and and hobbits and gnomes. Greetings, Tara and Rama, here comes the talking stick. Welcome. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, you, Cheryl. Thank you, everyone, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. Yes, thank you, everyone, for being here. Yes, and Everyone, thank you. As you wish, uh, you can, you know, get in touch to request especially to help Marshall here. It's been a good thing. And it's all going to be fine. And um, uh, in terms of new gen coin, too. Uh, and uh, Rama just double-checked today. And we have been saying that Free Mart and New Gen Coin uh, uh, project is totally within the SARA law. That being said, in addition to that, and first and foremost, every single man, woman, and child will receive $10 million on the planet. This is not instead of that. This is an addition to that, as you wish. Yes. And that's really important to know. The other Bitcoin projects and stuff like that, the thing about it is that they are, I mean, they have a a, a very independent nature. Yet, and John Austin won't talk about it. In terms no, no, he can't. He, no. He, 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 he is not allowed to do that. And that's the same thing that um, uh, 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 Obama gave a speech the other day. And he can't say anything that he needs. He knows everything, too. Yeah. But uh, And it's not the right stuff. Because if he doesn't say what they tell him to say, then the consequences are absolutely not acceptable. 
in terms of turning people into dead people and turning adding clones to their nature, that's not acceptable. Yes, we're in the final few nanoseconds, if I could use that metaphor, because it is moving so effing fast, it's not funny. And one other thing is that the King of Swords told us many times to us, it will take about one year total for every man, woman, and child to receive their blessings. They're not $10 million in the Sara blessings. Also, that being said, there are uh, projects, I think 78 projects in the all, that are part of receiving more than that each. And the responsibility that goes with being part of those 78 po- projects and receiving more than the 10 million is huge, as Bernie would say. And you have an extremely important role to uh, uh, assist on these larger issues. And Micah was telling us that there's a, uh, a way to access the different coins. Um, I don't know, Micah, if you want to unmute, you can uh, actually explain that right now while we're talking about it. How's that? Are you there? Micah? No? Greetings. Forgive there me. You are. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to start this now? Well, no, I was asking you to um, explain a little bit. Of, we're talking about the new gen coin and oh. that, that there are five different coins and there's a way to access those coins in particular. And then you yes. use them for particular purpose. Can you give us a little, you know, yes. short? rendition of that absolutely yes so there are five coins so far that they have uh already in in uh, operation the the new gen coin is the flagship coin and then the real uh, realty coin oxygen coin energy coin and hemp can be coin and if you want to look into uh, how many of those you have, you go into your new gen coin dashboard as you normally log in. And then it, there'll be a banner in the middle of your screen that says new gen community. You click on that and then you scroll down to any one of the other four coins, uh, the hemp or click on one of those. And then you'll just sign in as you would normally sign into your new gen with your same user, uh, et cetera. Uh, they also have a um, uh, travel coin that's coming out soon as well. Uh, so many, many new projects coming down the, the pipes here. Uh, it's They're actually absolutely exploding uh, ever in the past week. It's just been record numbers of people coming into the company. So uh, it's looking like it's got a really bright future. The, these are the only crypto coins that I've seen out there that have backing like this. I have yet to find anything that comes anywhere close. Like most of the other crypto coins are backed by nothing. They're just backed by confidence and they're on a blockchain. But 
there's no real tangible assets or solid businesses that are backing these other coins, which is why I believe that new gen universe will end up be being much bigger than uh, Bitcoin or any of these other things out there because of the solid tangible business plans that they have. And they are also going to be releasing their white paper any day now it should be they're just it's been submitted they're waiting for approval as long as there's nothing that needs to be changed it should be coming out any time now and uh at that point um it's it'll be every for anybody that was what worried or doubting or anything like that when you read the white paper and you see the business plans and the tangible assets that are backing these it's uh it's it it'll blow your mind <clears throat> so uh, really great time to get in right now. Um, you know, for it's what they consider a whitelist coin. And uh, from what I've uh, understood from a friend of mine that's been in crypto world for a long time, it's very, very difficult to get into uh, the whitelist on certain coins. There's, it's kind of like a club sort of thing, and only certain people ever get in. And and so it is. Uh, it is a this is a, a an opportunity of a lifetime where John has created this opportunity for uh, anybody to get involved and um, and uh, and and benefit from a, a incredible like life changing I believe um, even if you only put in a, a couple hundred bucks it's going to be a huge difference for you uh, once everything starts to mature and the coins grow in value. So yeah, there there you go. That's my two cents on that. Okay, so um, Rama, why don't you read what you just had uh, on your phone there? Oh, that's pretty trippy. Uh, gotta go back to it. Oh my. Um, <laughs> um, today in East Jerusalem, where the Holy Sepulcher is, uh, and this is Holy Saturday in the Orthodox, uh, religion. So this is another day that's sacred there. Yeah. Palestinian Christians are coming to pray and they're being met right now by the IDF with bullets and tear gas. And oh, these, this is apartheid. Yeah, but they, you, there was something else you, you showed me where they're separating. They're separating the Christian people who speak Arabic from the Christian people who are foreigners that don't yeah. speak Arabic yeah. and they're separating them and they're not allowing them to go to the mosque. Is that the deal? Yeah. So that the foreign people that are Christian and people who don't speak Arabic get to go. And the people that do, I mean, this is not cool. This is apartheid in action. Yes. And uh, 
I was going to say that Obama, he called for more regular, regulatory oversight of social media giants. What does still nag at me, this is his words, was my failure to fully appreciate how susceptible we had become to lies and conspiracy theories, despite being a target of disinformation myself. And still and yet, he cannot speak anything that he knows that's not on his list by orders of headquarters, you might say. Yeah. Which is Hillary Clinton, even though she's a hologram at the moment. So um, he's doing what he can. And then we pick up the gauntlet and we continue on to take the rest. Okay, so Rama's message, I got just a sentence or two and then Rama's going to finish it. He said, I received a text message from Mr. X at 12.21 p.m. early this afternoon. He said to me, Lord Rama, I have been on the third planet uh, and circling the Alpha Centauri Sun, 4.1 light years from Earth. You can get there at warp 6 or 7 in four hours. Earth time. Past August, the rest is yours, Rama. Uh, he, he spoke about how there are galactic ambassadors from Alpha Centauri, the various planets circling that sun, and Beta Centauri, the other sun, and their planets. And he's been interacting with these folks for almost a year, coming back and forth. And it is about the fact that there are Alpha Centauri ambassadors and galactic folks here that are part of the forces of light that work with Captain Astar, Captain Soltak, and the other intergalactic members. And it is about this time we're in where full disclosure and the end of this ancient timeline ends right now. This eclipse coming up on the 30th is a real humdinger. That's the way it's being put. And place of violet fire. What Mr. X basically just said, we're in the last nanoseconds of watching this horror show go on. Yet, we must stay in divine neutrality and have peace and love and kindness for the most heinous of life forms that I don't know how to describe it any other way except Thanos and his evil gang, you know, coming from that. Provided that these persons know who you're talking about. Yeah. He's an intergalactic immortal who 
let's say is kind of um, like some of these crazy megalomaniacs on the planet who have ideas about ecocide and genocide because they want all the riches. And it's even darker than that, and I'll leave it there. <laughs> and I heard Katrina Vandenhubel today uh, with David Barsimian, and they were talking about Ukraine and Russia and how this goes beyond Mr. Putin and the oligarchs, and it goes into the story of Babylon and the, and the fallen angels and the fallen angels, the Anunnaki, and how all of this revolves around this story that has been twisted because of the fact that we have been being visited by these beings since the time of the flood and before it goes that far back and. As folks like Graham Hancock and others can come forward and tell what they know, it brings pieces of the story together that have to do with the inner earth and all the situations that happen both on the surface of Mother Gaia and as well as the inner earth cities that took the refugees in during the time of the flood and the intergalactic wars. And it's huge. Um, Katrina Van Hooper talked about how Chris Hayes has sold out to, you know, Big Brother, along with Rachel Meadows. And these are not, you know, this is infotainment, not real news. Because... They do not want Iota speak about Julian Assange. Or what I just read about the apartheid going on in, you know, the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of the Al Aska Mosque and the, you know, two. That's in East Jerusalem, is that right? Yeah, Sheikh Jarrah. Yeah. And the tomb, the, uh, of the sepulcher. These are all places that are holy you mean sites. The, you mean the sepulcher. Yes. Okay. <laughs> sepulcher. Yes, sir. Just yeah. Okay. And all of this stuff has to do with this original story of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Ziggurats, Iraq, Ur. There's no accident that to this day we still have this so-called green zone in Baghdad, which is, you know, the way it has been described to me when the U.S. empire invaded Iraq, they did not enter through the gates of Ishtar. Therefore, you know, Ishtar and Inanna know what to do along with Mother, and I'll leave it there. <laughs> This is a huge story. If you want to get a little glimpse of this story, watch the Avengers movie, The Eternals, because it explains all of these folks who are immortals, eternals, celestials, they're here. 
there right now. This is why there are folks coming forward. And I heard this guy today who was a former State Department official who worked in Baghdad during the time when Bush Jr. invaded Iraq and did shock and awe and Afghanistan. And this guy talked about ziggurats and the zero-point modules and the fact that Saddam Hussein was insanely obsessed with building back the city of Babylon for the Anunnaki to come and land there. Well, he remembered himself being Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, and the U.S. military knew about this stuff before they invaded. They raided the Museum of Antiquities and took all kinds of stuff. And it's a complicated, convoluted story. I passed the talking stick. Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um. What we can say, Rama, is that there's another layer of depth. In other words, they've been stripping away uh, and going deeper. And we send more love to Chris Hayes and more love to Rachel. Yeah. Unless you've walked in their shoes, never mind. In other words, they're being having the screws tightened more and more. And they're being paid more and more to do what they do. Millions. Yeah, I think Rachel is at least 12 million a year. And Chris Hayes is about 8 million a year now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no words. <laughs> and that brings up the other thing. I mean, like we were saying very much at the beginning of this. Every man, woman, and child, with the exception of 500,000 people who engaged in the hyenas activity with a smaller group of oligarchs of eliminating about five and a half billion human beings in the last two and a half years. Mother, it does not approve. And so they will be ushered not killed. Now, they can end up taking themselves out. That's still their option. And um, going for money over, you know, money over love can get you in that kind of a fix because the energies are continuing to go higher. Yet it's really important that uh, we make our presence in this world uh, known in a way where love is always the answer. Yes. And that especially in the hardest time as we usually have is, you know, with ourselves and our closest friends, you know, and you end up abusing your own more than any. And that's not an option. That's something we may have learned when we were younger, depending on our families uh, and also the schools and teachers and everything, all the things. And we always ask for what we need. There isn't anybody or anything that can change that. We always ask for what we need. And uh, that includes coming in here. 
I'll say I'm going to go to this next thing. There's a, the New York Times put out an article called the Justice Department Inquiry finds systemic failures at the Mississippi prison. The conditions at Parchman Prison, quote, have generated a violent and unsafe environment for people incarcerated there. There, Ms. Clark told reporters on Wednesday. And we call ourselves civilized. Oh, it's, it's on, I, there's a lot of suicides from there and there's a lot of people that are killed in that place from, and, and, and I'm not just saying by violence, but I'm saying the, uh, conditions are just beyond the pale. Uh, yeah, I, and, uh, it's intentional and they, they, uh, segregate in the jail people of color from the white people too. And it's, this cannot stand it. And uh, there is no such thing as being less than because of the color of your skin. Yeah. The society can have an attitude, which is exactly what the attitude is. It has nothing to do with the color of your skin. Uh, yet it's really critical that, the systemic illness of the society itself that pervades everything else be dealt with. And uh, maybe pass every test. By about 2035, there will be many more people of color in the United States than there are white people. It's already, you know, and, and, and again, it's different shades. There's a movie called, what's it called? Or a song? Shades of, shades of blue? Shades. I don't recall. Just, I, I, I don't know. But, um, there's just, there's all kinds of integrated marriages and, uh, intelligent people and incredibly gifted people of color who have also learned many more things because of their color that is not possible for a person with white skin to even comprehend. Yes, there was a king who went over the rainbow today in Nigeria, and I don't know enough about that story. Um, He was 85, and they're looking for his heir. It's a big deal. Okay, and then it says here, UK Home Secretary Priti Patel was uh, part of a CIA-linked lobby group with husband of Assange, judge. Huh. With 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 husband, wait a minute. I guess that's a woman, Priti mm-hmm. Patel. She was part of a CA-linked lobby group with her husband uh, of Assange judge, of Assange judge. Okay. Okay. Oh, my God. I guess the Assange judge is female. So, Mm -hmm. okay. (laughs) Got to get that clear. Okay. So, Home Security Secretary Priti Patel who will soon decide whether to extradite Julian Assange to the United States, has been a political advisor to 
and been funded by a right-wing lobby group which has attacked Assange in the British media for a decade. Kriti Patel sat on the Henry Jackson Society's Advisory Council from around 2013 through 2016, although the exact dates are unclear as neither the uh, Henry Jackson Society nor Patel responded to declassified requests for clarification. Oh. She, this is a big, big, huge case. As they get a, as they think they can get away with this, then they can do that to any journalist on earth that they don't like what they're hearing. That's right. And there is no freedom left. All gone. It's very thin ice what we're on right now. So, uh, this is the power of what our sister Cheryl brings to us every time we come together here, everyone. And, uh, just an emphasis, uh, please come. I'm just going to repeat. Please join us on Sunday and Monday evenings. It's so powerful and critical right now to do this work. And uh, the uh, forces of light that we all are getting more and more familiar with can only be strengthened as we come together in world group service like this. I'm just going to repeat the number to call is 425-436-6260 and 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. I'm just getting a little nudge. Uh you know that the uh the time is now to continue this work and uh, as, uh, uh, and and do it together in in this moment because changes are possible that are never been possible before okay so this back to miss pretty her name is spelled p r i t i so she she has also received funds from the HJS, which again is Henry Jackson Society, the HJS, um, and was paid 2,500 pounds by the group to visit Washington in March of 2013 to attend a security, in quotes, program in the United States Congress. Uh, The last name is Patel, is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Patel, uh, who became an MP in 2010 and was appointed Home, home Security Secretary in 2019, also hosted an HJS event in Parliament soon after she returned from Washington. After the UK Supreme Court said this month it was refusing to hear Assange's appeal of a high court decision against him. Oh, my God. Uh, the WikiLeaks founder's fate now lies in Patel's hands. 
he faces life in prison in the United States. The HJS, which was founded in 2005 and does not disclose its funders, has links to the CIA, of course. The intelligence agency behind the prosecution of Assange and which reportedly developed plans to assassinate him. Absolutely. One of the HJS's international patrons is James Woolsey, CIA director from 1993 to 1995, who was in this role throughout the period Patel was advising the group. Woolsey's affiliation to the HJS goes back to at least 2006, soon after it was founded. In 2014, the group hosted General David Petraeus. He always used to call him General Petraeus, but that's his, it begins with a P like in Paul. Uh, okay, so in 2014, the group hosted General David Petraeus, um, CIA director from 2011 to 2012, at a UK Parliament meeting from which all media were barred. Oh my goodness. Three years later, in 2017, the HJS organized another event at Parliament with General Michael Hayden. He's dead now, too, right? No, General Michael Hayden, is he? No, he's still breathing. He's a very naughty character. Yeah, CIA director from 2006 to 2009. To quote, discuss the current state of the American intelligence community and its relationships with foreign partners, unquote. Hayden described, quote, the relationship within the Five Eyes community as strong as ever. Despite potential concerns over recent intelligence leaks between members, unquote, Five Eyes is an intelligence alliance comprising Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, and the United States. And this is a very important key because we were told by the King of Swords and the Faction Three White Knights a long time ago that the payouts of the Nasara blessings will begin with Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, and the United States. Yeah. And so that's interesting because and the reason for it is because that's the darkest controlling elite forces of empire. So that, and they won't enact the law until they have cleaned that up. In other words, those 500,000 get escorted by shuttlecraft to Dracos and they don't come back here. And they go about their business wherever they're going to be designated to go and continue to, uh, you might be saying, uh, learn about galactic life and galactic law and how to serve and rectify the damage that they have caused from here. And we send more love and light to that. Okay, so perception of bias. During a visit to the UK in July 2020, 
Then U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo spoke at a roundtable hosted by the, the HJS with what the Washington Post referred to as a group of hawkish members of the conservative party. As director of the CIA in 2017, Pompeo had launched a blistering attack on WikiLeaks, calling the media organization a, quote, hostile intelligence service, unquote, that makes, quote, common cause with dictators. And again, what did Julian do? He exposed the CIA intelligence using the Iraq war as a cover to murder photographers and journalists and children and children and torture all kinds of other people to death. And that's a no, no promulgate the lies that, uh, you know, nine 11 was, and Fox news is a nice little arm of promoting that stuff too. Yep. Just you should know that by now, everybody. Mm-hmm. And send more light and love to the whole situation. Okay, so Pompeo did not provide evidence, but added a threat. Quote, to give them the space to crush us with misappropriated secrets is a perversion of what our great constitution stands for. It ends now, unquote. Oh, it is. There's nothing better than a Hitler in disguise called Pompeo to do that. The arrogance coming out of that guy is unreal. Okay, on the HJS Advisory Council, at the same time as Patel, was Lord James Arbuthnot, a former conservative defense minister. His wife, Lady Emma Arbuthnot, Arbuthnot, was Westminster Chief Magistrate from 2016 to 2021. For part of her tenure, she was in charge of the Assange case and made two key rulings against him in 2018. Lady R. Uthanot eventually stepped aside from ruling on the case because of a quote-unquote perception of bias yet never declared a conflict of interest. The links between Patel and Lord Arbuthnot go further. In 2010, soon after becoming an MP, Patel was appointed one of five parliamentary officers of the Conservative Friends of Israel. Oh, this is a humdinger. CFI. When the group was chaired by Lord Arbuthnot, CFI, Conservative Friends of Israel, has been described as, quote, beyond doubt, the most well-connected and probably the best funded of all Westminster lobbying groups, unquote. It also does not disclose its funders. Patel was forced to resign as Secretary of State for International Development in November of 2017 after it was revealed that she had held more than a dozen undeclared meetings with Israeli ministers and organizations while on holiday in the country. Mm -hmm. Ah, Many of these 
were arranged by CFI's honorary president. Hello? Lord yeah, Paul. Sarah? It's, yes, it's Yes. Yes, it's our booth not. Oh. The, the lady and Lord Arbuthnot. Yeah, you're, you're making it harder than it really is. <laughs> okay. Thank All you right. for your good English lessons. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Oh, I can't stand it. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, so again, many of these were arranged by CFI's honorary president, Lord Pollock. Patel's resignation letter accepted that her conduct, quote, fell below standards of transparency and openness, unquote. Huh. There's a picture there of Lady and Lord Osbusnat. <laughs> uh, they, they, uh, of them attending the Queen's Garden Party at Buckingham Palace in May of 2017. Anonymization by declassified. Oh, that's what it says. Okay, bankers and paranoid. That's another subject here. HJS staff have been repeatedly critical of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks in the British media since 2011 when it's then Associate Director Douglas Murray engaged in a combative debate, debate with Assange. The following year, the HJS posted a video of Murray staying on media, stating on media channel Al Jazeera English, quote, there is not a witch hunt of WikiLeaks. An organization illegally obtained or stole, as we used to call it, a whole set of government documents and published them with consequences which are still not fully understood, unquote. I'm just going to say it's not exactly like that, right, Rama? What's her What's her name that uh, was in Iraq? Got those documents that showed the killings of the Iraqi cameramen and journalists. Yeah, they they wanted to keep him in prison for thirty five years. Yeah, she she's a she's a she's a trans person. Yes, Chelsea Manning. Chelsea Manning. Uh, and that's the job of a journalist is to get to the depth of these things and get the transparency out to the public. It's just something they despise with the, the venom that they are putting out here uh, in a slanted way. Okay. So Murray continued, quote, I think Mr. Assange has been bonkers and paranoid for years. It's part of his alleged political makeup. And indeed, I would allege that as many, that of many of his supporters. That's got an attitude and a studio attitude. Over the following years, the HJS and its staff continued to be among the most active civil society voices 
for impugning the motives and reputation of Assange. This stands in contrast to nearly all human rights and press freedom organizations, which argue that extraditing the WikiLeaks publisher to the United States would be a grave blow to media freedom. Okay, and next topic, conspiracy theories. In October of 2016, the HJS released a statement to the media which claimed, quote, Mr. Assange has a long track record of stealing and distributing information, peddling conspiracy theories, and casting aspirations on the moral standing of Western democratic governments. That is the opposite. What they're doing is speaking in the way that they want to shed light in a dark way on Mr. Assange. He has done this while supporting and being supported by autocratic regimes. Not, not, not. No evidence was supplied to support the assertions. That's because there is none. A number of other HJS staff, including spokesperson Sam Armstrong and then Chief of Staff Ellie Green, have made anti-Assange interventions in the British media. In April of 2019, after Julian Assange was seized from the embassy by British police, HJS Executive Director Alan Mendoza was put up as the counterweight against Assange's lawyer on BBC's flagship Newsnight program. Posted to the HJS YouTube channel, Mendoza told the national broadcaster, quote, journalists are not allowed to break the law in obtaining their materials, unquote. He did not break the law, not. He added, quote, I think it's quite clear Mr. Assange has spent many years evading justice. Oh, just it's hard to read this because it's just the opposite of what they're saying. Hiding in a room in Knightsbridge. Isn't it time he actually answered questions in a court of law? Next topic, secrecy. In October 2019, as Home Secretary, Patel visited Washington again to meet with William Barr, our lovely U.S. Attorney General who was then in charge of the Assange case as head of the Department of Justice. Together they signed the Cloud Act, which made it easier for American and British law enforcement agencies to demand electronic data on targets as they undertake investigations. Assange's defense team had previously raised the concern in court that Barr may be using Assange's extradition case in the UK for political ends. In August of 2020, declassified requested basic information, uh, declassified the name of a, uh, a group, I guess, declassified requested basic information about Patel's 2019 trip to Washington. The Home Office confirmed It held the information, yet refused to release it because the department considered, quote, that disclosure of some of the information 
would prejudice relations between the UK and the United States. In May of 2020, Declassified also requested information about any calls or emails made or received by Patel since she became Home Secretary, which concerned the case of Julian Assange or mentioned his name. The Home Office told us, quote, We can neither confirm nor deny whether we hold the information you have requested, unquote. Because, quote, to do so either way would disclose information that constitutes the personal data of Julian Assange, unquote. The same request for Shahid Javid's tenure as Home Secretary from 2018 to 2019 was rejected because the department said, quote, we have carried out a thorough search and we have established that the Home Office does not hold the information that you have requested, unquote. This was despite the fact Javid signed the initial U.S. extradition request for Julian in June of 2019. The shadow home secretary at the time, Diane Abbott, opposed approving the U.S. extradition request. Yippee, we got somebody on our side. Declassified previously revealed that before signing the U.S. request, Javid had attended six secretive meetings, some attended by former CIA directors, which were organized by a U.S. lobby group, which has published calls for Assange to be assassinated or taken down. The Home Office recently admitted it had eight official working officials working on Operation Pelican, the UK government campaign to seize Assange from the Ecuadorian embassy in London, which they uh, accomplished three years ago, everybody, three years already. The department, however, claimed it did not know which other UK government ministries were involved in the operation. Priti Patel and the Henry Jackson Society, or HJS, did not respond to requests for information and comments. That's the end of the article, and there's a note to the readers here. Please click and share buttons above or below. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Feel free to respond. Wait, we're going to get Micah on here. Feel free to repost and share widely global research articles. Matt Kennard is Chief Investigator at Declassified UK. He was a fellow and then director at the Center for Investigative Journalism in London. Follow him on Twitter at Kennard Matt, K-E-N-N-A-R-D-M-A-T-T. Okay, so I'm sure Penny's going to send this out too for everybody. I just needed to read this just for my own peace of mind, if not for everybody else's, that we have to watch them like a hawk. Uh, they're already torturing him for the last three years in that prison. And it's been torture at the uh, the embassy, the Ecuadorian embassy. And I think it was there for how many years, Rama? Oh, I don't know. Six, seven. It's about 
it's about 12 years that he's been going through this unbelievable situation. But I am going to, Pat, if you want to hear some more of this, only probably 10 times more hair raising, stay on this channel here. And I'm going to pass this talking stick to Micah because he's got something to share with us. Okay, Micah, here it is. It's all yours. Thank you, Tara. Um, I also just want to briefly go back to the new gen really quick uh, for clarification. Uh, there is a 50% bonus on the investment that you make, and it's only until the end of the month. So whatever you decide to put in, um, you'll immediately get a 50% bonus, 10% of all five coins. And um, these projects that they have, the like, for example, the energy and oxygen coin projects, they're uh, in talks with entire countries size projects for these things uh the uh they can generate electricity from uh hydrogen and organic materials and they have these batteries that they charge and there's highly advanced batteries they cost a tenth of the cost to produce and they are charged in eight seconds and they can bring um like a tractor trailer into there's 40% of the planet still doesn't even have electricity. So they can take a tractor trailer and set it up with a whole bunch of these batteries and bring electricity to places like Africa and different places that have never had electricity before. <laughs> so, okay, that's my preamble. And now we're going to get into a movie documentary that has just been released by Kathy O'Brien. She is a uh, survivor of a MK Ultra mind control project, as well as many other similar vein projects. And um, I will let her describe it for you the best. Here we go. Also, this film is based on her real life experiences as told by Kathy O'Brien and curated by the filmmaker. The views expressed in the film do not necessarily reflect those of any persons, agencies, and or institutions appearing or referenced herein. The views and opinions expressed in this documentary do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of employees, production crew, and affiliates, or associated companies, or any of its officials. And love is the most powerful force in the universe. Kathy O'Brien.
the controlling of governments, controlling of populations, the blood traumas, this occultism, the raping of children, the harvesting of children. All this has been going on for so long. It was so hard to come running out of a hell that nobody believed existed. Kathy O'Brien is not unique. I wish she were, because if she were, it would mean that this problem went no further. In 1957, I was born into a multi-generational incest-based family. At that time, there's a criminal faction of our government that was interested in targeting children such as myself for mind control. My victimization rose proportionately until I was used on a White House Pentagon level during the Reagan-Bush administration. I was used as a sex slave and also delivered messages to and from these government leaders. While I was still really young and all that was happening, I, I do remember losing my free thought. I couldn't even think anymore to hope that there was some place where people were kind. Secret mind control programs began in America in September of 1946 when President Harry Truman quietly authorized Project Paperclip, a U.S. government program that allowed the Department of Defense to recruit and hire high-ranking Nazi German doctors, scientists, and spies into the United States. Over 1,600 Nazis and Italian fascists and their dependents were ushered in through South America with passports and assistance provided by the Vatican and the Red Cross. The purpose of this clandestine immigration was to infiltrate American governing jurisdictions, fortify secret societies, and establish new agencies with the ongoing agenda of the New World Order. Among the imports was Werner von Braun. Von Braun led the Army's rocket development team at Redstone Arsenal, resulting in the Redstone rocket, the first rocket developed to carry a nuclear warhead. Over the next 20 years, von Braun would go on to develop missiles, plan a manned spaceflight to Mars, and design a space station that would orbit the Earth. When NASA was established in 1958, Nazi Party member von Braun became the first director of the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Another prominent Nazi recruit for the U.S. was German General Reinhard Galen. Upon his arrival in Washington, D.C. in 1945, Galen met extensively with President Truman, General William Donovan, Director of Office of Strategic Services, and Alan Dulles. The objective was to reorganize American intelligence operations and transform it into the Central Intelligence Agency, 
the CIA, in 1947, which Dulles would become the director of. Reinhard Galen was also instrumental in creating the National Security Council, from which the National Security Act of 1947 was derived. This particular piece of legislation was implemented to protect and conceal an unconscionable number of illegal government activities, including secret mind control programs. As the U.S. government became saturated with the infiltration of Nazi intelligence, one of the more sadistic Nazi doctors, Dr. Joseph Mengele, was invited to extend his barbaric human research that he was permitted to practice in Nazi Germany. His experiments resumed in the United States in 1951 under Project Bluebird, which morphed into Project Artichoke and MK Naomi. These were the origins of what would become Project MKUltra in 1953. The aim of these projects was outlined in a memo dated January 1952 that asks, Can we get control of an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will and even against such fundamental laws of nature, such as self-preservation? The data harvested from these experiments generated more experiments with the ultimate goal of controlling the entire planet by creating the new world order. Program after program went on secretly unbeknownst to the American public, utilizing hundreds of thousands of silent victims, most of them children. New details are coming out in a trove of declassified documents that the agency has kept secret for years. Thousands of government-sponsored experiments did take place at hospitals, universities, and military bases around our nation. In too many cases, informed consent was withheld. Americans were kept in the dark about the effects of what was being done to them. The deception extended beyond the test subjects themselves to encompass their families and the American people as a whole. But these experiments were kept secret. And they were shrouded not for a compelling reason of national security, but for the simple fear of embarrassment. And that was wrong. Under our watch, we will no longer have the truth from our citizens. We will act as if all that we do will see the light of day. Under the protection of the National Security Act, the CIA would continue cloaking these programs while funding them with secret arms deals, drug operations, and human trafficking. Projects such as Operation Spellbinder, which was designed to create sleeper assassins and Manchurian candidates who would be activated when hearing a key word or a phrase. Operation Often, which attempted to harness the power of occult forces, ran concurrently to hide the reality of another insidious program. Project Monarch, My name is Kathy O'Brien, and I'm a survivor of MKUltra Mind Control. Specifically, the CIA's Project Monarch aspect, which is a multi-generational study that they were doing and use of multi-generational incest-based 
children. After three generations, behavior becomes autogenic, and that was part of the Hitler-Himmler research that was brought over in Project Paperclip by the Nazi and fascist scientists for combining that information with the CIA back when I was born. My family had been sexually abused. My father was sexually abused. My mother was sexually abused. They'd both been ritually abused. Their parents had been. And of course, I was being sexually abused. My father had been sexually abusing me as far back as I can remember. He, he bragged about sexually abusing me in infancy. And even though I couldn't determine that what he was doing was wrong, my brain still responded to his sexual abuse on its own. Our brains autogenically respond to trauma the same way. And my brain was trying to protect me from the sexual abuse that I was enduring. And it was so suffocating to me as, as an infant that it caused what is known as dissociative identity disorder, or formerly known as multiple personality disorder. This is now professionally defined, this disorder is, as the mind's same defense to trauma too horrible to comprehend. I developed a compartment in my brain, a little area behind amnesic barriers that was actually the neuron pathway shutting down in my brain in order to compartmentalize the memory of abuse so that the rest of my mind could function normally as though nothing had happened. They knew that that kind of compartmentalized brain response would be an ideal place to hide government secrets back then because I couldn't think to bring those to mind. And this is why they started grooming me from such an early age. My father's sexual abuse expanded into child pornography, and he was sending this child pornography of me through the U.S. mails. And it was he was caught. The pornography was confiscated by a criminal faction of our government. A local politician approached my father and told him, that he would receive immunity for prosecution if he would sell me into the CIA's MKUltra Project Monarch. Project Monarch utilized a combination of psychology, cognitive neuroscience, trauma, and occult rituals to create within the victims one or more altered personas that could be then triggered and programmed by the handlers. subjected me to an occult blood ritual that was referred to as the right to remain silent. This blood ritual was so horrible that my mind readily accepted the mind manipulation that I endured afterwards, the hypnotic language, the neuro-linguistic programming that actually changed the way that my brain was functioning. They changed that so that they decided when, where, and how that particular compartment of my brain would be opened and accessed. And they replaced the triggering mechanism with hypnotic codes, keys, and triggers, hand signals. There's also phone tones that can also open those neuron pathways and give access to the compartmentalized memory as well. 
as my brain was still forming, when abuse occurs prior to age five especially, there's so many other aspects of what our brain automatically does with the trauma. And as more and more compartments developed in my brain, those neuron pathways actually shutting down, there's no capacity for continuity of thought. And without continuity of thought, there's no concept of time. So I had no idea that um, my body began to not realize that I was supposed to be exhausted. I wouldn't know that I had just done all this over here. So it felt fresh over here. And so there's this physical endurance that's extremely heightened as a result of the strategic um, structured kind of abuse that I was enduring at that point for creating these various compartments. As a really young child, while my brain was still forming, so much of the compartmentalization happened through experience in different people in different ways. Some of it would um, involve uh, brutality. Some of it involved suffocation. It happened on a subconscious level. The subconscious has no ability to question, reason, or consciously comprehend. And as more and more of those compartments develop, more and more conscious awareness is lost. My father had a sixth grade education had earned his living as a worm digger. We were very, very dirt poor. But when he sold me into the project, he eventually went on to become a multimillionaire with government contracts. So already we're seeing how this was a structured system within a corrupt faction of our government that not only was uh, targeting children like myself, but sanctioning the abuse through the court system, granting my father immunity from prosecution. As soon as my father sold me into the project, he was flown to Boston, Massachusetts, where the Catholic faction, the Jesuit faction of, of Project Monarch was uh, being run by Cardinal Law. My father was trained by Cardinal Law on how to raise me in the project. This included human trafficking. It wasn't called human trafficking back then. It was just being prostituted out to all the local politicians, the policemen, the, all the pedophile priests that were involved in my area. And those who were part of my grandfather's Blue Masonic Lodge. The Blue Masonic Lodge is where all the politicians came together and were actively part of making the plans for MKUltra mind control. They wanted me exposed to more trauma, especially occult trauma. It was um, through the slaughter of animals in, it, in any kind of occult ritual. And I experienced some horrific um, occult abuses through who would become my first handler in MKUltra. Uh, Wayne Cox, he was an occult serial killer. Wayne Cox was actually working as an assassin for CIA drug operations, for mercenary operations that were going on. I was exposed to the governor of Michigan, George Romney, and I was taken to Mackinac Island, Michigan, to meet with him, to be prostituted to various government leaders, including Canadian Prime Minister at the time, Pierre Trudeau. I was also exposed to who would become my owner in MKUltra, 
uh, U.S. Senator Robert C. Byrd. Byrd was up there discussing various ways that they could expand mind control into the population. And he and George Romney uh, discussed the ways that they could put it into the education system. We must emphasize adult education, work toward a metropolitan school system where every youngster in the metropolitan area will have equal educational opportunity and equal financial support for your schooling. Senator Byrd is head of appropriations and set it up where the states became dependent upon the federal government for funding for the education system. They had a plan for manipulating the minds of the children through altering their knowledge base. Through this comprehensive understanding of mind control, scientists recognize the importance of affecting cognitive development at a young age. This set into motion the infiltration of our educational systems, controlling not only what to think, but how to think. From programs like America 2000, to No Child Left Behind, to Common Core. We will end what has become a race to the bottom in our schools and instead spur a race to the top. The process of thinking critically has been eliminated. Standardized bubble testing has replaced analysis. Memorization has replaced inquiry and the process of learning. Information control is a form of mind control, which is why they were so interested in taking over the education system and why they were interested in taking over the media. The CIA was very much involved in taking over the media with the Operation Mockingbird. Do you have any people paid by the CIA who are working for television networks? This, I think, gets into the kind of uh, getting into the details, Mr. Chairman, that I'd like to get into in an executive session. I think it was entirely in order for our correspondents at that time to make use of the CIA agent chief's uh, station and other members of the executive staff of CIA as sources of information which were useful in their assessments of world conditions. And that continues today? Well, I... Yeah, I would think probably for a reporter it would continue today, but because of all of the revelations of the period of the 1970s, uh, it seems to me that a reporter's got to be much more circumspect in doing it now, or he runs the risk of uh, at least being looked at with considerable disfavor by the public. I think you've got to be much more careful about it. Conditioning the minds of individuals through repeated disinformation was the intention behind CIA's Operation Mockingbird. The suppression of information through the media had limited people from seeing that mind control exists so strongly in our world. It stopped them from understanding that human trafficking was the funding mechanism of the New World Order. It stopped them from seeing the CIA cocaine operations that were being used. The so-called drug wars is nothing more than the CIA taking over the industry worldwide. Gary Webb was trying to report on it, and he was killed. So many on the front lines were being killed. Only a few major corporations control an estimated 90% of all the news stations, television, movies, music, video games, social media, and the Internet.
social media and other internet platforms make their money by keeping users engaged. And so they've hired the greatest engineering and tech minds to get users to stay longer inside of their apps and on their websites. Mass media has conditioned individuals using methods such as neuro-linguistic programming, occult symbolism, and harmonics. They were enhancing the harmonics in the music to actually affect the neuron pathways in the brain in directions that they wanted, and then using specific lyrics to drive in a message. We need to be so mindful of the lyrics that are being carried on those harmonics into our mind and become aware of how much that kind of thing does affect us. All the good Harmonics were added to their music to make them even more popular. These little children who had been horribly abused were programmed and harmonically tuned. And then the messages were programmed in, which would deliberately affect the social engineering of a generation or however many people they could affect. Through continued secret human experimentation, scientists learned that repeated traumas coerce the function of the amygdala and the hippocampus to repress the dissociated memory. In order to continue functioning, the memory of the traumatic experience is sectioned off and encased by amnesic walls, creating an altar hidden from the main identity in the subconscious. While the barrier is down, handlers and programmers installed everything from secret messages to deliver, instructions for illegal activities, or programs for sexual perversions. The various levels of programs were named after the different brain waves to denote function. The amnesic barrier is then rebuilt to hide the identity of the abuser and memory of the programming, using trauma conducted through repetitive brutality, electric shock, and weaponized sound waves, known as harmonics. Due to the electrical nature of the brain, high-voltage electric shock devices, such as cattle prods, are commonly used and are extremely effective in cementing dissociation after torture. By developing the experiments, it was discovered that the effects that harmonics have on the RNA covering of neuropathways is highly effective in creating undetected mind control. Through trial and error, at the expense of unknowing human subjects, success was finally achieved. The experiments proved that certain inaudible sound waves will electronically encode messages into victims, making direct physical abuse no longer necessary for mind control programming. Since the inception of these experiments, what was learned has been implemented through the use of sophisticated equipment. The advancements made have offered the ability to track states of consciousness and alter it electronically and remotely, allowing for silent mind control to take place on a mass scale and go completely undetected. I know that there are harmonic tuning places involved in NASA and at DARPA. The different places that were involved in MKUltra one was Disney, and I was taken to Disney World in Florida. They have very sophisticated setup in the the underground or the underworld of Disney World, where um, mind control programming occurs. 
Walt Disney's stories were intentionally crafted using his thorough understanding of occultism as he climbed the ranks of masonry and made connections which laid the foundations of the Disney empire. Through relations to CIA operatives Paul Helliwell and Wild Bill Donovan, Disney was able to secure land in Florida for a fraction of the valued price. Disneyland opened during the same year that Project Paperclip scientist Werner Ron Braun worked as a technical director on Disney TV shows about space. Von Braun later became an expert on Walt Disney's Tomorrowland, an area of the park showcasing impressive futuristic structures. Located underneath the surface are tunnels or utility corridors, which can be accessed through certain unmarked doors located in various shops, restaurants, and attractions. It is in these utility corridors where child pornography, child trafficking, and mind control programming are allegedly taking place. Transcripts document the close relationship between Walt Disney and FBI Director Edgar Hoover, as they correspond about how to bring the FBI's influence into children's TV shows such as the Mickey Mouse Club. These child stars, as well as the children viewing these programs, have been groomed and desensitized by sexual behavior. The correlation between Disney child stars and drug addiction, crime, mental breakdowns, and dissociative behavior are merely products of the victimization they endured while being subject to Hollywood's elite producers and handlers. And it's extremely traumatizing MKUltra mind control um, experience that that I've had was the most dangerous game of human hunting. No matter what the weather, you know, I didn't have any any clothes and was turned loose in the woods and then literally hunted by men with guns and never knowing whether or not I would actually be shot. They used hunting dogs to, to track, which was really, really traumatic. And of course it was it was kind of designed to where there's no place to run, no place to hide because there was no way to get away from them. And it was at one of those human hunting places that I saw George Bush Jr. hunted just as I was. And his his own father and Dick Cheney were a part of extreme trauma base for him because they were creating a Manchurian candidate who would become president. It was absolutely horrible that anybody was being hunted. And I've always had extreme compassion for George Bush Jr. It was an effort to be able to keep all the power in the Bush-Clinton dynasties. People think, well, you run against each other. You're enemies. Let it go. Well, we were friends before he beat me, before we ran against each other, and we've been friends afterwards. You were both in Skull and Bone, the secret society. It's so secret we can't talk about it. My primary mind control programmer was Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino. He was the founder of the Occult Temple, a set that proliferated on our military bases and where occultism was used for mind control on and by our military. The Army is not of my religion for the last 20 years. 
There's never been a problem with it. I've been involved in intelligence and psychological operations for about 40 years uh, in all levels of it and across the intelligence community. Use the blood traumas and brutality, uh, high voltage stun guns, and of course the neuro linguistic programming, the language of the subconscious. I met with Aquino on various military and NASA installations. Albert, are you in there? I was transferred over to my next handler, Alex Houston, a ventriloquist, stage hypnotist in the country music industry. And at that time, the country music industry was being completely taken over by the CIA for distribution of their cocaine throughout the United States. Under Alex Houston, I was taken to the Caribbean, specifically the U.S. Virgin Islands, the human trafficking operations that were set up there. Now we know that to have been involved with the, the Epstein Island and the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing. That's kind of what it evolved to next. He's accused of recruiting a network of young girls he sexually abused at his mansions in Florida and New York. Law enforcement officials tell NBC News he faces two counts of sex trafficking for alleged crimes. Trafficking underage girls to the private island near St. Thomas. Some even refer to it as pedophile island. Authorities say he declared it his primary residence. Sleazy Wall Street tycoon Jeffrey Epstein used the Lolita Express to ferry a bevy of beautiful young women. Among the passengers, former President Bill Clinton and Britain's Prince Andrew. Newly obtained documents show Clinton actually took at least 26 flights on Epstein's private jet. According to NBC News, Jeffrey Epstein has died by suicide in his jail cell. It was my experience that Bill Clinton is bisexual, meaning far more towards the homosexual end. All I've ever seen him involved in was the homosexual activity um, with very limited experience with him myself, whereas my experience was much more uh, prevalent with Hillary Clinton because Hillary is also uh, bisexual, leaning more towards the homosexual end, and it was she who accessed my sex programming to fulfill her perversions. Bill Clinton was being groomed to slip into the office of president because he would do and say what needed to be done. Therefore, it was decided in 1984 that I heard him and George Bush talking at Swiss Villa Amphitheater in, in Lampy, Missouri, that when people became disillusioned with Republicans leading them into the new world order, then Bill Clinton as a Democrat would be put into place. The Clintons have been involved in the most horrific criminal activity groundwork for the New World Order. And at that time, the first thing they were implementing was NAFTA, the human trafficking that was being done over the border, the drug trafficking being used over the border. It was all sanctioned. And when people like myself who were coming across with all these drugs and, and were being trafficked, they never could get any information from it because the information was compartmentalized and it was all covered under national security. I would also be introduced into what was the beginning or the foundation of adrenochrome. They would take the blood from tortured individuals and that's what they would drink and get kind of addicted to it or something. I don't I don't know, I can't relate to the concept of a 
at all. It was so traumatic for me. But for them, it's something that they literally feed off. Not only do they feed off fear and negativity and trauma, but they also feed off the adrenaline of those who are tortured and ultimately murdered. That was the very groundwork on the adrenochrome, but it was actually a structured system already because it was spanning several states. And those adrenochrome operations, another aspect of it that they used was um, aborted babies. So I was ritually impregnated and aborted numerous times. Some babies I would carry um, longer, and it was just extremely horrific knowing how um, aborted babies are used in in that, that horrific manner from my own experience. I finally was able to give birth to my daughter, Kelly. And I couldn't, I couldn't protect her from the abuse that she endured any more than I could protect myself. I didn't even have an ability to have a survival instinct anymore. I had been so horrifically traumatized for so long. Of all the things that I ever endured, there's never been anything more traumatic to me than knowing that my own child was abused. I would love to have been able to protect her and stop the cycle of abuse. But I couldn't. And because I couldn't, that became probably the, the biggest means of control over me that there could possibly be. And that same control mechanism I found out in later years through Kelly, she always thought that she was protecting me by taking the abuse. And I always thought I was protecting her when we realized that with each other, it was just such a, uh, an, an overwhelmingly, uh, pro- profoundly beautiful moment between us, just to know that, that the magnitude of the love that we had was always there. The maternal instincts were still in, in place, even through all the horror and the trauma and, and, and everything else. Kelly was born into a higher level of MK Ultra than I was. Hers wasn't just all trauma. They also used harmonics on her literally. For the harmonics, like they like vibrate the neuron pathways of the brain. So rather than having the brain automatically compartmentalize a trauma and shut down those neuron pathways, they would just use harmonics to vibrate those those compartmentalizations into place. And they could use that same harmonic to open it for carrying out different operations. Even at two years old, she was in the White House just standing like a little robot. She was sent over to Bush while I was with Reagan. And that was just the way things were routinely done. George Bush was one of the biggest promoters of pedophilia that ever was. He put so many of our judges in positions where they had to comply with turning abused children back to the abusers and also 
for beginning to have foster care systems and our mental health systems and, and everything else infiltrated with uh, perpetuating MKUltra mind control. I thought the whole world was saturated with this kind of criminal activity. Everything around me was involved in it. The, the handlers and the owners of the mind control slaves, there were so many of them that they actually had um, a charm school that trained the girls or guys for various sexual perversions and fulfilling them on high levels of government. We were also used for blackmailing purposes with these kind of extreme perversions. They were like strategically hidden cameras in, in the ceilings and in the walls that would, that would film the, the perverse acts. And then the politicians or whomever, the various world leaders were then blackmailed into compliance with the new world order through all these videotapes. One place where they had a lot of cameras and perversions set up just specifically for this was Bohemian Grove. At Bohemian Grove, the politicians would sit around and talk about the different ways that they were going to be implementing the New World Order, different traumas that were going to be unleashed on society. One discussion that was just really horrific was using AIDS as a means of population control and introducing that in. I heard discussions like at Bohemian Grove where they were talking about aliens and stuff. And even though my experience with George Bush was him doing a, a holographic image of turning into a lizard because um, it's an innate fear of reptiles that's been conditioned from so many generations within us that it's an MK ultra mind control theme to say that it's reptilian in that regard. But it doesn't preclude the fact um, on where is the alien influence and is there alien influence and what does it all really, really mean? At Bohemian Grove, when they discussed it, they said that aliens are us in the future and that it's just a matter of uh, time travel and manipulation of time. They also talked in terms of aliens being dimensional and multidimensional. Even though my memory was compartmentalized, when trauma occurs, the brain also photographically records events surrounding trauma. When John F. Kennedy was assassinated, most people know exactly where they were and what they were doing because this was an event that traumatized the nation and this exemplifies how the mind photographically records events surrounding trauma. And my brain was photographically recording these discussions that were going on. One of the most interesting was between George Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton. George Bush was talking about how he believed in pedophilia so strong, especially incest, and sexually abusing a child to heighten their suggestibility. Down here is a button. Now, now does anybody in this room know how to twerk? 
drag queen story time has been happening all across the nation. Let's turn around. And shake your butt. Shake them, shake them, shake them, shake them. Mention inspired diversity and inclusion. Strawberry Corn Cakes right here says that it's all about promoting creativity. What has this world come to? It's come to a world where drag kids actually exist. And people do ketamine on a couch. I'm going to find out who lactate today. He was very much for that aspect of things, whereas Bill Clinton was discussing how he believed in the genetic cloning aspect of things and genetic manipulation, how important it was for us to be able to catch up with artificial intelligence by stopping human procreation and creating a generation of genderless children. Hmm, come to think of it, well, is Alex a boy or a girl? Actually, Alex doesn't define themselves as boy or girl. What else is there? Back in your day, most people understood the world in terms of just boys and girls. But now, we know gender is more complex than that. If you feel you want more time to explore how you feel about your gender before your body starts to change, it's important to talk with a parent, counselor, therapist, or doctor about the feelings you have regarding your gender. After some discussion and counseling, you may be referred to an endocrinologist. Endocrinologists specialize in hormones, and they are the most likely to prescribe puberty blockers for someone who wants them. Puberty blockers are medications that will stop your body from changing. They are usually given as an injection or an implant. We've gotten to a point where our children are being taught in school that they're neither male nor female, regardless of their physical apparatus. We had male, female issues at one point that now have so many other divisive aspects added into it. It's just dividing people more and more and more. At the Grove, when girls reached age 30, they were, they were murdered or they were sacrificed. Because at age 30, there's electrochemical changes that happen in the brain where people sometimes those neuron pathways start changing a little bit and memory starts leaking out. Well, see where people who have been programmed specifically that are high profile, like maybe in the entertainment industries, they will start breaking up around age 30. We'll see things like what that Britney Spears shaving their head. It's just part of what happens around that age. So many government secrets and personal reputations were staked on the belief that I could never think to bring to mind to tell their secrets, that I would never be deprogrammed to remember the things I've been programmed to forget. It was horrific knowing that so many lives were lost, so many girls when they reached age 30. And, of course, so often for the perversion purposes, they were saying that, that the girls were too old to be used anymore for perversion anyway. So, you know, they were useless. Just get rid of them. And I was definitely going to be killed there as well. I was to go out in a blaze of glory and, and be be burned alive. And I know that was the plan because it was told to 
President de la Madrid of Mexico, who was so much a part of the foundation of NAFTA, he was being reassured and told that I would be killed and that the secrets would go with me. I'm so fortunate that an intelligence insider who saw the kind of corruption that was going on in the highest levels of government saved my life so that um, we could begin to expose what was being done. Mark Phillips was so outraged by what he saw he decided to take action. When he rescued me out of that situation, I had no memory whatsoever. I had no conscious thought of my own. I only knew to do exactly what I'd been programmed to do. To be able to think on my own was like, was like my brain would go into this black hole and, and, and I'd be pushing it, trying to, to make a decision even or maybe what to have for dinner, you know, just to even think that thought was an exercise in itself. Because of what he knew in mind sciences, what he knew about when spies were tortured and traumatized, how they could come back from that um, and how they could heal. He knew all the methods that the government had for helping them and took that information and just handed me the keys to my own mind. The first thing he did was strap a, a watch on my arm because a concept of time equates to a concept of awareness. And I had no conscious awareness at that when he rescued me. And I had so much compartmentalization that the whole conscious mind was just not active in any way. So the watch was a tool to help start bridging that. He also taught me that as my brain felt safe and began flashing memory, that I should make notes of whatever that flash was. As, as fast as it happened, just still make a little note. Because moving a pen requires a logic part of the brain, and it takes that and just puts it over into logic where it can be consciously dealt with. Seeing it on paper and having it physically moved in my brain was just the start of a healing process. As I was writing out more and more memory and bridging those neuron pathways and opening those up, I gained continuity of thought. I gained continuity of time. I started having a concept of time and conscious awareness. I distinctly remember the moment that something had happened within my brain and the way that it fired and to where all of a sudden, boom, you know, it felt like I was present, like I was in the real world. I could feel again. Mark was in intelligence and wore many hats. He was considered a spook, you know, more than just any particular agent. He worked for the different 
for all different agencies in whatever capacity was needed, which included Secret Service and being in the White House. He was interested in how to help the mind and how to um, heal the brain. So he got into mind sciences on significant levels and was studying mind sciences at the War College and Psychological Warfare Division when he came across Michael Aquino. and was absolutely disgusted that something like occult trauma was being used to manipulate minds of masses and of individuals. I was sworn to secrecy on the things that I witnessed, on the equipment that was developed, and I can assure you that in 1967, all the way up through 1973, when I was involved in this research as a Defense Department subcontractor, the equipment that I saw then was 25 to 30 years ahead of anything known on this planet in the private sector. Mind control is not new in this country or any other country. It's been around thousands of years. But the sophistication of it to this point has now reached such a proportion that people are seeing the results everywhere. What they don't see is the, the sophistication of the mind control itself. They don't recognize the symptoms that are being created in these people until it's too late. He was already becoming disgusted with what he was seeing going on. By the time he realized that Kelly and I were under mind control. While we were in Alaska uh, and Kelly was safe, she started beginning to have memory flashes and she went into respiratory failure. So we took her to Humana Hospital and the diagnosis there, they could not find any biological reason for her respiratory failure. So they brought in a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist was state appointed. The psychiatrist had seen many mind control cases because of the Air Force base up there and because of, you know, espionage being launched out of Anchorage in that area for years. Information on mind control had been suppressed for so long. Mental health had no clue what it entailed. Mind control has advanced to the point where they know the ins and outs of the, the brain and the mind so well that they know how to program not only the subconscious, but to go into the primitive mind, the very area of our mind where um, blinking, breathing, and circulatory, heartbeat, all that is, is, is regulated. And they could go in there and put death programs in place. With my, in my daughter's case, it was respiratory failure, so that in the event that she ever had cause to remember, which they never expected could happen, they would just simply go into respiratory failure, circulatory failure, and no information would be released at all. There was no chance of the information getting out that way. Since my daughter was being raised to be, was genetically and mind controlled, being brought up to be an espionage, she had that program in place and it went into effect. And it put her in a hospital where she was held a political prisoner. When I was finally allowed visitation with her, I was not allowed to discuss anything with her that could be helpful to her. I wouldn't tell her what her past was because I already knew at that point that a person needs to heal from the inside out, not from outside input. There's no way I was going to ever do that in a way that would hinder her own healing process. I wanted to nurture it and help the therapist nurture it. But instead, they just completely shut me out and told me I was crazy. And then turning to law enforcement, the FBI came in on her, my daughter's case and testified that there's no such thing as mind control. 
The violations of laws and rights that proliferated in her so-called legal case were extensive. We had one clean district attorney that went in and told the judge that he was violating constitutional rights and, and, and human rights in my daughter's case. He said, Your Honor, you're violating every law that I know of. And, and the judge said in open court, laws do not apply in this case for reasons of national security. That judge, in essence, saved our lives because he absolutely said publicly that the United States government was responsible for covering up this case. As soon as he said it, the records were sealed and the office of the district attorney with those records were burned. Because I was healing, because I had healed sufficiently, because I had free thought again, there was no way I was going to cave into following orders that would protect her any more than they ever had. Instead, I had love as my motivation to to heal. That added to the safety in my brain. That added to the firing of the neuron pathways. It added to the memories starting to surface. And as quick as they were surfacing, I began writing them out. I took those memories that she had recovered and the details, the maps, the, everything that she handed me, and I turned it over to people that I knew in, within federal law enforcement, not FBI, federal law enforcement, and I'll tell you one of them was Customs, and they in turn provided me with enough substantiation and proofs that I could prosecute. The uh, U.S. Customs was absolutely amazing right from the start. They were right there to investigate what I had written out, what I was saying about the drug operations out of the Caribbean, um, what I was saying about the human trafficking. They had at the head of the agency, William Von Raab. It is Customs' job to stop illegal drugs at the U.S. borders. Von Raab thinks the U.S. is losing the war against drugs because from where he sits, the government isn't fighting to win. He was doing everything he could to get the, the whole mess exposed and taken down. Von Raab accuses the State Department under the Reagan administration of virtually ignoring the international drug supply. Every time Von Raab would turn in information, especially as pertained to me, national security went on it and it went nowhere. During those years, William Von Raab became so frustrated, he just totally resigned. I often felt that it was sort of the Mexican government and the U.S. government against me in the war on drugs. In spite of his resignation, the agency itself remained clean and continued to investigate everything that I was remembering as fast as I was writing it out. By 1995, when Mark and I were ready with a testimony for U.S. Congressional Permanent Select Committees on Intelligence Oversight, we were censored for reasons of national security again. And Congress was censored under the National Security Act from hearing my testimony. And yet it did allow for us to very carefully and very strategically proceed forward with releasing the information that had all been validated by U.S. Customs Secret Service, concerned members of 
various law enforcement and intelligence agencies. They put it into book form in Transformation of America. We took those few copies that we could afford to have printed and had them distributed throughout Washington, D.C. It was a, a safety measure for us to get the information disseminated as fast as we could. Our First Amendment rights, constitutional rights, guarantee us the right voting. Because there's no money and the kind of uh, whistleblowing that we were doing, we would have to decide, okay, are we going to buy you know, this for dinner, or are we going to buy stamps? And we would always go for stamps because stamps were more substantial for keeping us alive because we had to get the word out there. The information that we released, we released to every member in Congress at the same time. Mark and I continued speaking out to anybody and everybody who would listen. We spoke out to various law enforcement groups, to border guards, U.S. Customs, even the, the police who were concerned about the... Uh, human trafficking and drugs pouring across the border. Senator Byrd had an office in the FBI building, and he had it in there for the purposes of being able to manipulate the law to allow for the human trafficking, to allow for the drug operations to go unchecked. And the one, the catch net for the human trafficking operations was the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. That was through the FBI. There were so many people that were being affected, so many, so many mothers who had lost their children to human trafficking operations and then had the court system turn on them and, and return the children to the abusers. We spoke out to mental health groups that were really wanting some answers because they found that what they were doing to treat ritually abused children and children who had been um, mind-controlled, wasn't, wasn't working. They needed more tools. So we were able to hand them those tools. And because I had healed to the extent that I had, the mental health community was very much interested in that. What has happened, Kathy O'Brien, is happening all around the world. I was exploited unwittingly for nearly three decades of my life. We were sold to the federal government by our father and his priesthood and military leaders. I was being trained to be a sex slave for the elite. My family were used as entertainers, child pilots in wars, medics, special messengers, high-priced call girls, presidential models, sports figures, and international spies. There were countless other children in my same situation. Most of the children there were babies and toddlers. I was strapped down in sort of a lab-like setting. These experiments were performed on me in conjunction with mind control techniques and drugs. The deliberate dissociating through trauma. Dissociation also serves the purposes of the occult because the children have no day-to-day -day memories of the atrocities. Although the process of recalling these atrocities is not an easy one, nor is it without some danger to myself and my family, I feel the risk is worth taking. Since sharing it, I've lost a 20-year singing career, lots of money, my health, and my home. All these atrocities did occur to me and to countless other children, and all under the guise of defending our country. These psychopaths at the top believe they'll create a satanic order that will rule the world. At a high level of the U.S. government, there was support of this kind of thing with Operation Bluebird, Paperclip, Mockingbird, and, of course, MKUltra, still going on today.
this was the ITNJ on the inquiry into human trafficking and child sexual abuse, which was um, a global expose and pursuit of justice. And um, Mark is in the cover of it. It also gave voice to all those nations that were concerned with bringing a stop to this new world order funding mechanism. The criminals that I was exposed to under MKUltra are still the same handful of criminals in control today or the effects of what they have put in place. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order. The mind control information gathered in the programs has been used against the American people and the rest of the world with alarming saturation. Aspects of what has been learned due to the experiments can be seen in every corner of our society. The intentional traumatization has left a nation of bewildered followers or triggered those who have awakened to the truth of the obvious control. Once one breaks through the veil of understanding, the systematic traumatization of America reads like a manual from Mengele's original research. The formula of using trauma to control the victim is brought into a much larger scale, and we see where mind control takes over a collective nation, and therefore, the world. They want to suppress truth, they want to suppress information, they want to control the populations, and for what end purpose? I can't relate to. It's a dominating force that feeds and thrives off of negativity. They, it's, it's like they, they feed off of fear to the point where they literally feed off of it through the adrenochrome. Since fear is the primary basis of mind control, they used events like the assassination of John F. Kennedy to traumatize the nation. Just a moment. Just a moment. We have a broken coming in. Official mail. The president is dead. We had Waco. We had Ruby Ridge and the Oklahoma City bombing. It is apparently the single deadliest terror attack on U.S. soil ever. There's other traumas that have occurred, like 911. The mind control of the American people has seeped into the foundations of nearly every organized system. From the disintegration of the family unit, the genetically modified foods, fluoridated water, poisonous additives, heavy metal toxicity, vaccinations, weather manipulations, bioweapons, EMS, pharmaceuticals. Our bodies and minds have been hacked. Breaking news, there's been another deadly mass shooting in America. 
when we see trauma being unleashed on society, whether it's something that's traumatizing the whole nation like 911 or something else like the school shootings or the mass shootings that go on, when we look at the shooter, is he really responsible or is somebody pulling strings? The alleged shooter died by suicide at the scene. Who's pulling those strings? Who's making these kids march to new world orders on our streets and burn down our cities? We need to start looking at the handlers and looking at who's really responsible for the actions. When we get to the source of the problem, to the ones who are in control, then we're going to be able to effectively stop it. And again, it's just a handful of criminals. The whole founding of this new world order is based on drugs, human slavery, and human trafficking. During the, the Trump administration, it became more known uh, on a national scale because he was constantly shining a spotlight on it. Solving the human trafficking epidemic, which is what it is, is a priority of my administration. Even conservative estimates conclude that some 20 million people around the world, including right here in the United States, are trapped in human trafficking situations. I've signed nine pieces of bipartisan legislation aimed specifically at combating human trafficking domestically and around the globe. I'm taking human trafficking, prostitution, often forced, involving children. It's not just child slavery or child sex abuse. It's also child torture because you have adrenalized blood. You, you have the, the whole blood drinking ceremony of the satanic world. It's also the uh, use of children for harvesting body organs. And then you have ritual ceremonies and ritual murder, uh, as well as incidental murder. A SARS-like virus, which has infected hundreds in China, has now reached the United States. WHO chief has called a COVID-19 public enemy number one. It's confirmed the coronavirus outbreak is now a pandemic. A unique opportunity to reset our global agenda. 300 military personnel will be brought in to assist. When I saw COVID hit, I saw that this was going to be used to usher in the new world order. It's mass mind control of the whole globe. Starting today, you're going to be seeing a bigger push to educate the public about COVID vaccines. That's because the Ad Council is launching an initiative. It's called It's Up to You. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They tap directly into people's Fear of death. We begin the hour with a horrifying statistic. Fear. Like fear really starts. Fear is an inefficiency. It bleeds things. Do we agree? I like that. What more is there to wait for? Don't wait. Back to Over the weekend, Big Bird once again rolled up the feathers to get a COVID-19 vaccine. What more do you need to see? A new incentive to get kids vaccinated in New York. The city now offering kids 12 and up limited edition Avengers comic books if they get vaccinated. Working with major businesses like grocery stores to provide special deals. Thank you. You're welcome. Congratulations. Bring them in to get vaccinated. But when they're in, 
that would get discounts to purchase goods in that store. The Winston-Salem based chain will be giving away two donuts to each vaccinated customer tomorrow. All right, I just got my vaccine, and I would recommend it to anyone and everyone. This is not about freedom or personal choice. No, screw your freedom. For some people, having celebrities who are familiar faces speaking up and saying that they are taking the vaccine will be convincing. A strategy that is not without precedent. Newspapers around the country printed this photo of the king receiving the polio vaccine backstage at the Ed Sullivan Show in 1956. The percentage of teenagers that actually got the polio vaccination after this promotion went from 0.6% to almost 80% in six months. So please, if you haven't gotten vaccinated, do it now. Do it now. The better we're going to be able to help stop the spread of COVID. Keep everyone healthy. Throw so off your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. I hope people listen to all the experts and the Dr. Fauci's on talking about the need to wear masks. Right now, people should not be walking. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. Wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better, and it might even block a, a droplet, but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it is. They want it to fit better, is put a cloth mask over. If in fact you are vaccinated, fully vaccinated, you are protected, and you do not need to wear a mask outdoors or indoors. Even if you are vaccinated, you need to wear a mask in indoor public settings. One component of MKUltra Project Monarch Mind Control was um, wearing a mask. Kelly, when she was being trafficked, she wore a mask. It completely depersonalizes, it separates a person from um, from others because you cannot see the micro muscle movements, you can't see what the expression is on a face. So it, it alienates people from each other. Ongoing study of child neurodevelopment finds that children born during this pandemic are now showing lower cognitive skill signs. By putting that mask on, the brain is lacking oxygen and not being able to critically analyze and think as clear as it needs to, to realize and recognize the properties of mind control that are going on around them. Michael Jackson was in Project Monarch. He grew up in the same project I did, and he had to wear a mask. He wore a mask, too, so that he would keep his voice silenced if he wasn't singing, so that he wouldn't be speaking out and revealing what abuses he had endured as a child, what abuses he was enduring in the music industry. We can still wake up from that, arm ourselves with truth, Take off our masks and allow enough oxygen to our brains for critical thinking and be able to use our voice again, speak out and, and make ourselves heard. Take a stand against the injustices and the criminal activity that's proliferating because the new world order is rooted in the most horrible crimes against humanity. We have so much healing within ourselves. We have so much that we can control with our own immune systems and also just knowing that we have the strength to stand up against a, a common virus is, um, is being hindered by this constant programming and imposition that we're being exposed to 
which is nothing more than um, a form of mind control, how to avoid a virus from outside ourselves rather than from the magnitude of all that we have within. Mark taught me from the very beginning to voice no negatives without a solution. And that stopped me from just complaining about my past and what had happened and forced me to be able to think forward. Mark's life was was disrupted and and he passed away in 2017 it was it was extremely it was extremely difficult and i knew that if i'm still here i'm here for a reason and that i would continue our shared life's purpose Before Mark passed away, he wanted to release the healing methods that he taught me. He hadn't been able to release them because he was bound by laws of sedition from doing that. So we released it in PTSD time to heal because I'm not bound by any laws of sedition. And it was my experience to heal. For Mark, that was a very fulfilling thing to be able to accomplish. It's up to us, every single individual, to be able to realize their own truth, their own strength of spirit. Through PTSD time to heal, they'll also realize that the physical capabilities they have within themselves to actually heighten their own immune systems and have their, their own defense against any virus that we encounter. We have some amazing things to start discovering about our lives and our surroundings. And it's time then that we move on with that exciting aspect of our lives. Mark and I were able to keep a clarity of thinking like being above the storm to where you have a clearer view to see that positive change was happening, that people were waking up, that they were starting to make a positive difference. People often ask me, why do you smile? How can you be positive after all you've been through? It's because I see where we're going. It's because I know that the reality of what I experienced and so many others have experienced on this planet is finally being brought to light. I've always perceived it as an hourglass. Everything has flipped now. And it's flipped to the good. 
That's why we're seeing the corruption that's been around forever. It's been hiding in the shadows, and we've just not known that it was going on. Now that we can see it, we need to start standing up and doing something about it. We need to take that personal responsibility. When I was healing from mind control, people would tell me, well, you have to love yourself. And I I didn't know how I could love myself after what I had been involved in and used for. And yet Mark told me that he helped me to understand that I was not responsible for the actions that others forced me to do and tortured me to do. That I was responsible from, for all of my actions going forward. So I was healing on levels that were both mental, psychiatric, psychological, the physical brain, and the whole spiritual by realizing responsibility for my own life. I found it within myself on the base core energy of my being, and that energy is love. Love is the most powerful force in the universe. If people want to call it God or label it by any other name that resonates with them, it's irrelevant. And I think when we look within ourselves, we can start tracing that source. When I look at the duality of the world, I learned that light overcomes dark, but dark cannot overcome light. With that duality, there still is tip just ever so slightly to the good. I chose to continue fulfilling our life's purpose of raising awareness on mind control and healing from it. The negative and the solution. And I spell solution with S-O-U-L. And this is the ultimate solution. So I still choose to maintain all a balance with all the, the the keys that he gave me and just honor the life that he lived because he was a hero to us all. He's in every breeze and every So Mark Phillips dedicated his life to exposing the corruption within government agencies. His determination, strength of spirit, and generous heart brought light to the darkness. Mark invited the world to wake up and embrace the truth of the past so that together we can change the future. 
It is with deep gratitude we dedicate this film to his unwavering courage. What an incredible story. And uh, I pass the talking stick back to you, Tara and Rama. Thank you, Micah. I just want to tell everybody that um, Rama and I have a connection with um, um, Linda Stowell and Kent. And Kent passed over. He was working at uh, White Sands. Sandia Labs. Sandia Labs in White Sands. And he got all kinds of toxins and radiation poisoning there. So that's really what killed him. And he left in 2001, right, Rama? Yeah. Yeah. Right, right around New Year's. And we all knew, and they were... Uh, in charge of one of the main, um, uh, 78 programs, Nasara programs. And it was called by the name of, of, of a mammal that swims in the sea, begins with a D, the D fund. And, uh, Micah hung out with their daughter, Kalindi. She was a little bit older, but um, when he was younger, and uh, this this uh, couple, Kent and Linda, went to see um, Kathy O'Brien and Mark Phillips in 1996 in Boulder, Colorado, and she got up there was a I don't know, hundreds and hundreds, 600 people there or something. Mm -hmm. She got up in front of all those people and she told this story to them back then. Mark was alive and well. So this story now, the way it was said is that he had his life disrupted. I just, I guess you don't know either, huh, Micah? But we can kind of guess that, in other words, someone decided that he had created a lot of damage, and so let's uh, do damage control. Let's put it that way. But here she is, and uh, Kathy's saying, I'm still here, <clears throat> so there must be a good reason. So what an amazing thing. Thank you, Micah, for sharing this with all of us. <sighs> and uh, yes, we can. There's a reason. There's a reason to be alive. And we shall overcome. So, Rama, mm. let's do one thing. We're going to play something Rama picked to play before we go. It's 36 minutes. Yes, yeah, so you got to start right this second if we're going to make it. Okay. So, tell everybody what it is. A Path to 5D Ascension. This is Beyond Belief with George Nury. And Susan Ross. Yes. Offering a path out of a dark Night of the Soul, S-O-U-L-U-T-I-O-N. Spiritual life coach Susan Ross speaks about the process of attaining ascension to a 5D matrix. Having found divine love and radiant light, she shares her experience of spiritual awakening, which led to her work helping others to heal. Here we go.
Well, welcome to this edition of Beyond Belief. Suzanne Ross is a spiritual guide who has dedicated her life to spiritual awakening, energetic healing, and the soul ascension process. Suzanne, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us. Thank you, George. I'm so delighted to be here today. This is going to be informative and fun. I'm looking forward to this. Definitely fun. How did you get involved in spiritual awakening? Well, it started with a profound awakening experience. What happened? (laughs) I was working in the corporate world back east and feeling very misaligned with my true calling Uh and displaced on the east coast. And during a visit to Southern California, I ran to the top of a mountaintop, threw my arms up to the sky and said, I am miserable in the extreme and see no way out. And in that moment, I felt a total sense of calm wash over me. At that second, huh? At that second that I surrendered to a higher power, (laughs) I heard a voice resonate within me and all around me. And it simply said, can't you see you've come home? You'll stay here and heal yourself and many others. And in that moment, I knew that was the absolute truth for me. All of the anxiety and depression were replaced by excitement and enthusiasm over my new life in the desert as a healer. And in a matter of two weeks, I completely transformed my life from being a stressed out executive on the East Coast to a healer in the desert of Southern California. Now, was the stressed out healer making a pretty good living? Uh, the stressed out corporate executive was making some good dough and married to a corporate executive. Uh-huh. And we were meant to be living the American dream. But for me, it felt more like a nightmare. You weren't I happy. wasn't suited to this materialistic life uh, with the Porsche and the pool and the mean-spirited politics in the corporate world just it's did just not align material with things. my That's sunny all self. Always was very outdoorsy and spiritually inclined. And so this just wasn't the life that was suited for me. And during this profound awakening in the desert, I was realigned with my true calling and higher self. And I had a hypnotic regression with Lori McDonald. Sure. And does a good job. Right. I always wondered what the heck happened. What was with this light and who was the voice? And in this regression, we were shown that two beings surfaced on the mountaintop that day. And they had a woman in between them that looked just like me. And they said, may she walk into you? And I said, yes. And this woman walked into me, turned around and looked out. That made so much sense to me, George, because made a world of difference. In a moment, I just became a higher version of myself, 
I was spontaneously healed of different illnesses that I was suffering from, including anxiety and different respiratory uh, conditions, what have you. Um, but in a moment of spontaneous healing and spiritual awakening, I was, I experienced what I wow. think was a rebirth, a dark Why night not? that yeah. led to a rebirth. And this has really been a general theme throughout my life. And I think throughout the lives of many. This awakening that occurred with you that came relatively instant, right? Yes. How did you know that it changed you? What did you feel something? What, what happened? I felt totally different than I had before. Before I was suffering from anxiety, being rushed to the hospital for anxiety attacks. I was feeling like, uh, my life lacked meaning and purpose. And in a moment, not only was I spontaneously healed, but I had this overwhelming enthusiasm about life like I had never felt before. I ran down that mountain and headed into my new life. And as I did, everything fell into place perfectly as if I had stepped into this divine synchronicity and the people, the places, and the things I needed to become a healer in the desert just fell into place. And I stepped onto a path of becoming a health and wellness practitioner, and I've never looked back. What was your dark night of the soul experience? What was that? So this, then, was a second death and rebirth experience. That happened to you? Yes. And um, it wasn't like an NDA. It was a death of my old soul and then reawakening to another higher uh-huh. version of my new self. Spiritually speaking. Spiritually speaking, yes. And so I attuned to theosophy, which talks about initiations. And in these initiations, you come to a certain point where you learn something like mastery of the physical body. And then at the end of that initiation, you go through somewhat of a death and rebirth where you may have a dark night of the soul only to awaken into your next initiation. And it's somewhat of a leap in consciousness. Now, for this next initiation, you may be focused on mastery of the emotional body. And so this dark night of the soul uh, was a spiraling downward as a result of an economic crash that took place in 2008. And I lost my business and the town where my dream came true in became somewhat of a ghost town. Right. And I went into a dark, a classic dark night of the soul, but I also call it another awakening because I survived the dark night and I stepped into a light that was bigger and brighter than ever before. So I often say the dark night is a great gift. Suzanne, we have a clip of yours that you produced, which facilitated your awakening. Let's take a look. One day I walked into a church and saw light pouring out of Mother Mary's hands. This turned me away from the darkness and into the light once and for all. I dove in to spirituality on a much deeper level and began meditating daily. I began taking long walks out in nature where I felt a profound sense of oneness with all living things and beings. 
I dove into reading everything I could about science and spirituality, searching for the meaning and purpose of life. But it was one day when I looked up in the sky and saw a sky writing, telling me that the meaning of life was to create and the purpose was to evolve, that I understood the simplicity of it all. I began doing Merkaba meditations and taking journeys through the cosmos. I practiced a lucid dreaming, which allowed me to be conscious in my dream state. You sound happy there. You do. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I feel joyful. Every moment of every day, I feel is a precious gift that we've been giving. And one way we can show our appreciation for this precious gift is to embrace every moment with joy and spread peace and love and light. There are a lot of people out there, Suzanne, who aren't happy. They're frustrated. Things aren't going the way they want in their life. Are they trapped? What do they do? How do they pull out of it? Well, hopefully they are open to seeking ways that can enhance their life, like spirituality, maybe engaging in some stillness meditation. Running energy through the chakras is a very powerful way to cleanse the shadows and blockages that can get seated on those wheels. Also, taking long walks out in nature and connecting with creation always feels very uplifting and elevating to me with the bright sunshine blaring down on us and receiving some of those supercharged photons of light is another way to... It's a powerful way of generating yourself, isn't it? Yes. That's important. <laughs> you moved to Sedona, and it made a tremendous difference for you. What caused you to make that move? So I was in meditation in 2014, and I had a vision of this city full of red rocks. And I had never even heard of Sedona. But after this really? vision, I, I know being in the spiritual world, you think I'd be familiar with the spiritual oh, mecca of Sedona. That's right. But I wasn't. After that, I went to work and I worked at a large health and wellness complex. And all these people started coming up to me, showing me their pictures of Sedona. I would see Sedona t-shirts and bumper stickers. So Sedona just started coming Popping at up. me. Somebody was telling you something. <laughs> right? And then in 2014, my husband took me to the Grand Canyon, and I said, can we go through this town called Sedona on our way to the Grand Canyon? And we did. And when we pulled in through Oak Creek Canyon, and I saw these magnificent red rock temples, there you go. I just wept, and I was breathless and speechless, and I had a sense that I had come home. Well, we have another clip of you talking about those experiences. After moving to Sedona, Arizona in 2015 and practicing meditation in the vortex day and night, my psychic awareness became amplified and I was able to download information from the field like never before. Then one night, a couple of friends and I decided to call upon the Arcturians. After seeing anomalous lights in the sky, 
we realize that we lost four hours of time. Later, in a psychic reading, I was told that three Arcturians took us aboard a ship where we were downloaded with advanced knowledge and wisdom to be revealed over time. Shortly after that, I realized that I could connect into multidimensional realities and reveal who I was being in these different dimensions. Soon I realized I could do it for others as well. I became so curious about these other dimensions, and then I found an obscure book called the Bilgi Kitabi, which explained these dimensions exactly as I was being shown. So you were abducted. <laughs> This is what a psychic revealed to me and my two friends who were with me. Did it close the gap on some things you were looking for, knowing what had happened to you? Well, if we want to back up just a little bit to my father's missing time experience oh, really? before it I was even to him born. Too. So they've been watching you since you were a little girl. Right, I do think it can be multi-generational. And so my father had this four-hour missing time experience in Saskatchewan, Canada, uh -huh. in this little town called Leader. And he was only 18. Him and some buddies were flying down a dirt road one night after dinner. They saw a white light out in the field, in front of the car, behind the car. They got out to check it out. The next thing they knew, they were all sitting in their car. And then they saw this white light race across the field, merge with a larger Oosh. orange light, and take off into space. And so they knocked on the nearest farmhouse door, and the woman was furious. They were knocking on her door after midnight. They were shocked that it was midnight because they had left their house down the street. They're lucky they seven. didn't come out with a shotgun for crying out loud. Right. <laughs> the next day, my father realized that he had a triangular-shaped metallic object in his wrist. Growing oh, really? up, he called it his alien ship, and he would hold it. He kept it in his body. Yes, it was a slightly raised, grayish uh, appearance on his wrist. Could you feel it? That was slightly raised. He never had it uh, X-rayed or anything. Remote. He protected it, and he just called it his alien ship. But shortly after that experience, he was recruited by NCR, National Cash Register Company. Ultimately, we were moved to Mount Shasta, where I was born. Another really tremendous <laughs> place. Right? Growing up in the Very woods spiritual. of Mount Shasta. I would see fairies and elementals, and uh, I had many invisible friends. But then my father was transferred to Dayton, Ohio, uh, to work for NCR, Right near Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, where Roswell wreckage was taken. Right. He spoke German. His mother was German. And on Sunday evenings, these German men would come to our house. And my mother would usher my sister and I into the back bedrooms as these German men poured over plans and blueprints. For what? <laughs> right. My father was quite secretive about the work that he did. But he was always very fascinated by life 
in the cosmos. And he was always pointing to the sky and explaining constellations and nebula like Orion and the Pleiades. Different anomalous things would happen around our house. Fireballs would fly through our yard. Um, and so I was always curious about, you know, what happened during my dad's experience. But we all felt that this experience and his alienship had everything to do with him becoming right. a pioneer on the front lines of the emerging computer age. Also, then I had my missing time experience. And a psychic told us the story that was revealed in the video and how after that, I gained the ability to see interdimensionally. And I discovered that not only could I see into these realms, but I could experience them as who I was being there. Was this genetic? Did you get this from your father? Possibly. It's conceivable that they watched him as a little boy, watched you. Do you have children? I don't. You don't, because I was wondering if they were going to watch them. If this just <laughs> right. goes on and on and on. What do you think they wanted with you? I feel that they were giving me and my two friends an upgrade in order so that we could serve at a higher level. I was going to go and talk about this experience and how I was seeing into these multidimensional realms and as such, now offering soul reunions for people, revealing who they're being in other dimensions. Okay. But the morning before this conference that I was going to speak at, I was shown this holographic image of how in each of these higher dimensions, it's not just a soul merge that's taking place. When you merge with higher dimensional aspects of who you're being in a higher dimension, then it ignites dormant DNA within your being because you see you're merging with a more advanced version of yourself. And as such, this awakens innate gifts and abilities. And so this is really what I'm doing with people when I'm merging them with their higher dimensional self it activates dormant DNA within their being and they become more advanced. And I feel this is what I'm being called to do. And this is the type of sessions I offer. When you get into this mode and an individual gets into this higher realm, do they instantly feel a change? It depends on the individual. If I have someone that's newer to this, I may be guiding the session entirely and transmitting these energies as I do. And then it's a gradual um, evolution. It's a gradual advancement that then we, you know, I follow them and uh, I follow their progress uh, with someone who's more advanced. They may, after I put them in a light hypnotic trance state, actually reveal oh, to yeah. me who, you know, what they're seeing and describe to me who they're being in these other higher realms. Does this make them, Suzanne, a better person by able to tap into this? I would say it makes them more advanced spiritually 
and capable of using their gifts and abilities for selfless service to humankind. It may uh, uplift them and elevate them in a way that they have a greater desire to be of service and to selflessly serve the light. What does consciousness mean to you? Consciousness is everything. And even quantum physicists it's now ball game, isn't it? are discovering that consciousness is fundamental to everything. Where before they thought consciousness might arise from the brain, cognitive brain scientists right. and quantum physicists alike are coming down to saying consciousness is fundamental. It's the source of all that is. Is science beginning to realize what it is? As the fundamental platform upon which everything else emerges. And this would be called emergence theory that physicists are playing with now. There is a group in L.A. called the Quantum Gravity Research Institute, and they're actually discovering through emergence theory and that everything arises or emerges from consciousness that this E8 crystal that was actually discovered by Garrett Lisi, a physicist in Hawaii, is actually projecting uh, the realities that we're experiencing in these third dimensional Earth spheres. So it's very interesting how they're now realizing that this reality that we're experiencing and even our beings are projections of a higher reality in a higher dimension. Is it like we're living in a holographic universe? Absolutely. You have tied in a connection between consciousness and DNA, and let's take a look at that. We know that we are love light beings, and now, scientifically, we can prove it. Frontier physicist Francis Alpert Pop coined the term biophoton emissions. He proved that quantum processes do take place in biological entities. He was able to show how subatomic particles collide to create photons of light within the physical body. And this light contains information imprinted upon our DNA that facilitates cell communication within our beings. This is the language of light encoded upon our DNA, like our own unique symphony, our own personal signature frequency, our soul song. Scientific research has proven that we are energetic light beings and that photons of light are being emitted from our energy centers and from within the nucleus of our cells. It's being emitted from our DNA. Suzanne, if somebody does not tune in, like you've been able to teach people, but if they aren't able to connect, what happens to them? What do they lose? They remain under the veil of forgetting, and they are then solely focused on this incarnation alone. Although they might get nudges from their higher self at times that kind of push them along, right? That inspire them, maybe to be a better person, maybe to be kinder, maybe to be more compassionate. We need more of that, don't we, in this (laughs) world today? Certainly. What are we lacking? 
because not everybody feels that way. I believe that everyone's on their own individual journey. And of course, we're here together on a collective journey. Some people may be new to this dimension and they're looking forward to their lessons in the realm of the 3D duality. Others of us are done learning through separation and suffering and we're ready to expand and ascend into a new higher way of living and being and unity and peace and harmony. And so it depends on where the person is at on their journey. What is the double slit experiment? And so this groundbreaking experiment that happened long, long ago. Did you create it? (laughs) Certainly not. But it's a very famous experiment that allowed us to understand how it takes a conscious observer to collapse wave function. In other words, reality is just waves of potential until someone looks at it. And it's only when a conscious observer looks at it that the waves collapse into particles to create form. So reality requires a conscious observer in order to materialize. Can we get to these points on our own? You did. Of course, you had some help, I guess. (laughs) But do we need helpers or can we get into this state on our own? Certainly with our own seeking and our own dedication to a spiritual path, to studying everything we can get our hands on about science, quantum physics, religion, whatever inspires you, then naturally you'll start to have a more advanced understanding about who you are, why you are, where you are. (laughs) Let's say an individual comes to you, Suzanne, and is just totally lost unhappy with a relationship, unhappy in their job, but they're just lost. How do you put that together for them? How do you make them realize there's more than whatever they're missing? So I do spiritual counseling, and that's how we'll start. We'll start by exploring where they're at in their life now and why. And sometimes by understanding the repeating patterns that are leading to their continued unhappiness or unfulfillment, then we may do a past life regression and understand Uh that some of these things that are keeping them trapped in patterning may be coming from another life. Then we can clear that in that life. Is that is that why someone who may have drowned in another life may be petrified of swimming in this life? Definitely. That, that kind of thing? Yeah, and we can go back and rewrite the script so that they didn't drown. And in this life, it eliminates their fear of swimming. What causes people to just not get it? There are a lot of people out there that just don't understand themselves. How come? They're not taught that in school. Their parents don't teach them. What are they missing? Well, it takes a dedicated effort uh, in order for someone to release themselves from their own entrapment. Some people are just at that point on their journey where they're having the type of experience that Maybe they were destined to have in this lifetime and they are learning lessons. 
lessons can be learned through suffering and separation. And we have volunteered to come here to this 3D reality to experience both suffering and joy. Now, let's take a look at spiritual avatars, and then I want you to explain exactly what they are, because you've looked at this. Are we avatars being programmed by our source self who's experiencing these virtual realities through us as us? Is our source self seated behind a computer screen and choosing different projections of itself as different personalities in different timelines and dimensions? Is our source self using DNA codes to program these avatars? And is there an architect writing code for all of these programmed realities? Beyond digital consciousness, I began to wonder about sacred geometry and how that was being used to create the forms in our reality. And then I discovered emergence theory. This theory combines sacred geometry and multidimensionality. To create a pixelated space-time programmed reality. In this theory, there is an E8 crystal being projected from the eighth dimension onto the fourth dimension to create a quasi-crystal in order to derive 3D space-time. That may be the key to all of this. Absolutely. You know what? Something we lack a lot. I keep saying that a lot because I see what's happening on the planet today, and it's just not going the way most people want. Is it easy or difficult to pull yourself out of what is happening day to day and create this environment that you're after? It can be challenging to look away from the darkness and turn toward the light. But I always tell people where your attention goes, energy flows. So do you want to give this more energy and look into the darkness and keep spiraling into that? Or would you prefer to send your attention into the light and have your energy flow in that direction? And so it takes a concentrated effort to look to the light and to seek a higher way of living and being. But once you do, it's so fulfilling and gratifying when you start to awaken the light within and share it with others. Are there forces, Suzanne, that are trying to pull us down? Certainly. Keep us from getting into the good mode that you talk about? In this reality of duality, there has to be both light and dark forces. And so some people are playing the role of the dark force, and some people are playing the role of the light force, keeping this reality of duality balanced. Is that our choice? Absolutely. And I believe we're in that realm of choice now that we're actually in what you might call the fourth dimension now. And this is the realm of choice where you choose to serve the light selflessly or you you don't choose to continue to dwell in the darkness. 
And there's really no judgment about that. It's just where you're at on your journey. Give me a story of someone who may have gone to you and they were living on the dark side and you pulled them out of it. Kind of tell us what happened. And so, yes, people do come to me and they're very much caught up in the drama of their lives and focused in a victim mindset on everything that has happened to them. And through a series of energetic practices, like I said before, with the uh, chakra journey, illuminating and cleansing their chakras, I do sound healing as well as talk therapy and start to shift them out of that space where now they have a more empowered mindset about all that they can do and be and have. I guide spiritual journeys in Sedona, Arizona, and people can have a personal spiritual retreat with me there. And I've taken hundreds of people out on the land and in indoor sessions and shown them who they truly are as a divine love light being capable of doing and having and being anything that they desire. That they want to be. Does this metamorphosis happen quickly or over time? It depends on the person, but it can be somewhat spontaneous with the combination of talk therapy, sound healing, and chakra cleansing. Of course, also the past life experiences where we cleanse any shadows from past lives, and then we can progress into the multidimensional soul reunion and actually activate some dormant DNA, bringing more of their brain online so they actually become a greater expression of themselves. So, so Ms. Suzanne, for you personally, what has been the most gratifying thing you've done for yourself? Marrying the love of my life. Well, how about that? How nice is that? <laughs> yes, love is the key. And when you're supported with unconditional love every day, day in and day that. out, then you feel blessed every day and just want to share it with the world. Has your life changed over the years dramatically? Yes, and it has been that dedication to the spiritual path and the advances I've made along the way, all so that I can be of higher service to others. I sincerely love all of humanity and enjoy serving in this way. What do you say to somebody who says, I'm not going to get involved in this. I don't want a spiritual awakening. I'm happy the way I am. <laughs> well, it's funny because I do these spiritual journeys in Sedona and sometimes you I'll have, yeah, people show up and they'll say, I don't want to hear anything about spirituality. I'm into that woo woo stuff. And as we continue on the journey surrounded by these magnificent red rock temples and I start to talk about some of these things in a very, you know, light hearted way. They get sort of drawn in and before I know it, they're telling me about, you know, how they, uh, experienced maybe their mother, uh, soul leaving her body when she passed on or, you know, these remarkable that things. That, That'll do it. Right. They've witnessed and experienced. And before you know it, we're having a more spiritual conversation. And they're leaving walking lighter on air than before being so heavy and dense. What's your next mission? What's your goal? Thank you for asking that. I have created one Operation New Earth. It's an acronym that came to me one morning. And so this Operation New Earth is a project 
to bring those who are spiritually inspired to co-create a new higher way of living and being here on earth and looking for ways, governmental, societal, economical, ecological, ways that we can rise above this darker agenda and as a countermeasure to the new world order, create one Operation New Earth. Thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Uh, thank you, George. I so appreciate it. If you haven't had your spiritual awakening yet, you're in for a big surprise. And people like Suzanne Ross will get you there like that. I'm George Nori. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, it's just, it's magnificent, everyone. So, Rama, mm. you want to share something? I got two more minutes. Oh. Maybe three. Hmm. <laughs> I see into the various realms, like she's describing, seeing the photons, the plasma particles, the monoatomic gold. And as you talk to these beings, they talk to you in sound and light and color. And that's how all consciousness works, as far as I know across the universe and others may have other experiences yet um, we are all one (laughs) Um, what I could say that I got from that because he would, uh, George Nuri used the word that she was abducted for four hours. And I would say that the Arcturians don't abduct people. They invite you up. And that's where I kind of agree to disagree kindly because I've never been abducted in all my experience. Are you saying George Nuri said that about her? He used the words uh, that you were abducted when she talked about four hours of missing time. And But she didn't use that word. I don't think she did. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. she didn't she didn't negate what she says. That no. Was, yeah. But the word abduction is a trigger word because the dark side uses that, like Kathy we just heard talked about. And oh not, boy, not a pretty picture. And the Arcturians again, she's got to be really protected for be able to be able to do this. Yeah, and uh, her life was saved um, by her friend. Yeah, Mark Phillips. Right. And then I just, you know, his life was disrupted as thought she said that it's pretty amazing. She remained neutral. She didn't go blaming anybody. Yeah. 
by the time you listen to the whole thing, you get it. <laughs> Hopefully. So we all get it, right, Ron? Yes. All right. So um, just wanted to say that our sister Penny had an absolutely altered experience a few nights ago. And uh, she saw Randy, She Penny described it to Randy, and he described it as a plasma starship. And that's very possible. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it got, it became brighter and brighter and brighter, a really bright gold. And around the edges of the starship, it was black. There weren't any stars there. And Penny described it like black velvet. And it was like a, uh, um, it was like a, um, like the void, I guess, coming out of the void, and and then it started to get smaller, and it slowly got smaller until it was a dot, and then it disappeared. And I was going to say that this is exactly what I had in terms of an experience when I was in a car accident. And I went out of my body and I was hovering and I could see what they were doing in the emergency room. Never mind that. But uh, then I, I went out of the room and a same thing happened. It was a tiny point of light that I seemed to be drawn to. And then it burst into this bright, bright, bright light. Uh, and then out of that light emerged my take of Sananda Kamara and this child of mine that's not a child anymore named Micah was I would I I I I I think he was somewhere between two and four years old and he was holding Sananda's hand and he and Sananda was telepathically communicating that this kid would like you to be his mom, but then in order for that to happen, you have to decide to go back and get back in that body. And I said, sure. And then the same thing happened that Penny was describing where I went down to that point of light from that right place, and then I popped into the hovering position, hovering position over my body. And then in a twinkling of an eye, I was back in the body. And then I started coming too, and life went on. Let's just put it that way. But we got to take a break now. And miracles continue, as you can see. This is quite a journey, and there's no turning back. So we'll see you in a little while. Uh, and we'll come to uh, our brother Richard and a look at the stars. And Kay Pacha, Tanya Gabrielle. Namaste for now, everybody. So much love. See you soon. That's talking stick to you, Richard. Okay, then. Greetings, Commander. Hey there. Oh, shit. What did I do?
I don't know. Oh, I, I, uh, I made the screen go away, and then I had to hit another button and bring it back. Okay. Let's see what. <laughs> that's next week. Okay. There's tonight. Okay. We got the moon is uh, right between Pluto and Saturn, 12 degrees. Well, 11 degrees Aquarius. Pluto's at 29 cap. And uh, Saturn's at 24 Aquarius. Then we got four square in Pisces. Mars at seven. Venus at 21, Neptune at 25, Jupiter at 27. We're going to do this. Venus conjunct Neptune conjunct Pluto this week. And since Venus is uh, on the receiving side of and feelings, right? Venus is feelings and Mars's desires. So um, this should be interesting. You know, desires is, is the human problem, right? Misplaced, misguided desires screws everything up. Chiron's up to fourteen Aries. Sun's at four Taurus. Ah. Getting close to my half birthday here. Uh, Uranus is at 15 Taurus. And this is the week when Mercury took the lead in the great freight train of the Zodiac. Mercury, 24 Taurus. So now our zone of concentration is from 29, 29 like Capricorn, 30, 60, 90, 120 minus 6, 114 degrees of arc from Pluto to Mercury. Still very, very imbalanced. Still very, very problematic. Um, Next week is a uh, new moon. I did I did look at that ahead of time. Yeah, I got next week's chart here. Next week, next week Mercury will be in one Gemini. Uh, new moon early Saturday, and this new moon is going to be conjunct Uranus. Very problematic. Well. That's to start something entirely new, I think. Don't you think we need something entirely new? Some kind of a, some kind of a galactic demonstration or some such fun thing like that. You know, somebody needs to do something about that Putin character. I'm really pissed at him. He's just being bad, 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 bad boy. All right, let's go listen to Kaipacha and Tanya. You've heard enough from me for right now. Okay, here we go. Richard is 27 minutes, and then Tanya is just 18 minutes. Um, 
I mean, Kate Potts, Kate Potts is when you're Richard. Kate Potts is 27 minutes. And time. All right. I'll talk to you in 27 minutes about next, about the coming week. Yeah, there's an eclipse coming up next week. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that would be, that would be the new moon on Saturday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's see here. What does, let's see, we've got extra time here right now. Let me look at this. Uh, how close to, yep, that's almost the same declination. Yep. 15 in one minute and 14 in 51 minutes. So that's only 10 seconds, 10 minutes of our difference. Yeah, it won't be a full moon. won't be a full eclipse in, in my house. Uh-huh. Maybe, maybe in other locations it will be. But um, it'll, be, it'll be interesting. I can see that. All right. Take it away, Kaipata. Okay. with the weekly Pele report for April 20th, 2022. I'm down here at the confluence. The indigenous people always said, you know, where two become one, whether they're streams, creeks, or rivers, where the two join and become one is a sacred place. And I want this to be a sacred report. It's very, uh, very powerful what I uh, am looking at, seeing, feeling, receiving about what's going on these days. So, you know, this moon is in Sagittarius, the uh, sign of expanding our consciousness through nature and natural law. Uh, moves into Capricorn like tonight and uh, stays there until Friday. Uh, hits uh, Pluto just before going into Aquarius. And then... Um, moves along on into square the sun on Saturday. And that is the Sabian symbol that I will be reading uh, uh, to you. Four degrees of Aquarius. The fourth degree of Aquarius, I should say. There's really only one major aspect happening all week. That is Mercury. Mercury has been traveling along. It conjoined with Uranus, and now it's coming up to square Saturn. Okay, that's going to be on Sunday. And we know that it's going to then hit the north node of the moon. So I want to be talking about Uranus, Mercury, north node of the moon in Taurus, in square to Saturn, in Aquarius. And of course, not forgetting that Mars, Venus, Neptune, and Jupiter are all lined up over there in Pisces. Because I want that's, you know, that's important for us to uh, weave into the picture of what is going on now. Yeah? And of course for today's mantra. Uh, Mercury does come along in sextile Jupiter by next Tuesday. Um, and by then the moon 
has uh, moved into Pisces. So we'll have uh, five planets in Pisces. Super, super powerful. So let me just find a nice place to uh, sit and look at the camera and share some astrology with you. Hola, everybody! Another week, another Pele report. You might think that there was a little bit of a break or something going on with no major aspects, but I don't think that there is a break as long as we are here together on planet Earth doing one thing after another, creating karma, cleaning karma, chasing dharma. (laughs) Whoosh! I I really want to talk so much today about, I got to say that uh, you would think, and a lot of astrologers would interpret, Jupiter conjunct Neptune, both very strong in the sign of Pisces, as being art, music, dance, poetry, retreats, imagination, uh, you know, colors and rainbows and fairies and dreams. And <laughs> and I have actually had the blues. I mean, it has been a bit of a, uh, a disturbing, challenging, uh, emotional week because, you know, Neptune also has to do with disillusionment, showing us our illusions. Pisces, this last sign of the zodiac, has to do with resolution, surrender, letting go, ending of the cycle. Neptune's a 165-year cycle. This is uh, this is the big let go. Jupiter is big. Neptune is let go. This is the big let go. I've been really running through my head, well, you know, what is this letting go? And, you know, what to let go of? And and we also understand the Pisces-Virgo axis is the healing axis. And I've been thinking a lot about this healing and, and what is healing and what is healing about? Uh, and uh, can we really heal each other? Or do each one of us need to heal ourselves? There's uh, a lot in today's uh, Sabian symbol that is for the third quarter square moon, which has to do with breaking free into a liberated consciousness and sometimes a crisis involved with that, as we can look at in today's mantra. There is, we have a choice We have lots of choices. In fact, every moment is a choice. Every thought is a choice. Every act is a choice. And we're really, there's a lot of them coming on. Another aspect of Jupiter-Neptune is overwhelm. Pisces is a sign of, you know, sensitivity to the subtle psychic energies of a spiritual nature. Mars, Venus, Jupiter, Neptune, all in Pisces. This is a psychically sensitive time. So I've been feeling it's hard to distinguish between what I'm picking up in this collective unconscious and, you know, what is actually my own sorrow, my own grief, my own need to let go of. So we can all, and this, it's kind of a confusing time 
<laughs> Pisces, Pisces, you know, I mean, Neptune rules confusion because it's multi-dimensional, five, six, seven, thirteen dimensions impressing themselves within the three and they don't fit into three. So they upset the status quo. It upsets, it confuses the mind. You know, it's like our ego mind, our our ego third dimensional linear logical rational thinking just cannot conceive of all this, you know, spiritual subtle energy, frequency, vibration, synchronicity, all the ah, all the spiritual setups that are happening on a moment by moment basis. It's mind blowing. And this is where we need to go out of our mind into our intuition, into our heart, into love, and not so much, we, we, there are things we cannot figure out. And we're, we're being confronted, we're being faced with a lot of that right now. Yeah? So, the other point that I really wanted to point out is that yes, you know, we think of Pisces and the infinite potential infinite spirit and liken it to the ocean. Neptune, Poseidon, was the god of the oceans. The ocean of oneness. The law of one where there's no separation. There is only union and the love which joins us all together. It's a very beautiful, perfect picture, isn't it? It's very ideal. It's heaven. Heaven's gate. And we look at Neptune as a portal. Neptune is the portal in your chart, in your natal chart, and by transit, where we can like squeeze through into nirvana, into samadhi. But how do we do that is the question. <laughs> and, you know, how temporary is it? And when do we really know we're there versus, you know, uh, some kind of an illusion? or self-deception. These are the tricks that I want to talk to you about today. And the other aspect of that is also that we can look at the ocean of oneness as before we got here. Humanity, that is. Remember, maybe some of us remember our past lives when the oceans were pure, clean, natural. There were no artificial chemicals or plastic bags or bottles or uh, pharmaceutical mess, <laughs> oil, polluting and diluting the natural ocean of oneness. Well, also consider that this is a as above, so below, as without, so within. The physical oceans mirror the collective unconscious. And through the course of history, everything that we have discarded from the conscious, whatever we deny, avoid, suppress, ignore, waste, not use, it's like, yeah, I want to eat this taco, but I don't need the wrapper. I'm just going to throw it away. 
Yeah? Think of this in, you know, these, in terms of thoughts, feelings, beliefs. We pick and choose which ones we want. And we throw the others, where do they go? Into the collective unconscious. So just as the oceans are polluted, the collective unconscious is also polluted with man-made beliefs. And like I say in today's mantra, everything from love to hate is in this pool, this ocean of the collective unconscious. And so it is up to us now to pick and choose. So let me read to you. This is just like so. I mean, I could talk about this Sabian symbol for hours, man. I don't know how long you're going to listen to the Bailey Report. <laughs> this is so. I got to say, this is probably one of the most powerful ones I've seen. A Hindu yogi demonstrates his healing powers. The keynote is the disciplined use of spiritual energies in restoring natural harmony disturbed by man's inharmonic attempts to transcend nature through mind. You might want to replay this because I'm just going to read through the whole thing, but it's a lot to unpack. Civilization implies a process of transcending compulsive and rigid biological drives, urges, <laughs> while making use in a refined and mentalized way of what it cannot control. The goal of a true civilization, Western civilization being to a large extent a caricature of it, is the development of a humanity composed of self-motivated and responsible individuals freely associating according to harmonic patterns in order to produce a vast spiritual cord of consciousness fully actualizing the potentialities inherent in the archetype Humanity. The process of individualization and civilization is full of dangers. And for a very long time, it is obsessed by karmic shadows. The results of individual and collective deviations and perversions. Such results most often lead to disease. It is the spiritual duty of individuals 
who have been able to tap the vast reservoir of spiritual forces pervading our planet to use these energies for healing their less fortunate comrades. This refers to a technique which not only can be used for the healing of physical illnesses, but for the making whole of whatever has lost its natural root integration and has not yet reached the holistic state of perfect harmony and identification with the divine whole. Self-discipline, purity of motive, compassion, faith in the divine order are required. And, in capital letters, the focusing of spiritual energy. You know, you can download the PDF, you can read it, you can copy-paste it, you know, off of my website, uh, because that is something that I want to read over and over again. <laughs> there is so much in it. But it makes me really look at and contemplate this notion of healing, particularly when we have Saturn and Aquarius squaring the moon's nodes in Taurus and Scorpio. And we have Mercury, Uranus conjunct the north node in Taurus. Taurus is about self-sufficiency. Scorpio is about merging soulmate, soul union, alchemical transformation through relationship. The south node in Scorpio is actually calling us to break patterns of codependency. And it just brings to mind the quote of physician, heal thyself. And just really, how much are we able to heal each other? I think of the healing power of love. I think of counseling, of therapy, of astrology chart readings. I mean, I've always wanted to use astrology as a healing tool. And so I think becoming more conscious of the unconscious brings an inner awareness and a wholeness that goes from the mind down into the etheric body and the astral body down into the physical body. And, and, and integration and, and wholeness is holistic healing is about balancing all of the seven chakras and integrating them and being able to pull up what needs to be pulled up and put down or put away or, you know, release what needs to be put down, put away and released when it's called for. This idea of healing other people, I mean, I feel like 
and I, you can have your own opinion on this. I'm interested in the comments, you know. Can anybody really heal anybody else? I think that we can be fertilizer. I think that we can shower our love and forgiveness and compassion and understanding and, and you know, awareness and give that to other people. But they are the seed. They are the, the plant. They are the individual. This north node in Taurus is saying, I need to learn how to love myself unconditionally regardless of what other people say, do, want, demand, expect. It's really, you know, it's up to me to do my own work and make my own choices. So, you know, we are really being thrown onto ourselves, into ourselves. Just look at this. This bullshit with the masks. You know, this bullshit with stand, you know, two meters apart, six feet apart, little spots on the floor, you know, so you can't get too close to anybody. This social distancing crap that's going on all over the world. Hiding our, you know, hiding behind a muzzle. Not talking, you know, it's like external, you know, sources. It's And, and, and this is like, it is a spiritual setup. Lockdown. Isolation. Do your inner work. Alone. Taurus can be lonely. This moving in, out of Scorpio. Sex, love, rock and roll, passion, emotion, water, feeling, down onto Taurus. <laughs> you know. Coming into my own. And yet I think about it, you know, if you, you know, if you fall off a rock and break your arm, you can go to the hospital and a doctor will set your arm, put you in a cast, you know, and, and well, again, even then it's helping you heal. But even your bones need to, with scar tissue, reconnect. So I don't know. I mean, I think we can help each other heal, but here we have in the Sabian symbol, a yogi actually demonstrating healing powers. And I remember reading the autobiography of a yogi, you know, uh, and there's miracles. I mean, just read the Bible. You've got Jesus Christ not only healing people with a look or a touch of his hand or whatever, you know, but raising them from the dead. So, I don't know, there, obviously there is a higher level of <laughs> existence, awareness, soul power that I have not achieved. <laughs> and I must be talking from my limited perception. But I haven't met anybody, I, you know, who has, I don't know, you tell me. Has somebody healed you? Or has somebody helped you heal yourself? Yeah. 
So this is where the mantra comes in. This is where, again, Saturn is choices and decisions. Mercury, Mercury square Saturn, tough choices, tough decisions. Mercury conjunct the north node of the moon, receiving communications of a karmic nature, leading us towards our future destiny and making choices and decisions, having conversations, having illuminating and lightning awarenesses and shocking like revelations that reveal where we need to go in order to release, let's look at it in terms also of emotions, guilt, shame, sorrow, sadness, betrayal, abandonment. Look at these deep emotional wounds that we want to heal. You know, that, that, you know, this is the emer emerging out of Scorpio into Taurus. And I think that we can, you know, like I say, we can be fertilizer for each other, but we really need to choose our own. We, we, with our free will, we choose our own. We make our own destiny. And with that, I want to leave you with this week's song. I believe in the good things coming. Believe in the good things coming. Believe in the upside of Jupiter, Neptune. Believe in the upside of Venus in Pisces, Mars in Pisces. The sign of the unity and oneness of all life. So today's mantra really is about within the vast ocean of potential, that is Pisces, yes, infinite potential, all exists from love to hate. I now choose to focus upon that which leads to heaven's gate. Good one to repeat through this week, not only through this week, but through this Pisces season. <laughs> Mars is in there for a few more, you know, weeks. Venus, a few more weeks. Jupiter's moving on pretty quick. But, yeah, we really choose what to dwell on, what to meditate on, what to fight or confront or let go of. You know, it, we need to really exercise our free will at this time and choose the highest. Yeah, baby. Ow! <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. For each other and for ourselves, for our relationships, for the world, whatever. Within the vast ocean of potential, all exists from love to hate. I now choose to focus upon that which leads to heaven's gate. May we all meet together at the portal, the Neptunian portal of Heaven's Gate. <laughs> <laughs>
I'll see you there. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. got this week. Saturn's moving from uh, 24 Aquarius to 25 Aquarius, and Pluto is not really moving at all. Uh, Mars moves from 7 tonight in Pisces to up to 13 degrees by next Saturday. Venus moves from 21 degrees tonight to 29 so if you've got if you've got something in that in that zone from 23 to 29 of a water sign you're, you you should have might have some interesting it's a it's a season for message reception right we think of the water signs as uh Psychic. We've got, uh, you know, uh, Jupiter is only moving one degree from 27 to 28 Pisces. And Neptune's not really moving. It's going to stick at 25 Pisces. But the sun will go from 4 degrees Taurus to 11 degrees. Taurus, and that's where the new moon's going to be next Saturday, earlier in the day. Uranus doesn't move, it's going to stick at 15, and Mars moves from uh, 24, Taurus, tonight, to one degree Gemini next Saturday night. And uh, I don't know, the, the sensitive points are Water signs and earth signs, not so much your air and fire signs, except for that good old Chiron, you know, in, uh, like smack in the middle of Aries. So, uh, anyway, that's your report for the coming week, my friends, and let's uh, see what... Uh, Miss Tanya's got on her mind for tonight. Okay. (laughs) Taurus Solar Eclipse.
Hello there, it's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the Astro Numerology Forecast Podcast, and today we're going to look at the Taurus Solar Eclipse. We've entered eclipse season, and the energy is really changing now. There's a lot of change in the air, and we're going to go over why that is in terms of the codes and the planets involved, but also the incredible nature of this eclipse in terms of fortunate energy that's being released so that we can tune in to our heart center and not feel the pressure of the mind as much, the mind that holds memories and basically is the past, right? The mind is is not your intuition. It is not present in the divine moment. And this eclipse is so beautiful in that it enables us to be in that present moment so that all we feel is the magic and miracles of being alive and the gratitude in our heart for being here available energetically for the major shift that obviously is happening worldwide. So this is a partial solar eclipse happening on April 30th in Taurus and the time is at 9.28 p.m. Universal Time, that would be London, 4.28 p.m. Eastern Time New York and 1.28 p.m. Pacific Time LA. Now all this year, the eclipses are taking place in either Taurus or Scorpio. Scorpio is where the south node is and Taurus the north node. So Taurus is pointing the way of where we are heading. So this is a very important new beginnings moment. And it's helped by the fact that we have the sun and moon at 10 degrees, which is the number of instant manifestation, love and light, new beginnings, 10 reduces to one, and is happening on April 30th, the final day of April, and April in 2022 is a 10 universal month. So we've got a triple 10 code signifying incredible opportunity. When you think of that one and zero, straight line and circle, make up sacred geometry, the computer code. It is literally the code of the universe, the God code, which is why 10 is also sometimes called the wheel of fortune, because it literally represents the constant evolvement of life, the wheel that just continues forever and ever. So we have this amazing activation of that number 10, the first double digit number and the number that contains the zero point energy and the new beginnings energy, the divine feminine and the masculine. So very fortunate indeed. Now, Taurus and Scorpio are fixed signs and fixed signs are set in their ways. They're very grounded energetically and they allow us to really get in touch with those things that have been fixed, meaning part of our habitual patterns. So when these eclipses come in these fixed signs, we are being asked to actually move boulders and clear the way for new beginnings. So this 10-10-10 code, which also speaks to new beginnings, is assisting us in the clearing out energy. And once we get to the Scorpio component of the eclipses, that 
water sign, water sign and fixed sign will really help to flush out those fixed ideas and whatever it is that keeps you in a rut and doesn't allow you to be strong yet flexible at the same time. So that will very much be addressed as well this year. So it's a very big year to acclimate and get in tune with what it is you've held on for dear life, like been fixed, fixated on, obsessed. You know, Scorpio can be obsessive and Taurus can be very stubborn. So there is this sense of the eclipse is coming in and saying, okay, we are now digging this up. We're looking at it and we're allowing ourselves to embark on a new way of being that is actually more in tune with the earthiness and the flow of the water, Scorpio and, and Taurus, rather than putting a stake in the ground and saying, this is how it's, how it is come hell or high water, basically. So the numerology code, the 101010 is very helpful with that. And the other numerology code that's super helpful is that the date, April 30th, 2022, adds up to 13. Now 13 is the number of the divine feminine. It is about life, death, rebirth, transformation, certainly acceptance of change. 13 governs the 13 weeks in a season connected to the lunar cycles and the 13 lunations in the year. And 13, therefore, is connected to Earth. And 1 plus 3 for 13 reduces to 4. And 4 is the numerological representation of our planet Earth. We have four directions. We have four seasons. We have four hemispheres. And so having the number 13 and 4 be activated for this first solar eclipse in Taurus, which is an Earth sign, is very, very good news, especially because Taurus is ruled by Venus. Venus is all about appreciating beauty and peace and pleasure and abundance. And Venus, as we're going to go into in a minute, is merged with Jupiter, they're literally exactly conjunct each other for this solar eclipse, which, I mean, it couldn't be better. (laughs) This is why it's such a fortunate time. So you really, with Taurus, want to focus on those things that keep you grounded, your values, your sense of what fulfills you, right, what brings you joy and happiness, financial flow to make sure you have that energetic exchange with the earth, with others, so that there is a balance in your life, so you are sustained and have security. All of those qualities are ruled by Taurus. So you don't need anything. You don't need attachments, demands, words directed at others you realize that you are the universe itself, that there's nothing that comes between you and the universe because that's who you are. The universe lives within you. So this acceptance, this is really the new beginnings, right? We have this such a strong new beginnings energy. And so this acceptance means that you're 
intuitive nature is very, very much enhanced. So let's look at why that is in the stars as well. The sun and moon are conjunct Uranus. Uranus is at 14 degrees Taurus, very close to the 10 degrees solar eclipse in Taurus. And Uranus gives you a lot of intuitive gifts, a sense of freedom, a freeing up of old patterns, especially patterns connected to how you relate to others and financial flow. So Taurus, where Uranus is and has been since 2018, is looking at, well, what are those values that I am nourishing that may not be for my highest good? What is it that I can change now in terms of how I think about things or who I surround myself with or what I surround myself with in my environment? Is there beauty? Is there upliftment? Is there love? Is there pleasure? Is there connection with nature or, you know, Taurus is an earth sign. So the appreciation of Mother Earth is absolutely part of living a life of flow. Now, then there's also the activation and action setting quality of Mars because Mars is creating a triple sextile. Mars is in Pisces along with Jupiter, Venus, and Neptune. So there are four planets in Pisces, and Pisces is very harmoniously connected to Taurus. So we have Mars saying, okay, triple sextile to Sun, Moon, and Uranus. That is a huge, activating, passion-generating, forward-propelling, firing up of the engines to get with it, to really say, okay, It's my time. When else is it going to, is it going to be my time? These eclipses always are shedding light on what it is that is needing to be understood and uh, fired up and let go of and accepted. So here we are, a new moon eclipse, new beginnings, 10, 10, 10, Mars, the planet that rules the first sign of the zodiac, creating a triple sextile to the eclipse the sun and moon, and to Uranus, the ruler of the Aquarian age. There is so much here to get excited about. And then there's another triple conjunction. There's not just sun, moon, and Uranus. There is Jupiter, Venus, and Neptune. Jupiter and Venus, tight conjunction, absolutely fantastic. Venus rules Taurus, so Venus rules the eclipse. So such good fortune here, such expansion, such joy, pleasure, And then there comes Neptune as well. Neptune and Jupiter just had their rare conjunction. That's rare to begin with. Every 166 years it happens in Pisces. So to have Venus join this rare conjunction of Jupiter and Neptune is even more stunning, especially during a Taurus solar new moon eclipse. Why is this also important? Well, not only does Venus rule this eclipse Taurus, Venus is part of this stellium, Jupiter is the ancient ruler of Pisces. Neptune is the current ruler, the modern ruler of Pisces. And the stellium is happening in Pisces. So we've got every way you can activate these planets that actually is possible. All of these planets are happy in Pisces. Venus is exalted in Pisces. That means Venus feels super happy in Pisces. And that means that the qualities of love and romance and harmony 
and oneness and unity and extrasensory perception, enhanced imagination, transcendental understanding, just feeling transcendence and feeling blissful and feeling divinity, feeling your own divinity, feeling your soul connection to source. All of these are activated. And one more thing, I mentioned Mars earlier, and Mars is actually at 11 degrees in Pisces, and 11 is the gateway, the double new beginnings gateway, the portal, the initiation into the unknown, the being present in the moment, your, you know, the ones are like your antenna to the universe, your intuition, being so immersed in the present moment that you have no thought for tomorrow and no attachment to the past. So Mars is activating this wonderful new beginnings energy, not just by being the ruler of the first sign, but being at 11 degrees and helping your dreams come true because Mars is in Pisces, the other stellium, Jupiter, Venus, and Neptune is in Pisces. And so this ability to tap into your inner core strength with Taurus and to, in an unwavering way, know that in the midst of these big changes, you always will be taken care of. And at the same time, being open to the frequency of transcendent shifts, this is really where gratitude comes in because you're allowing the tears to literally nourish the ground that you're standing on, the tears of joy the tears of sadness. The tears of sadness represent letting go of an attachment to something, an attachment that is actually a hang-up because when you're attached to anything, you are, you're a little bit stuck in the eddy of the stream, of the river, and getting out of the eddy allows you to flow with the river again. So there is so much here about taking those steps forward with the new beginnings energy, being patient, being non-judgmental, relying on your inner resources. These are all Taurian energies, riding the wave of change and the river of transformation. And just to remember that there's really no one or nothing that you need. All you need is to enjoy the light within you. Then you're connected. You're plugged in. (laughs) And it's not to say you're not plugged in all the time. It's just we forget to turn the light on where we actually are partaking in the delight of it all, right? So It's to literally consciously plug in and consciously be aware of everything that is there at our disposal. All the people, all the opportunities, our surroundings, and most of all, our ability to co-create, to be appreciative, to be at one, to be the universe. And to accept that we are all part of creation. We accept all of creation 
We don't judge any part of creation. We live as a creative being of light. And we allow others to do the same because they are, after all, part of us. So this is a tremendous gathering of planetary energies, celestial geometry, numerology codes, all wrapped into this beautiful package and tied with the gorgeous bow of Venus and Jupiter and Neptune conjunct. Really, I couldn't be better. And it is just one of those moments to appreciate being alive at this time and getting out in nature and celebrating with Mother Earth. In the same way you can celebrate your own numerology and astrology code, which you can easily do in my free masterclass at starcodeclass.com. So if you haven't seen it, there's a free handout. It's a 90-minute webinar, and it tells you all about your birthday, your astrology code, what your gifts are, your destiny, your purpose, and it helps you understand others as well so you are not in judgment of them. So enjoy that at starcodeclass.com and have a beautiful Taurus new moon solar eclipse. Lots of love. Talking stick to you, Richard. Thank you, sir. I have picked uh, the degree of the new moon, 12 Taurus, from the Sabian symbols. Oh, good. So we got, yeah, we have a young couple window shopping. I remember going window. I remember going window shopping once upon a time. The keynote here is the fascination of the youthful ego with the product of its culture, and we know how that works here in the states. You know, get those Nikes or whatever. You know. The woman waters flowers in her garden. This is the inward-turned attention of the mind reveling in its own flowering. But now we have a scene symbolizing the outward longing of the ego, which has polarized itself and become man-woman. The man aspect is that part of the ego which craves direct participation with society and the world of other egos. Fully to participate requires a special kind of substantiation, which I think is the theme for the first half of Taurus. And we are still in this third scene, the key word of which is substantiation, yes. 
clothes, goods of various types, adornment, and working tools are needed. The consciousness surveys possibilities. They are defined by organic nature, parenthesis, personal abilities, and by the ambition to succeed in society. And I guess the previous one here was a woman watering flowers in her garden. Yes, development of the powers of the, of the mind on which ego consciousness is based. So this this springtime here, this full moon here, is the youth, that would be your Zoomers, under 28, with the products of our current culture, or whatever culture the youngster happens to be a part of. So what are they going to do? They're going to go out and spend. They're going to spend it on stuff. As opposed to services. Well, you know, I listen to a lot of economics news, you know. It's about the only thing I listen to anymore. And they they talk about that, you know, what the uh, COVID shutdown did and people's... uh, with money spending more on products, fix up the house, etc., and because they couldn't travel much, you know. Now it's you know it's kind of switching back here, and people then shut in, and now they're spending their their they're spending their bucks on travel, and of course the airlines are still screwing people all over the place, you know. But anyway, that's the world tonight. <laughs> and that's the way it is. Is that Cron- Cronkite? You didn't say that? Uh-huh. Remember old Walter Cronkite back, back when we were kids? Yeah. I got to work in Walter Cronkite's news studio in Chicago for a while when I was in college. Richard. Uh-huh. You were a gopher? Yes, I go for I was. <laughs> All right. Well, enjoy your week, everybody. It's been warm and sunny here. I bought a six-pack of tomato plants, and I I got me some good dirt from the yard, and I put a big pile in the wheelbarrow, and then I just pulled them out of their little plastic container and stuck them in the dirt there, so I'll let them develop their roots before I put them in their permanent place. Mm-hmm. And I got the, the row, double row for the beans. I got that all weeded this week. So uh, but I'm going to wait until the 1st of May to plant the beans, let the, let the dirt warm up a little bit. Yeah. And I wish you all well. Have a, have a good week in spite of the chaos and all the stupid humans out there. Namaste. Namaste, Richard. Yeah. Let it be, everyone. Let it be that the human race takes heed to the words of wisdom. Let it be. Richard doesn't know exactly the whole story about Mr. Putin, but... 
It'll all come to light of day. There's a whole bunch of people that don't know. What, Rama? Yes, okay, Mama, you can give the conference call numbers. Yes, sir. 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. All right, there we go, everyone. And so we'll spend an hour together on the conference call. Come and join us. And then we'll be at the very top of this next hour. We'll be right back here with BBS Radio, best radio in the universe, as I keep saying. Join us. Join us. See you in an hour here at BBS Radio and Join us on the conference. Big hugs, everyone. Namaste. Thank you, Rama. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back. Oh, my goodness. We have a full, a full plate Mm. of transformation going on here all over the world, everyone. It is Phenomenal. What's going on? Mm. Um, <laughs> so here we are. Uh, what do we like here? Um, um, what shall we do next? The portals. What, the one about the portals? Yes, how sacred sites connect with... How sacred sites connect with the infinite. Okay, this is 53 minutes and it's our best friend ever, it's Freddie Silva. Okay, here we go. When NASA scientists found, quote, magnetic portals linking the Earth to the sun... Unquote. Little did they know they were validating what ancient texts had claimed all along. You know, the Faction Three White Knights have been telling Rama every other day there's another portal opening up from the in the sun. Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about here. Okay, so again. As NASA scientists found magnetic portals linking the Earth to the sun, little did they know they were validating what ancient texts had claimed all along, that temples and power places are stargates connected by electromagnetic umbilical cords to distant parts of the cosmos. Oh, they're talking... He's talking about portals down here. That's right. Connecting to other cosmic places, distant cosmic. Okay. Uh, that's, that's been being told about too. Yes. With examples, the, especially that Stonehenge boy. Yeah. That's a portal and a half. I read the day Rama's getting uh, a snapshot from Sweet Angelique or somebody that just went there for sunrise again. With examples from around the world, author and researcher Freddie Silva 
discusses the amazing scientific discoveries of energy measured at sacred sites and how these extraordinary temples were designed to take your consciousness on a shamanic ride to places you never thought possible. All right, let's just do it. It's 53 Mm. minutes, as we said. Perfect, Mama. Let's do this one. Every part of this earth is sacred to our people. Being physically separated by hundreds of miles of features. Come it was way down the I'm not sure. I'm gonna redo it here. Yeah. No, you've got to take it and push it back from the from from the where where it is. You got to push it. Chalkiri, lead to spiritual. No, you got to. No, it's not going to work that way. Um, yes, that. I think you got to push it all the way back from the where it is out there. You're going to be sitting there another month of Sundays. know what I mean well push it from the where it where it is so somehow and then push it all the way back well you can't do it th- oh there you go okay push it back now no, push it from there push it all the way back from there. that's what I was doing right there yeah there you go Okay. Now, magic fairies, please help us start at the beginning. That's what I'm going to do this. Uh-oh. Why is it doing that all the time? I'm not sure. If you know how. The Jankiri leads to spiritually important. This is ha- We're having a little glitch in the road, everybody.
Patience is a virtue. I don't think you can have it where you just had it. It's got to pee on the... Is that the right place for it to start? Yes. Maybe if you go up there and make some little circles around what the center is, it'll listen to your machine. Oh, my goodness. human history, an extraordinary opening in space and time connecting thoughts, dreams, possibly objects and people with distant points in the universe in a brief moment of time. Has science finally discovered what wisdom keepers knew 11,000 years ago? In 2008, scientists at NASA made an extraordinary announcement. They discovered how a network of portals open every eight minutes, linking the Earth to the Sun. These electron diffusion regions, or X-points, are places where the Earth's magnetic field connects to the Sun, creating an uninterrupted flow of particles between two stellar bodies, perhaps even further. Some X-points are small and brief, but others are vast and sustained. They are typically located a few thousand miles above the Earth, where the geomagnetic field interacts with the solar wind. Is this what ancient writers described in one of India's most sacred texts? How this energy is also linked to a terrestrial force? If these magnetic portals extend to Earth, could they be linked to places where ancient architects constructed extraordinary temples where similar electromagnetic phenomena are known to occur? And if so, does it explain why sacred places such as Chichen Itza, Teotihuacan, and Edfu live up to the claim by their creators that they were built as stargates? for transforming an ordinary person into a god, into a bright star. The simplest way to imagine the portals discovered by the NASA probe is to think of them as invisible tubes. And these tubes are magnetic, and every so often they attract each other to create a doorway in space and time between planets. Uh, They might even go beyond the solar system and connect with distant stars. We shall see. 
And physicists called these events X-points because when they were analyzing images taken by the Polar spacecraft in the 1990s, they looked like an X. And all it took to find these magnetic hotspots was a properly equipped spacecraft orbiting the Earth. You know, with, with technology advancing so rapidly, we finally have the tools required to locate and visualize these phenomena. And suddenly, what once was considered science fiction, even myth, uh, is now fact. The funny thing is, all this was obvious to ancient cultures, who were more connected to nature, and thus far more experienced in the art of making accurate observations about the way it behaves, even if the processes are invisible to the eye. The importance of NASA's discovery is how it repeats, albeit in modern language, uh, what the authors of extremely ancient texts such as the Yayu Veda, were describing over 10,000 years ago. And whenever ancient writers wished to convey a concept that was difficult for the average person to grasp, they were often employed metaphors, uh, particularly the use of animal imagery. So serpents, dragons, or snakes were typically drafted into service whenever it was necessary to describe earth energy. What science calls a telluric current because the, uh, the, they clearly understood how this force slivers along the ground and through the surface of the earth and keeps rising up into the sky beyond the atmosphere and then further and further out into space. In southern India, they refer to this energy as the arrows of sorcerers. A uh, sorcerer being a person who harnesses natural forces to connect with the source of creation. And such people in the Middle East were called the Magi, from whom we get the term magician. It's worth pointing out that the ancient Chinese, Mayan, and Egyptian symbols for magician resemble the X points above the Earth discovered by NASA. And these people were, were sensitive. They felt this energy to be all around. And all one has to do is feel it, understand it, and then you guide it for all manner of useful purposes, such as healing or personal attuning or shamanism, even the levitation of massive rocks used in megalithic temples. Of course, the, the, you know, the opposite is also true. Uh, it can be used to create all manner of havoc. Uh, energy is just energy. It doesn't care one way or the other until it is interacted with and directed by our focused intent, uh, which in itself is also a packet of energy. Which is why knowledge of this kind was only divulged to the few. Typically people who gave up several years of their daily lives to join a mystery school. And then, only if you were deemed responsible enough to use the information properly and for the common good. And that's what separated the few from the many. If people in remote antiquity already understood, harnessed and took advantage of Earth energy, did they mark its location for less sensitive people to find and experience? It has always been said that ancient temples and megalithic sites were built for the single purpose of creating a meeting point between gods and mortals. A location where the veil between worlds is thinner, allowing for mystical experiences 
as well as the experience of realities beyond our own. When we examine the origins of sacred space, uh, it is becoming more clear with every new discovery that it seems to have emerged somewhere in or around the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and the art of temple making, uh, that is the concept of locating an energy hotspot and reinforcing it with a sacred structure, uh, it appears to have migrated westwards towards Europe. Uh, let's take the dolmen, for example. That simple, harmonious structure of balanced stones, ubiquitous throughout Europe. Its earliest known origins lie in Japan and Korea. In fact, the Korean peninsula is, is home to the greatest concentration of dolmens anywhere in the world. In Japan, it began life as a gateway made from two wooden poles connected by a rope stretched between them. And it was called a tori. And the rope was later replaced by a wooden cross piece extending beyond the poles. Now the tori was said to mark the gate to an abode of the gods. And the more durable version became the dolmen, whose name comes from Korean. Uh, its approximate translation is the stone of the shaman, uh, a shaman being a mediator between what is seen and what is unseen. And the point to remember here is that the, in the old traditions, a god was not necessarily an individual. It was a force of nature. So to connect with the gods was to engage with elemental forces that make the universe tick. And principal among these forces is magnetism, which is concentrated at megalithic structures such as stone circles and menhirs. In Scotland and Northern England, scientists studying these sacred places discovered that the average intensity of the geomagnetic field within stone circles has been found to be significantly lower than that measured outside, as though the stones act as a force field. Scientists often report tubes of light and other electromagnetic phenomena interacting with the stones and how the stones emit an ultrasonic hum just before sunrise, the time when the Earth's electromagnetic field is at its most potent. Needles on electrical equipment go off the scale when crossing the perimeter of stone circles at this time of day. Another well-explored area of ancient temples is the Morbihan region of northwestern France. Here lies the world's greatest megalithic metropolis. In its heyday, it resembled a forest of stone. A survey conducted at the end of the 19th century revealed the concentration of over 40,000 megaliths, mounds, stone avenues, menhirs, dolmens, and other sacred sites. Yet this figure only represents what remains after centuries of church-sponsored destruction, which encouraged the systematic wrecking of monuments and stones and temples, and their use as building material. Entire villages were constructed from the temples. Many now lie beneath the ocean, or on islands cut off from the mainland due to rising sea levels 5,000 years ago. Around the village of Karnak, one of four surviving avenues consists of 4,000 stones arranged in 13 parallel lines and up to a mile long. They begin and end in egg-shaped stone circles and stand on deposits of water 
but the air is easily ionized. The height of the stones increases from 2 feet to as much as 13 the closer they get to their respective circles. What did ancient architects have in mind? An electrical engineer by the name of Pierre Moreau conducted an exhaustive study of the Karnak monuments and he found that every stone serves a deliberate function in the processing of energy. And his analysis shows how the dolmens amplify and release telluric energy throughout the day, uh, again with the strongest readings occurring around dawn. And the voltage and magnetic variations that he measured actually follow a scientific phenomenon known as electric induction. So a dolmen behaves like a coil or a solenoid in which the currents are induced and provoked by variations of the local magnetic field. And yet these phenomena uh, are not produced with any intensity unless the stones are rich in quartz, such as granite, which of course they are. And it helps explain why the megaliths were quarried and transported from so far away. The readings he took reveal an energy that pulsates at regular intervals from around the base of the stones. And these pulses are both positively and negatively charged. So on paper, they actually resemble the ripples in a pond spreading out over 36 feet away from the upright stones. And this is what I would term the stone's aura. So whereas you and I see the physical boundary of the stone, its true size, energetically speaking, is over four times in diameter. But what Miro also found was that these pulsations recycle approximately every 70 minutes. And it demonstrates how the stones, and particularly the menhirs, charge and discharge on a regular basis. He also observed how the stone circles concentrate energy like a condenser, and the dolmens behave like electrical coils. But the best part of the story is, Moreau was a skeptic. He refused to believe that any of these uh, structures, uh, they serve any purpose whatsoever. It was all, you know, pagan spiritual mumbo-jumbo. But, you know, in the end, he proved himself wrong and validated what we had known all along. And that is that these monuments give physical shape to this invisible energy that not only flows along the Earth, but also interacts with the pulsating magnetic field out in space. As to the placement of stones... The architects could have made life easier for themselves by erecting them beside the quarry 60 miles from Karnak, but they didn't. Instead, they chose this exact location because it lies in direct relationship to hotspots of terrestrial magnetism. This is also referenced by the direction in which the stones are oriented, creating a unique interface between Earth and sky, a stargate. Just to add another layer to the energy connection between the side and the sky, uh, these structures were aligned to specific stars. Uh, they even mirrored entire constellations. Uh, the most well-known, of course, are the three Giza pyramids that mirror Orion on the spring solstice in 10,500 BC. Some are lesser known, such as Kenko in Peru, whose megaliths are deliberately placed. Uh, even the entire bedrock outcrop has been shaped and angled so that Venus and Sirius can be referenced ascending the horizon at the same time some 6,000 years ago. So 
So this created a direct visual association with the temple, and it served to attract the perceived qualities of those sky objects, so that they in turn transferred their qualities to the temple to the benefit of anyone who attended the sites at certain times of the year. And all this really goes way above and beyond their supposed function as mere calendars. I mean, you can achieve the same effect by propping up a bunch of sticks on your front lawn and marking the passage of the sun and the moon. These additional relationships with their labor intensity and time consumption suggest a link to faraway heavenly bodies was not just a, a visual exercise, there was also a direct benefit to be gained from the interaction between a person, the temple, and the star. A large-scale experiment to prove ancient sacred sites interact with subtle energy was conducted in southern England at the world's largest stone circle, Avebury as well as one of its most famous, Stonehenge. Electrodes planted in and around these hinge monuments reveal how the ditches break the transmission of telluric ground current and conduct its electricity into the ditch, concentrating it and releasing it at the entrance to the site at twice the rate of the surrounding land. This led to the realization that stone circles even mounds like nearby Silbury Hill behave like concentrators of energy. Silbury is an artificial mound constructed on seven circular terraces using alternating layers of organic and inorganic material topped with a slope of chalk executed precisely at 60 degrees. The nature of the design allows it to behave like a natural battery soaking up the rising electromagnetic energy generated by the action of water percolating through the porous chalk soil below. The process is known to science as absorption. The second vortex of energy descends from the sky, making the summit a meeting place between mortal and divine, as anyone who climbs to the summit knows only too well. There have been many times when uh, visitors, including myself, uh, have stood on the summit and experienced the top half of the torso moving one way and the lower half the other way, as though reacting to two opposing vortices. And it can be discombobulating and hilarious at the same time. Uh, but it only happens at certain times of the month, uh, demonstrating how the hill releases the energy at regular intervals. And the phenomenon is accompanied by the manifestation of a whopping big ball of light that hovers above the summit for around 20 seconds. And I've been very lucky to see this on occasion, and it is well known to local farmers. This is one reason why the genuine crop circles began to appear around the periphery of Silbury Hill in the early 1980s. Uh, not to be confused with the man-made nonsense that came later to muddy the waters, so to speak. And when they were analyzed by scientists, it was found that these imprints appeared precisely along Silbury's energy field, the kind that Moreau uh, found surfing the stones of Karnak. And the crop circles also coincided with a path of local telluric currents that connected the hill. 
And more interestingly, it is it's how some 80 people from around the world have witnessed crop circles being made by a descending vortex of light. And I remember one farmer back in 1965 describing what he recalls watching the rain bouncing off this electromagnetic tube. And farmers don't talk like that. And we've also collected hundreds upon hundreds of reports from people who have experienced the, the very same changes in consciousness often described in ancient temples. And a fair amount of these people were skeptics. Well, uh, perhaps not so much now. I actually undertook a year-long experiment to map the energy field radiating from a mound not far from Silbury. And every two weeks, I visited the site. I measured the edge of the uh, and polarity of each ripple, and then plotted all of this on a computer. And uh, when assembled as a time-lapse sequence, you get this overhead view of a man-made structure that appears to breathe in and out. And when you see that you're interacting with living energy, with a living being, it really does bring these static places to life. There is a reference to this breath in, um, actually throughout the temples of Central America, uh, Palenque is a very good example. Some pyramids and buildings are marked with a T-shaped window to define the space as containing the breath of God. And there's a transcendental quality about these spaces, uh, more so than the others, uh, as though you really are inside a hollow tube stretching beyond the atmosphere. And coincidentally, they were often the very places that were used for learning a type of restricted knowledge. A mile to the north of Silbury lies Avery, a collection of two stone circles inside a third massive ring of stones. Surges in geomagnetic energy have been detected in the stones of the two avenues leading into the main stone circle, suggesting that, in their complete form, these winding causeways were placed on or aligned with areas rich in earth energy, which the stones conduct into the center of the site, much in the same way as they do in Karnak. Inside this temple, magnetic readings drop at night to a far greater level than can be accounted for under natural circumstances. At sunrise, they charge back, with the telluric current from the surrounding land attracted to the henge, just as magnetic fluctuations at the site reach their maximum. This reveals inasmuch why temple builders regarded the temple as a living organism that sleeps at night and awakens at dawn. Perhaps the way in which the stones are placed helps create this effect. One ingredient for which the stones of the temples were painstakingly chosen is magnetite. Uh, the stones are packed with it. And one of the scientists who uh, took magnetic readings of Avery's remaining 67 stones discovered that the magnetic south pole of each stone faces the next stone in line as you walk towards the circle. So this arrangement means that the north poles of the stones oppose the local geomagnetic field as though creating a conduit of energy. Now, inside Avery's two smaller stone circles, 
The south poles of all the stones pointed at the next stone in the circle in a clockwise direction, uh, with two exceptions. The entrance stones had their magnetic poles aligned at 90 degrees to their companions. So they align with the stones of the avenue leading into the circle rather than with those within the actual circle, which begins to make Avebury look like a group of aligned magnets. Essentially, its ancient designers uh, were following the same principle behind the modern atomic particle collider, in which airborne ions are steered in one direction. Perhaps the most important discovery at megalithic sites is the recurring action of how, just before dawn, an exterior force interacts with the local electromagnetic environment to create a link between the temple and the sky. It works like this. Every morning, the Earth is subjected to a rise in the solar wind, which intensifies the planet's geomagnetic field. At night, this field weakens, then picks up at dawn, and the cycle repeats. At this point, the geomagnetic field interacts with telluric currents flowing along the surface of the Earth. This intensifies its energy, which in turn is attracted to nearby sacred sites. These invisible roads of force travel better along soil with a high content of metal and water, and probably quartz. Where a boundary between two different types of geology occurs, the telluric current crossing it either reinforces or weakens the daily fluctuations of the local geomagnetic field. This generates a hot spot of energy called a conductivity discontinuity. And even though ancient people did not own state-of-the-art diagnostic equipment, they were able to locate such portals long before science built machines to prove them right. The Sioux of North America call this conductivity discontinuity. Uh, by a far more memorable name, uh, they refer to it as SCAN. And they say that when it concentrates at power places, it influences the mind and elevates personal power in the form of spiritual attuning. So in essence, the energy raises the human body's resonance. So when you visit and interact with many places of power, the energy builds up inside you. And this leads you to experience a numinous state of mind. You begin to feel a transcendence. You start to perceive the other world. And under the right conditions, in a very palpable way. One of the oldest spiritual practices comes from the Far East. Tao, the way of the gods, represents the underlying natural order of the universe. Although its qualities are ineffable, its energy is felt in ancient sacred sites. Practitioners of Tao were teaching this over 5,000 years ago. They claimed that a proper relationship with such places awakens the great human within. This culturally shared belief is what lies behind our need to go on pilgrimage. Before we created man-made temples to either enhance or replace the natural hotspots on the land, uh, ancient cultures located these portals and marked them with petroglyphs. And many of the symbols are a kind of shorthand describing the journey of the individual 
through the Stargate and what he or she learned during their out-of-body experience. And often it would be a, a cosmic truth or a revelation or a, a facet of the mechanics of nature. And these hotspots would eventually be superimposed with man-made structures so that when future generations lost the connection to the natural world and forgot how to access the portals directly, they would know where to find them. So the temples essentially became self-help centers, precursors to the Samaritans. And if you attend these places, natural or man-made, you will notice how similar they are in serenity and subtlety, because they are all essentially the same X points. They're all windows into the soul of the universe. Which brings us back to the symbol used to define this energy, the dragon or serpent, one of the most culturally shared symbols on Earth. It's my observation that the natural force that these people were working with, uh, it was meant to be harnessed for all manner of beneficial purposes. Uh, in the Far East, for example, dragons were not slain. Uh, rather, their electrical power was harnessed and maintained so it could be made useful. And this is one reason why the dragon became the logo of temporal power assigned to a magician or a sorcerer who in turn was called a son of heaven. Only a dragon that becomes unstable was considered dangerous and needs to be subdued by pinning it to the ground and transmuted. Uh, and there are many images of this earth acupuncture throughout sacred art. The emerging church in Europe would take this benevolent idea and turn it into a symbol of propaganda, with St. Michael killing the dragon which was meant to convey to people of the Middle Ages the very clear message that their old traditions were dead and their focus should now be directed to the worship of this new centralized religion, much to our loss, because this religion has nothing to do with connecting with the creative force. By its very nature, as a middleman, it serves to stop you experiencing the divine. And that's why you find the serpent carved on many ears and other stones. It demonstrates that the megaliths mark, anchor, and harness the energy already present at that location and makes it available to anyone. It's probably the only type of snake I've ever learned to like. There are places on the land where the veil between worlds is a little bit thinner. Ancient traditions describe them as resident places of the spirits, what Western scholars interpreted to be gods. They are repositories of energy, power places that help enlighten the individual by providing a more direct connection with an astral reference library. But they can also be used to store and send information. Some of the most lucid descriptions of working with Earth energy uh, comes from Aboriginal tribes living among featureless terrain, who are able to find their way around by sensing what they call Jalkidi, an invisible line of force. So when a tribesperson walks across such a spirit road, they will hear the resonance imprinted by those who walked before. So in a way, the Jalkidi behave like strips of magnetic tape, recording the song of every individual. And these dreaming tracks are imprinted with a permanent record of events. And it enables the Aborigine to walk enormous distances while listening to a data stream. And just like modern-day cloud computing, the information can be accessed on demand. 
if you know how. Did Chalkiri lead to spiritually important locations, despite each one being physically separated by hundreds of miles of featureless desert? During a study, it was found that when these spirit roads are used to figure out directions to non-sacred places, the margin of error is as high as 67%. But when using them to walk from sacred site to sacred site, the error is less than 3%. The magician shaman of the Aborigine have long used such energy pathways to locate the portals and standing in these invisible doorways, they're able to transmit information telepathically, which is then received as an image by another shaman sitting in a similar portal some distance away. Why waste money on a cell phone plan when you can use this subtle energy at will? Ancient cultures describe portals as increase centers, and the use of correct ritual inside them elicits a life force that intensifies the vitality of people. In Africa, the same stargates are called Baraka, while the Hopi call them the spots of the fawn. In New Mexico, the Tewa people still work with this energy on the sacred hill Sikumu. They call it Powaha, which they say provides a portal to the other world. Is this why some mountains became more sacred than others? You know, when you listen to A-type uh, He-Man mountain climbers talking in very spiritual terms about a sudden experience in the middle of a climb, it really pays to listen to what they're saying. And one of my favorite stories is by uh, Maurice Herzog, uh, when he was climbing the Annapurna, a holy mountain in Nepal. And he said, uh, I had the strangest and most vivid impressions, such as I had never known in the mountains. All sense of exertion was gone, as though there was no longer any gravity. I had never seen such complete transparency. And I was living in the world of crystal. Sounds were indistinct. The atmosphere was like cotton wool. There was an enormous gulf between me and the world. This was a different universe. We were overstepping a boundary. It's wonderful, isn't it? Uh, what many climbers are not aware of is that these hotspots uh, of these Pacific mountains also happen to be geomagnetic hotspots. This explains why so many mountain temples and shrines are placed in irrational and frankly dangerous locations. They represent the X that marks the spot a portal to a much higher frequency. The two most prominent uh, geomagnetic hotspots in Portugal just happen to coincide with the region's two most sacred mountains, uh, as well as its oldest and most concentrated Catholic centers. Uh, and these are in Monsanto, uh, literally sacred mountain, and Sintra, which is named for the Phoenician goddess of the moon. And here you will come across the most wondrous and remote temples. There are hermit caves, megaliths, even rock-cut tombs, which are far too shallow to bury a dead body, but very practical for temporary shamanic travel, no doubt assisted by the fact that the stone happens to be ever so slightly radioactive, naturally so, uh, which actually helps the process. Then there are those sacred mountains that require no man-made enhancement. 
their energy being palpable even to the casual observer. They are living portals whose energy remains unadulterated. Not surprisingly, they also happen to be the focal point of entire spiritual cultures, along with myths describing them as locations where knowledge and laws are delivered from gods and star walkers to mortals. Places like Sebitai, Mount Fuji, Arunachala, and Kudatawiti. If we take the, uh, the concept of uh, portals a stage further and examine the relationship between a landscape temple, such as a sacred mountain, and the magnetic tubes of energy discovered by NASA, uh, it is interesting to note that in the mystical traditions of Persia, Japan, and the lands of the Hopi, such locations are described as meeting places between heaven and earth. And not because a mountain is closer to the stars, which may seem obvious, uh, each of these cultures describes the exact location of the sacred cave or the shrine or the ritual center on a sacred mountain as being connected to the sky by a luminous tube or a hollow reed, along which the spirit of the initiate travels outward, but also the energy of the gods descends. So it seems that our predecessors already understood how those magnetic tubes reach through the atmosphere and touch the earth at specific locations. And they took advantage of these terrestrial X points to go traveling among the stars for free. They were thousands of years ahead of the very latest technology. Why is this energy fundamental to places of power? Probably because they were designed with humans in mind. The human body is now widely accepted as being made from the very same stuff. A walking electromagnetic edifice sensitive to minute fluctuations in the local and geomagnetic field. With electromagnetism playing such a pivotal role in the temple, its influence on the body and its 72% water content is immediate. Not to mention human bone with all its silica through which electrical current flows. Even DNA receives information from changes in the local electromagnetic environment. It can be argued that the temple isn't only a mirror of the heavens, it's made of all the elements that make us who we are. They are a mirror of us, a perfect one. Because the blood that flows through our veins carries a fair amount of iron, uh, magnetism will work on it like a magnet reorganizes iron filings on a sheet of paper. And the same is true for the brain. Uh, there are substantial amounts of magnetite found in brain tissue and the cerebral cortex. Under the right conditions, magnetic stimulations of the brain induces dreamlike states, even in waking consciousness. So think about this whenever you walk around a megalithic site with all of those stones filled with all that magnetite. Then there's the effect that telluric forces in temples exert on the pineal gland. Fluctuations in the geomagnetic field affect the production of chemicals made by the pineal, such as pinoline, which interacts with another neurochemical in the brain, serotonin. The end result being the creation of DMT, a hallucinogen that allows information to be received. In an environment where geomagnetic field intensity is decreased, 
people are known to experience psychic and shamanic states. It is one of the reasons why man-made temples were placed on natural portals and why anyone would wish to interact with them. said that there's nothing like personal experience and I totally agree and uh, all this research makes for great television and books uh, and yet when I began interacting and studying ancient places decades ago I had no idea just how powerful the interaction is between you the portal and just how far your consciousness can travel not to mention the quality of information one is able to retrieve it all depends on what it is you're asking so in my case, I tend to use the opportunity to ask for better guidance on the purpose of a temple so I can then be a better teacher to others. And 99 times out of 100, when I follow what I'm given and research it, the information turns out to be spot on. Uh, it makes writing books that little bit easier. One experience I remember was at Sacsayhuaman in Peru. One is somehow lost for words describing this place, but uh, there's a specific hotspot. In fact, I remember calling it a portal stone the first time I ever saw it, and that was from the top of the opposite hill. And it's a massive stone with such presence, and you feel pulled towards it as though you're flowing along a fast-moving current. And the effect is twice as intense standing in front of it. And there's one video where I'm trying to explain this temple to a group, uh, and it's quite obvious I'm struggling to maintain my focus, as though someone is actually speaking to me while I'm talking. And that was precisely what was happening. I can hear information being given to me about the site in my head. And meanwhile, I'm struggling to remember all of this while I'm having a conversation with my group. Uh, somehow I was able to write this down, uh, wrote down all that I heard, and after a month of research, I was able to prove this original information. It's extraordinary, uh, which is just as well because I thought I'd gone mad. And it, it happens in many sacred places and particularly megalithic sites, uh, as it does to any number of people I know who follow a similar passion for this kind of work. I find the temples of the Andes to be uh, very potent stargates, uh, sometimes even more so than those of, say, Egypt. Uh, there's a focus about them, uh, a connection with another stream of existence, and it's very intense. And often it brings into sharp focus all you've learned about such places. Uh, I remember when I was at another amazing site called Amaromeru, which in the local Aymara language means the gateway of the gods and literally looks like a big T-shaped door, uh, the breath of God, once again. It felt very different uh, to previous visits, and when I pressed my forehead to one section of the temple, I could clearly see this bright red tube coming into my forehead, head-on, like a glowing beam. But only at that exact spot. And curiously, there are many stories of locals witnessing the portal glowing blue, with people dressed in unusual clothing appearing from within and other people disappearing into the doorway. And as a stargate, it is beautifully aligned to the rising of Venus before the sunrise on the spring equinox. 
By contrast, the, the stone circles of Kalanish on the remote island of Lewis in Scotland are a gentler energy. The stone is very different. Uh, many of the sites have been aligned to the moon. So by nature, these power places are more subtle. They are places for introspection and dreaming, uh, but to the same end, information is also retrieved. But you also get to do a lot of personal work. My time inside the Great Pyramid of Giza, different yet again. Uh, this place is really intense. Uh, not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, and twice now, I've seen people dressed in what appear to be white satin gowns coming out of the stones. And once, this was done in total darkness. Another time, it was in minimal lighting while conducting a ritual for a group. And what was amazing about the second experience is how a good number of those people also picked up on these beings without any prompting from me. But for sheer raw power, and there are several natural portals that really define, for me, what this energy really is about, how it interacts with the land and what it does to you and where it takes you. There's Shiprock, or Tsebitai, in the Four Corners region of the Native American Southwest. Very potent. So clean you can hear people dancing in ceremony all around you. Uh, it's entrancing. Your sense of temporal space uh, evaporates really quickly. Uh, it's about as humbling an experience as I've ever had. There's one site in, in Wales, the Cader Idris, which means the, uh, the seat of Enoch. Uh, which Gaelic myths declare to be the, uh, the main portal into the other world in this region. There are many mountains in Wales, but this one feels as though you're stepping across a threshold. And another one is actually on the opposite side of the world. It's called Kura Tauhiti on the South Island of New Zealand. Uh, and getting there is just a journey in itself. Uh, if you allow yourself to merge with this beautiful landscape, the spirit of place is very clear. And I recall my first visit, how I saw what resembled a large screen descending in front of me. And it was revealing what the landscape looked like over 11,000 years ago, uh, and some aspects of the knowledge that was actually taught there. So no wonder the original people of this particular part of the world, who were called the Waitaha, they, they refer to this place as the birthplace of the gods. And they were themselves following in the footsteps of people whom they refer to as star walkers. So this natural temple uh, is their ancient academy. It's a repository of the knowledge of the gods and the jumping off place to the stars. And being there, you can really believe it because you can actually see it. If you get out of your own way and discard all of those silly limitations that the modern world tries to impose on you. The X point between astral and terrestrial energies alone does not make a place sacred. A stargate becomes sacred when it energizes within us feelings and concepts we associate with the spiritual dimensions of life. This perceptual reality, experienced and reinforced by people over long spans of time, marks the portal as sacred. When churches were built across Europe, their focal point, the altar, was typically built above an ancient sacred site, and specifically, its most concentrated spot of energy. In Old English, altar used to be spelled with an E, 
and together with its Latin root, alterare, identifies the location as both a high place and a place of altering, which begs the question, who or what is being altered and which high place are they transported to? In the late 1980s, Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Department decided to find out. After rigorous experiments using directed human thought to influence the random movement of objects, uh, even alter the beat of a computerized drumbeat, uh, with incredible results, I should add, this small team at Princeton decided to take their investigation a stage further. Uh, and the idea was to give validation to that gray area where science and mysticism overlap. And one experiment concerned the measurement of data collected by an electronic device called a random event generator, REG for short. And the REG was first used for the Global Consciousness Project, in which the machine revealed spikes in collective human consciousness prior to major events, such as the catastrophic tsunami in Indonesia. So in other words, the team found consistent deviations from expected randomosity in data taken in situations where groups became unified by something of common interest. And the evidence demonstrated that a consciousness field exists and that intentions or emotional states which structure this field can be detected by the REG. At this point, the team began conducting experiments at sacred sites because the scientists were intrigued as to whether the sacredness of these places was due to their collective use over time or because they were imbued with a certain energetic resonance in the first place or because a combination of forces such as stone and electromagnetism and so forth made them so. During an initial experiment at the Native American landscape temple called Mato Tapila in Wyoming, the REG's output was demonstrably affected by a medicine man ceremony. And the team then decided to see what effect meditation groups would have on the output of the REG when chanting or meditating at interesting sites which were not necessarily sacred. Now this time, the machine was only influenced to a small statistical degree. Then they went to Egypt and conducted experiments at 27 temples. And what astonished Princeton's team leader was that the results were even higher whenever he walked around the sites in respectful silence with a portable version of the machine sitting in his pocket. So for him it proved that the spirit of place by itself registered effects as high as the power emanating from a meditating group. But while the temples by themselves resonated with a high degree of consciousness, the combination of focus group meditation plus the temple created an expanded consciousness whose effects were six times that of ordinary REG trials in the field. In fact, they represented the highest effects ever seen. And that's the crux of the matter. When the human temple interacts with the stone temple, consciousness expands beyond the limits of this earth plane and reaches another plateau. We are now discovering why temples are described as places where a person can be transformed into a god, into a bright star. 
Many traditions describe groups of ancient architects embarking on a temple building program across the world at carefully chosen locations. Now we know what this means. These unusual people possessed practical knowledge of the laws of nature and they applied this ability in the service of humanity by creating umbilical cords upon the face of the earth that stretch deep into space. These power places represent some of the most awe-inspiring structures, many of which have survived some 11,000 years thanks to a persistent rebuilding program. Clearly, the builders meant for these stargates to survive for posterity. Perhaps so that the principles upon which the structures were founded would serve future generations to reacquaint them with a connection they'd forgotten. Each portal is a contact station with a miraculous, an island of balance on a planet where change is the only constant. Every stargate behaves as a self-help center, especially during times of chaos when people lose their rudder and their antenna no longer tunes in to a clear spiritual signal. There's a wonderful inscription written on the walls of the Temple of Edfu describing the temple, and I quote, as a magical protector for you in heaven and in earth, unfailingly and regularly and eternally. And they're absolutely right. Uh, however, no matter how much magic there may be in these places, the temple does not exist as a vending machine dispensing instant self-empowerment. Uh, you know, like any functional partnership, you have to offer a little bit of yourself. Meet the temple halfway, and then be careful what you ask for, because you <laughs> might just receive it. Preciously good. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Freddie Silva. Something you want to say, Rama? Oh, I've been to this place. I've been to Shiprock, like he's talked about, and Tom the Cat has told me about a shuttlecraft that's buried near Shiprock, and it holds about 20 people. It's been there since the time of the flood. You went there one day and you spun your crystals and called in. Yeah, I went Jerusalem, there. Jerusalem, right? I went there and called the ships in. And let's just say I had a face-to-face meeting with Ashtar. And it... Uh, <laughs> was about the fact that there were F-16s flying overhead. 
In other words, you called in a few more things than you bargained for. Yeah. And Ashtar kind of gave you a little lecture. Yeah. Wasn't quite time for uh, full disclosure yet. Maybe now is the time. (laughs) I think you're right about that. Yeah. And uh, so... Toriana and uh, Penny had their tay-to-tay with these beings in the last little while. So everyone's having a, a moment right now. So let me just read this one. This is the one we're going to do next. It's called Atlantean Secrets of the Sphinx. And this is Open Minds with Regina Meredith. And Sarah Brexman. Yeah, the Sphinx has been around um, since before Atlantis. And Serapis Bay, as you can tune in to Ascended Master Serapis Bay, he will take you on a journey through the Sphinx and the whole city underneath Giza and... Yeah, he's the keeper of the eternal flame in the paw of the Sphinx. Yeah. Here we go. Well, wait just a second. I'll just read this real quick. Are there ancient secrets buried beneath the Sphinx? Hypnotherapist and past life regressionist Sarah Brexman Cosme shares details of her clients' memories from their past lives of a forgotten history surrounding Atlantis detailing that Atlantean technology may still be hidden under the desert of Egypt. Brexman Cosme describes how the Sphinx stores history from humanity's encounters with extraterrestrials. As Regina Meredith shares her own past lives regressions, she and Brexman Cosme Illuminate perspectives on the archetypal entity Thos, sometimes known as Hermes Trismegistus, or three, connecting the dots between ancient Egypt, Thos, and Atlantis, esoteric knowledge and ETs, Brexman Cosme reveals Earth's destiny as a connection point within Universal Consciousness. Sarah Brexman Cosme is the author of the book A A Hypnotist's Journey to the Secrets of the Sphinx. Watch your previous Gaia interview, Regression to Atlantis. Did we watch that yet? I don't think so. Oh, well, well, we'll do this one now and see. We'll hang on to this. Maybe we'll do the other one next week, next week or something. It's... Let's see what the time brings us. Here we go. This one is 47 minutes, I believe. Yes. Yes. Write these 
books. These books are written by the higher consciousness. Why the Sphinx? How did that happen? Were you looking for something? Somebody with this name of three knows <laughs> information about the Sphinx. It was an extraterrestrial presence that would come down on Earth to try to help humanity before it destroyed one another. Much of the evidence in many of the oh. pyramids are long buried under the sand. And we have yet to rediscover them. Right. It holds our true history. Yes. This Sphinx. this Sphinx was being built on this very special rock. It had like a generator almost. It was a very special rock that came almost like an asteroid from a different planet. Yeah. And it's basically an extraterrestrial presence. And all of a sudden, this different voice came through Yana and said, we have to interrupt this session right now. You're getting too close to confidential information. I've been saying for years that it's going to take the work of talented intuitive and hypnotherapy subjects to flesh out our real human history. Artifacts on the ground are not enough. We need deep memory. Sarah Breastman Cosme's work is key and working together toward this end. I previously interviewed her here on a hypnotist journey to Atlantis. Today, we're going to go to the mysterious Sphinx. Welcome back, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you again. And um, I read the new book, loved it, just like the previous one. And I have such respect for the way this is happening. Before we go any further and into this story, and there's a lot here, did you ever guess when you became a hypnotherapist that you were going to end up in this position? <laughs> Never. I had no idea, at, you know, at all that this would ever happen to me. It was such a wild ride. Yeah, because you were you were trying to help people overcome some of our poor habits in life and get better sleep and lose weight and all that. And here we are talking about Atlantis and the Sphinx. I know. It's just incredible. I had no idea. And it's just started popping through the most unlikely sources that really had no interest. Same is going to go for today's story, by the way. Mm -hmm. They had no interest in these subjects and no knowledge. I had such a different background. I had a scientific background, so I got into all of this stuff by accident. Yep, and one of them was Jen Sullivan, mm -hmm. who she's she has um, she's carrying forward into this story. But we also have a couple of other people that you were working with whose stories start crossing over. And I think it seems that Jen shows up so prominently because she's really lucid and very easy to very easy for her to. Um, to reflect back information that she's seeing, and it's very detailed. She's a really good subject. She's such a good subject because she doesn't know about this stuff. She didn't know about this at all. She was a teacher at the school where my kids went to school, and I knew that she didn't know anything about this stuff because we were friends for 10 years, and I would try to bring up little things yeah, yeah. here and there about spirituality, but she wasn't into any of that stuff, so... That's why she was just such a fantastic oh, subject, because cool. I know that she didn't know this stuff previously. Right. Just as you had not known it previously. Right. Until you started running, bumping into it and getting right. some exposure along the way. So, right. first of all, we already know what happened with Atlantis. Anyone who wants to watch can go back and look at that interview I did with you on Atlantis. So, kind of sets this up. Why the Sphinx? How did that happen? Were you looking for something? Or what happened? You know, I never lead these sessions, and that's what makes it so exciting. I don't write these books. These books are written by the higher consciousness that comes through my clients when they're deep under hypnosis. 
So there's an agenda there. There's information that these higher consciousness want to get out. And I had no idea it would be about the Sphinx. Everything just kept leading us to the Sphinx. It was so exciting to learn all this amazing information. It is. And we're going to get into that. But I feel inclined. I wasn't planning on it, but I feel inclined to say you and I did our own session yesterday. And the reason was um, you and I were talking on the phone, just prep for this. And um, I suddenly got this hit. Gee, I haven't had a regression since Dolores Cannon now 22 years ago. Maybe I should have Sarah regress me. I didn't have anything in mind. It just hit me out of nowhere. So I said, Sarah, how would you feel about doing a regression when you come to Boulder? And you started laughing because... Because the day before, my regression subject said, Dolores just came through and said, you've got to see if you can regress Regina. (laughs) (laughs) And what was so funny was that we did the regression, and I I didn't have any expectation. There was nothing specific I wanted to see, and it turned out, I really think that was Dolores guiding that entire thing because it was more information that ties these stories together on a lot of levels. Can you mean the goosebumps? Yes, it definitely ties it all together. Yeah, so a bunch of information flowed out and some of it I was aware of, some of it I was not aware of, and some of it I can't remember right now. But it just showed that these other forces, and Dolores is not embodied right now. I'm sure she's here with us at this moment. She passed away a few years ago. And uh, she wanted to see that certain information that certain people hold comes forward. So in, say, Jen's case, she might come forward because she wants to work on whatever issue she came to you for, mm-hmm. not knowing that she's being guided from the other side. And I will say, when you're doing a session, you're not you're not asking leading questions at all. Yeah, There's never. nothing leading. There's no subject matter. It all has to come out of the being. And that's why I really didn't write these books. I'm just mm-hmm. the humble messenger. Right. Really. You just edit them together. Right. Put a nice cover on them. <laughs> okay. So first of all, another thing that kept coming out of clients is they kept saying, someone named three is here. <laughs> and at other times, the word thrice and Hermes came up. And it turned out that this was Toth. Now, Toth is an archetypal entity who, as the scribe from the Egyptian gods, right, and culture. You didn't know anything about Toth. They didn't. And it was interesting, thrice Trismegistus, which is thrice, thrice Toth. So in three different incarnations. So Toth is three times this entity incarnating is three different entities. So it's known as thrice Trismegistus. And he just shortened it. He just shortened it to three. Because they wouldn't even be able to pronounce, I can barely pronounce it. I don't, maybe I'm not pronouncing it right. But, um, he came through and gave a simplification of what he's known as to each of these people. And they're seeing this entity calling right. themselves three. And when with my ancient son, Egyptian knowledge, we didn't know anything about thrice her Trismegistus. Oh, okay. Yes. And nobody's heard of this. None of my subjects had. But they kept saying somebody with this name of three knows information about the Sphinx. And multiple clients kept saying that. And I thought, that's a really strange name, three. Why do you call this being three? And they said, because this being doesn't go by um, he or she. It's androgynous. And it's basically an extraterrestrial presence. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah. So here is Toth who is the great scribe throughout Egyptian history, and one might argue even into Atlantean history, the 
coming to share through innocent people information mm-hmm. that has been withheld from humanity. Right, because the time is right for it to come back to humanity. So let's go to Jen first. And Jen was the primary subject we were speaking about a moment ago. And she was talking about when she, when she started looking at it, she said it was an outpost. So let's talk about where she was, was what she was looking at, where it was an outpost from and what she started seeing. So I was regressing Jen and I took her back to that lifetime in the seventies, or that's where her higher self brought her to. And we were finding out information about that. Well, she committed suicide, was right. put in an insane asylum, basically jumped off a bridge when she got out for a minute. Right. And now, she, and she came back not too long after that. Right. That's exactly. Jen. And back during that lifetime, she had been regressed earlier by yes. a different hypnotist. And during that time, they were uncovering information. And some of this information that they uncovered was about the Sphinx. And we didn't know this previously. But as I was regressing her, she realized this. And we went, she went to the time where she saw it being built. And she saw from an, an observer point of view that this Sphinx was being built on this very special rock. It had like a generator almost. It was a very special rock that came almost like an asteroid from a different planet. And she didn't know exactly where it was, but this was a very special rock because it could harness and hold and magnetize energy. And so the colonizers that came to this planet chose that rock to build the Sphinx on it because they knew it could act as a time capsule, a generator almost to keep certain things active so that they could have it stored there. And when Jen was seeing it being built, she saw that the extraterrestrials that built it didn't have bodies at the time because they didn't need to interact with humans. And it's very interesting because many different extraterrestrials will say they don't need a body unless they're interacting with humans or unless they're going to be on this earth for a while. So at the time, it was easier for them to build the Sphinx. And they used these laser-like tools to chisel out the Sphinx most of the time was spent digging the tunnels underneath. Just the, it was a short amount of time for them to build the uh, jungle cat-like facade on top mm-hmm. that is now looks different. Yeah, she almost called it a kind of human hard drive. Mm-hmm. So it has our human history in it. It does. But it, it also appears to have our human future mm-hmm. in it. It does. In terms of what we're capable of, what we are, what right. we were hybridized from, right? Right. It holds our true history. Yes. In the Sphinx. And it broadcasts out. So everything that's happening around us today is being stored in the Sphinx and broadcast out to other planets so they can keep track of us. And it wasn't just she, but others also others. saw the Many same others. function happening. Right. But you touched on something there, and, and it was, I found it interesting in the book, were, was the tunneling system. Mm-hmm. Because she went on to say, she also spoke of Antarctica and said that mm-hmm. was really one of the cradles of civilization where she and her people from wherever they came from mm-hmm. were colonizing. They were doing that in the Antarctica area, Arctica area. And she said throughout all over the earth are massive tunnel systems. Oh, definitely. Tell us about the tunnel systems, Well, how she described them. She described, especially the ones that went, that were underneath the Sphinx, they went from large and boxy to small, not small, but narrow. So basically it would create something within the mind when you would go through them. It would create almost like a transcendence. 
um, this feeling of going from a wide area into this small, narrow spot. And it was basically what it was supposed to do is to go from the scattering of the mind into focus mm-hmm. to bring you back to that state where you can really focus and get information. It was all done for a very specific purpose. But there were also tunnel systems built all over throughout the earth for the ice under age. the oceans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For the ice age. And during that time, before the ice age, there was lots of warning. And so they, the uh, extraterrestrials that were seeding this planet didn't want to lose their experience you know, experiment. So they came down and they helped everybody build these tunnels intricately. I mean, there's many other reasons for the tunnels, but that's one of them. What are some of the other reasons for the tunnels? Oh my gosh. Well, I, I've heard they were different joining mechanisms for different extraterrestrials that would inhabit the inner earth. And so they would use the tunnels as a way of like meeting up with one another and Going over perhaps civilizations or mm-hmm. tribes of people. And- right, right. So they could go unnoticed. Also, another reason for the tunnel systems were for extraterrestrials to work on the soil because it was said that if they didn't, we wouldn't really be able to live here. Hmm. And so this, the different experiences, each of these people had different experiences of the tunnel system. And you pointed to a moment ago, one of them included what happened when humans had to go underground during the Ice Age. Mm -hmm. Can you talk from memory, if you can, because there's so much information, I don't like to throw things at you because you have to go into your data bank and remember what someone said. But can you explain what it was like for the people that had to go underground during an Ice Age, how they lived? Because they were assisted by ET technologies for physical survival, as I recall. Well, you know, it was interesting because there was a lot of revolting going on because some people just wanted to go back to the surface, but they couldn't. So there was a huge divide in in the minds of the people at the time. And then when they finally could come to the surface, some didn't want to, mm-hmm. and some have stayed in the Oh, tunnels. so there's still humans in those oh, tunnels living there. Mm-hmm. But as I recall, some of them became weakened and did not make it. Right. And what was that a result of, as you recall? just from lack of sunlight and, you know, they couldn't really do very much. There was this specific thing that they would do to create energy within the tunnels. They would go make these big circles and just try to run in one circle um, many times. It would create a, a, like a type of energy that they would try to bathe themselves in. And then some really enjoyed to just sit in the crevices deep in the tunnels and they would feel the energy of the earth. My subjects all had different experiences during this time, the ones that remembered this experience deep under hypnosis. All in all, it wasn't a particularly satisfying experience for them. I don't want to remember it. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm thinking, yeah, interesting why anyone would even choose to incarnate during those times where you, I mean, there's always something to learn, something new if you're an adventurer, but it didn't sound like a quality of life that most humans would want. Well, I think for some of them, it gave them great purpose to create this energy within the tunnels Mm -hmm. because by doing these circles and creating this energy, they were also benefiting the earth. And so they felt very connected deep in these tunnels. And it was, that was their sense of purpose. Hmm. Instead of just survival. Right. Right. Because, right. I mean, your creativity is, activity is somewhat limited in its expression, not right. a lot of resources. Also, they can connect deeply with the earth in that way. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to move on to that, past that. And the, you mentioned before that when the face was originally built and Jen was watching it being built, you were looking at a feline, mm-hmm. a cat. Mm-hmm. Now, why was that? 
And then what's the story of how the cat ultimately became the pharaoh? And what kind of timeline are we looking at in terms of the age as far as can be determined in a regression of the sphinx? Well, the sphinx was first the jungle-like cat facade because that was the apex predator in the area. There's other sphinx-like structures, and they would also have the apex predator of that area as the facade there. But um, it was changed with the kind of symbolically with a takeover of the masculine energy and control. So symbolically, there's so many symbols in our world today. So symbolic, symbolically, when they just totally changed the face, it was kind of to symbolize that takeover of greed and this, um, you know, dominance and control. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, does she have any sense of the age of when it was originally constructed in its original feline form? That was before civilization. That was when they were like starting to colonize Antarctica. So Antarctica at that period of time had green rolling hills. And yes. It was really peaceful to live there. Everybody was very excited. They were so excited about this project they were creating and they had many children, hybrids, and they were so happy. My clients just describe Antarctica during that time as just amazing. Right. And then mm. even when um, Jen would have difficulties in her life, she would be taken back to a memory just to see Antarctica because it gave her such great peace. So it was during that time, way before Antarctica went under the ice. So we're looking at hundreds of thousands of years. Oh, definitely. So the Sphinx would be much older than even Robert Schock suggested, who outraged everyone saying it was 11, 12,000 years old. Way, way. <laughs> well, when you look at other, um, other esoteric systems that say the, the pyramid is, at least 85, at least 100,000 years old. Um, that's Those are speculations. They could be even further back than that. And much of the evidence and many of the great pyramids are long buried under the sand. And we have yet to rediscover them. Well, it's not, yeah, and it's not his fault. I mean, it's really hard to know. No, no, no. He was trying to be as conservative as he could on it. And that was outrageous in the time, mm-hmm. though. It got him in a lot of trouble to stick his neck out that wow. far. And or deviate from the original... Uh, Egyptians antiquities department version of the story, which is a whole other thing. So this is what's nice about this because it's coming through intuitive and, and regressed information. It can't tick off any members of any kind of, um, institutions. You know, it's just that they can make what they want of it, which is why I love it. Okay. So what now looking at the Sphinx from Jen's point of view, there was information planted there under, I believe the left pop. Many, mm-hmm. many people have seen this. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's something for us to access under the paw. What did she see? So she saw that there were crafts, there were extraterrestrial crafts, technology there stored under there, and just like a treasure trove of different information. But the thing about this information under the Sphinx that's still there, that's important to know, is you can only see it when you've reached a certain level in your existence. So you can't see it at the current level in this I guess you could call it um, plane of existence in this 3D reality with our mindset now. You have to raise your vibration enough to receive certain information within the Sphinx. Yeah, and that's my understanding too, even from my own guides, that that information won't be 
will not be revealed until we've reached a certain level of understanding. Right. And what, you know, what's, what's interesting about it is in talking with Mark Vigato, for example, and others about the technological progress of Atlantis Mm -hmm. and the destructions that ultimately occurred, um, as a result of heavy reliance on materialism over our spiritual mental matrix and faculties. I wonder about that with the Sphinx, when you have to be a certain vibration to see it, that means it must be going back into spiritual technologies, not just technological spacecraft and such. Exactly. You have to be able to use your mind in order to access it. Right. And that's what she was saying. And you have to be ready for it. Like even me, for example, before I was into spirituality, someone gave me an Esther Hicks book asking it was given yes. something, which is a great book, but I took one look at it and threw it out. I was so mad <laughs> that we create our own reality because I wasn't ready. So you have to be ready for this information. Yes. And she, and Yana is another one of your clients. Let's talk a little bit about, we're going to go into a couple of Yana's journeys and there was another woman named Mary. I want to talk about hers too. That was, that was really interesting. But Yana was saying that the Sphinx was actually developed in another dimension initially before it became the physical Sphinx. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a bit? So Yana discovered that the Sphinx was connected to her home. And back in her, in this one past life in Egypt, she would go to the Sphinx so that she could connect to her home planet and she could receive information through the Sphinx. And she noticed that you can still do this. You can tune in to the kind of frequency that the Sphinx emits and just communicate back with your own home planet if you feel a calling to do so. Almost like tuning the radio dial. That's interesting for anyone watching who's planning to go on a tour of Egypt. Oh, definitely. And has a chance to touch the base of the Sphinx. That would be amazing. Oh my gosh, definitely. One of my clients actually did channel the Sphinx and it was so fascinating we were asking it questions and tell us about that. Well, when it, it was Fred and I asked Fred, well, Fred said, Hey, I can, I can channel the Sphinx, you know, right now. So of course, as curious as I am, I said, well, go ahead. What does it want to say? And it said, I am you because basically it's tapped into universal consciousness. So it is us. So essentially we are also the Sphinx as well, which I thought was really interesting. That's the hard drive for human awareness, consciousness. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. What else did Fred see? Let's go to, let's talk about Fred for a moment. Oh my gosh. Fred is such an interesting character because my client, my other two clients kept saying that this being named three will show up. And um, at the end of Fred's session, when I asked who I was speaking with, he said, I am three. <laughs> and he didn't even know that I had been learning about three. But Fred was very connected with that being that you would call Toth. Mm-hmm. Toth. Three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And three was this bringer of light. It was an extraterrestrial presence that would come down on Earth to try to help humanity before it destroyed one another. And basically, three was just sharing information about how we're all fractal of universal consciousness and how we all create from the spiritual heart. So the frequency of the spiritual heart can help you create anything. And three was basically sharing this information about how just being kind to another can really help you kind of dust off the cobwebs of your spiritual heart and you can create that way. So being kind to one another can actually help you manifest. I love that part of the book. Honestly, that was, he had some really kind of lovely um, 
testimony, so to speak. Right, definitely. Anything else from Fred? Because I want to go back to Yana for a bit and what happened when your session was interrupted. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, that was, that has never happened to me before. Ever. So, so, okay, let's go to it. You're with Yana. Okay. And you guys are in the middle of a session and tell us what happened. It's just a regular session. <laughs> so I thought, and, um, I was regressing Yana to that past life and she wanted to go see her home planet. So I asked her higher consciousness to take her to her home planet that she wanted to see so badly. And all of a sudden, this different voice came through Yana and said, we have to interrupt this session right now. You're getting too close to confidential information. Now, why? Why is it confidential? And they said, because it would be too confusing for humanity to understand and you're getting too close. And I said, well, what would happen if, if you just tell me, <laughs> if you just tell me this confidential information? And they said, well, it would cause too much confusion. It's very, um, classified information. You're getting too close to the energy from Yana's home planet that will be free energy in the future for, for this planet. And there were other, there was other information that we couldn't, they couldn't divulge. So my session was interrupted. And then they said, okay, now we'll bring Yana back and we'll show her this other scene um, and and let you go on with your session again. And anytime I got too close, they interrupt this, interrupted us, interrupted the session. And again, when you say too close, it was to a type or a source of energy that they said we're not to know about yet. Not to know just about yet. it yet. And I assume because too- we don't have the wisdom to use right. it for right purpose. Right. For the right purpose. Exactly. But I've had other clients go to this same home planet. I believe it was the same because they describe it the same way with these um kind of spires on it. And yes. when they when they see this home planet, they get overwhelmed and very emotional because it seems for many humans walking the planet today, it's in their blood, it's in their DNA to want to go back to this home planet. So even a glimpse of it affects them deeply and they remember instantly Oh, that's where I'm from. That's my home. I want to go back. Do they remember any of the characteristics of the people or the civilization or anything? All they know is that their home had to die, had to lay fallow for a while until it could be rebuilt, that it had finished its life cycle. I guess if you could imagine this earth and this earth, you know, finally finishing its life cycle, the connection you have to this earth, if you are going to a different planet to stay while this earth is being rebuilt, it would be in your DNA probably. You would remember this earth and the beauty and everything and want to go back. So that's kind of how I feel Interesting. it happens for my clients or how they feel about that other home planet that once they see it, they just want to go back. Okay, now that crosses over into... The subject of Mars, because Mars started coming up in this story right. as well, talking about a planet that had um, a catastrophe and lost its inhabitability. So can we talk about that for a moment? Sure. Because they were saying a lot of people that are curious about Mars are curious because that's where they once were. Exactly. So tell us that story. There's always a reason why you have a curiosity to something anyway. It's your intuition leading you to something So for many, just hearing this story will help them so much because they have that that um, curiosity about Mars. So apparently there were many beings living on Mars when there was a collision in the atmosphere and it kind of blanketed Mars and it 
turned cold and they couldn't live there anymore. So they asked for help and some beings didn't make it. There were many people that perished on Mars and many that were rescued as well. But for some, just seeing the civilization being rebuilt would really help them so much in their life right now. What about the notion of being underground on Mars? They had tunnels um, in within Mars where they would transport their food and stuff like that. They were basically vegetarian in nature. In nature. So, and they went underground during so that's this time, why I was during the cataclysm, right? Mm-hmm, when they waited for help, but they couldn't really support themselves and sustain life there under the ground there. Yes, because there were some people, um, like uh, Robert Dean, who was a lovely man in the military for many years, who had been shown, and many say that they've seen these maps of Mars and that it's being inhabited right now. And that there are actually uh, colonies of Earth people that mm-hmm. are living there right now, but underground. Has, oh, I heard that too. That's yes, interesting. Did any of that come up in any regressions? Just that, that there are humans living there now. That's what mm-hmm. I heard in, um, with my clients under hypnosis. So what you're saying... And that there's life on Mars. Yeah. And what you're saying is is making me think that the people that might be living on Mars, as far as some accounts say might very well be those who lived there once before and their planet was lost to them. And oh, they're, definitely. Yeah, they're yeah. back and yeah. just trying to reestablish on where, in a place they're more comfortable. Right. So did they say anything about the future of Mars in terms of the habitability and the, the ability to survive there more easily in the future? Yes, they said it will be rebuilt and people will live there in the near future. Mm-hmm. What about Venus. Does anything ever come through from Venus? No, but I'll ask. Yeah, it's interesting because I didn't read that in any of these. And I was thinking, hmm, I bet Venus will start popping through. Anyway, it's just maybe it's planting a seed. (laughs) Um, So another thing um, that came up, and this is a big one for me. And this message came through, I think, Jen. It came through Fred. And it may have come through Yana. You remind me. And that was when people were looking at Earth's future. When they were looking at Earth's future, they would go into these progressions as well. Mm-hmm. And it's not what we're being told. Oh, my gosh. Not at all. No. So I would like you to tell that story of what they're saying about the future of Earth. Well, first of all, none of these people know one another. And they don't know what the other person said. Mm-hmm. So I do that just to keep this valid. Mm-hmm. And they all say the same things, all of them, including, you know, I, I do this job almost every day. Right. That earth is moving into an amazing place, that this will be a kinder, gentler earth. It's going to be an amazing place to live, that this is, everything is right on track. The earth is ascending. Basically, what they say is the earth is on a trajectory of planets. There are many other Earth planets, and they move up like a uh, the rungs of like a ladder. Dimensionally. Right. Yeah. And so once the Earth hits this certain frequency, it will become a light planet. Right now, Earth is classified right now as a manifestation planet. It wasn't before. So you can manifest a lot easier now. But everything is right on track. The extraterrestrials that speak through my clients are very happy with the progress and happy with the way everything's going. I mean, yes, there's chaos, but the future looks amazing. And when they each spoke of it, it, the question was, well, is there a time when Earth will become extinct? And you must have been the one asking the question of each of these people out of curiosity. 
And every time they said no, not for millions of right. years. When it goes through its own natural cycle, that's millions of years from now. That right. is not for us to be even thinking about nor concerned with. We're nowhere close. And the notion of people and, and mass extinction of humanity and life forms. Mm-hmm. Tell us what they said about that. I was curious about that too, because it seemed like we were uh, repeating the Atlantis cycle. Mm-hmm. And no, we're actually doing things so much better, so much differently. And there's so much help on the planet. There are so yes. many extraterrestrial volunteers embodied in a human body right now, helping. There's extraterrestrials helping from you know, they're interdimensional they're beings. All over. You're saying extraterrestrials is anything that's not oh, human, but it's actually, it's every, you're everybody. referring to every kind of entity, right. interdimensional, angelic, et cetera. They're all right. here right. helping us. I'm kind of curious when you look at the Atlantean times and the stories that are emerging, the competition and over-reliance upon technology seem to be a bit of a downfall for humanity. Right. And now we're reaching those same decision points. It must be that these beings feel we are making decisions that will ultimately avert that same trajectory. So something's helping wise us up a little bit over what we've been before. Definitely. Well, there's this special light hitting the planet right now that many of my clients have been talking about. It's like this bluish white light that's just blanketing the earth. It's been blanketing the earth. You can feel it. It's raising the frequency of the inhabitants and the earth as well. And it's a very healing light all over. Just trying to remove things that are unwanted from people and the earth as well. At the same time, when you remove things, we have a tendency to cling a bit and we don't like change too much. So the chaos comes in our reaction to the fact that our own higher essence, our own higher self is trying to remove these things from us. Oh, and that's being drenched in that light. Right. Right. It's a very exciting time. But as far as the technology, this is really exciting because during Atlantis, we moved too far in our technology and we didn't have compassion. See, what's different about these times is that we're holding compassion now and we're moving with the technology we're creating balance. It's all about the balance. And that's what we were striving to do before, but we didn't do it right. This time we're doing it right. It does seem like the it factor now that may have um, become dampened back then is the energy of the heart. Right. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like what, what three, like what three was talking about, just the frequency, the spiritual heart and being compassion, hold it being compassionate and holding compassion for one another. It's huge. It helps you so much. And especially doing the job I do when I take people to the afterlife and they do their life review, they realize that every single thing they did to help somebody else comes back to them. They feel it greatly, every single thing. So it's an incredible thing to be kind to another person. It helps you just as it helps them. But it's also a frequency. It is. And that Mm -hmm. frequency is, the frequency ultimately is what creates change, the earth's ascension, our ascension into reconnecting with the spiritual aspect of life, self, cosmos, etc. To me, that's ascension, is reconnecting with spirit. Mm -hmm. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, in the simplest form. And we're all in the process one way or another. Did they talk at all in any of these 
about artificial intelligence and that that being developed on the mm-hmm. planet now? Yes, um, there's been a lot of talk through my clients about Let's that. Talk about it. Well, they were saying that it's only beneficial in the right hands. It's yes. divine. It's divine planning. That's the way we're supposed to move. This is our future. But uh, as as long as the right people hold the key, but there's so much help right now, and we're there's so much help to make sure things go well. So I'm not worried as far as the trajectory right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're all seeing the same outcome, so I'm not either. Right. But I find this point where we're making decisions absolutely fascinating. Not only the chaos because of the human, our human nature of clinging to the familiar when it's time to let go. That causes right. chaos, right? <laughs> right? And discomfort. Right. But also the imagination of what's happening in the world of entertainment. I pay close attention to entertainment because a lot of it's predictive programming. And some of it is also showing potential. And there is this series, I think it was on Amazon, it's on Amazon Prime, called Humans. And what it's about is we've reached a point where AI and robotics that are synthetic humans, they're called synths. Robotic humans now live alongside humanity to help us with the more mundane tasks so that life actually becomes easier. So we have more time to do what we wish, contemplate, have a more ease on planet Earth. But then the notion of human consciousness merging with synthetic consciousness enters the story. And that's where all of these incredible philosophical um, types of questions start rising and, and very direct kind of emotional kinds of responses people have to this, this perfected being that has now human consciousness that's self-organizing. And so you look at it and think, where are we going to end up on this trajectory? And they ask the question, is that hum- the human trajectory? Is remaining carbon-based but awake and aware and truly sentient? Is that our trajectory wow. with the aid of AI, which is what you're talking about? Well, if you look at other planets, the ones that have evolved themselves, like the Arcturians, yes. say, you know, they have technology. They have any kind of technology. Absolutely. And they're very compassionate. So they, they just chose to keep balance. And that's, ex- that's what's being kind of exemplified in this, this, uh, series, British oh, series. It seems that the ones with the highest levels of compassion often end up being AI, but they mm-hmm. may also be human. So you're looking at the, you're looking at the declined intelligence, emotional intelligence on both sides and the elevated emotional intelligence on both sides. But, Compassion is a huge keyword in that series. So that's, I think the heart and compassion is going to, I agree with you, be the key to the way we choose to interface with AI in the future. It is the key. It's just being kind of put put on us in ways we don't appreciate at the moment. Right. Yeah. Right. And we have to call the shots on that. Right. So the kinder, gentler world, same thing my guides told me, looks just like Earth. It's like the Earth you have now beautiful, but you are living amongst more like-minded people, more collaborative right. people. It's right. a more beautiful way of living on and with the mm-hmm. earth. Right. You'll be able to communicate with yes. the earth. Yes. And so now let's go to Mary. Red crystals pop up. They popped up in Jen's story of Atlantis and so forth. But Mary in the fairy realm, because I think that realm is really prominent right now. 
on a lot of levels. They're really making themselves more known to earthlings. Right. It was so fascinating how these fairies were using these mirrors. And she kept saying, humans think it, they are wands with their mirrors. And we use them to access different dimensions by shining this mirror or reflecting the light. It would open the dimension that they would take the different crystals and they would place them different places to help people with time travel and just whatever they needed. Because these crystals are so sought after. Humans can't have any of these crystals at the moment. <laughs> They're keeping them away from hidden <laughs> they humans. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Until we reach the Not level. Kids we can. We... <laughs> exactly. Tell us a little bit more about the nature of the elemental kingdom that she was. She went back into a time where she was part of that. Right. And she could remember all her past lives. She didn't Tell us go. About, so everyone's fascinated with elementals. Tell us a little bit more about Mary and her experiences. Oh, it's so cute. She said it was like a dollhouse where she lived and she was just laughing so much and she had access to all of her past lives. There was no forgetting in that, um, in that realm. And they were just beautiful little light beings that just wanted to help. And how did and, they work with earth, with mother, mother nature, with humans? How does that work? In well, that's what ways? their job. That's their role to work with human humans and Mother Nature mm-hmm. and to, to basically just to work with both of them and to help them in whatever way they can. Just beautiful little light beings that seem so happy. Because she said, there's so much laughter here. Just constantly laughing well, I think and we playing. we all want to go there. <laughs> next life. You're going to be a fairy next right, life. Right, right. <laughs> not an evil dwarf, right? <laughs> yeah. So you talked about the blue light a moment ago. It's mm-hmm. something that's happening right now. But some of the people this information came through said, it's not just right now. It's going to be continuing for a while. Right. And it's okay if you're not ready for it yet. You have, there's so many opportunities. All you have to do is accept it, basically. You can just put your feet on the earth and have it, you know, be absorbed through your body. There's so many ways to use this light or to bathe yourself in it. It doesn't take much. And what else did they have to say about what we can all do right now to progress without the same level of pain and sanity and so forth we've been going through? Because I know different information is coming through different people. What are some of the tools we have here? Oh, my gosh. Well, just to go inwards, just to quiet your mind. And I would always ask, what about for the people that don't know how to meditate? And they said, oh, well, you know, just going out into nature is good enough. Being around like-minded people, speaking freely with another person that you feel you can just speak freely with is so healing. And, you know, besides nature and swimming, just all different things. There's so many different things you can do to raise your vibration or to connect with another person, connect with the earth or connect with yourself, basically. Just what listen deeply. What about yourself. connecting with all the beings besides, and, and especially our higher self, well, but everything in this other realm that is trying to help us along the way? That's really interesting. So they don't give me the future, but they said, the most predominant future potential is that, you know how everybody talks about connecting with the other side? It's going to be very commonplace to connect with the higher version of yourself. Like the, if you want to call it an extraterrestrial version, everybody has that version. Or multidimensional version. Exactly. Yeah. So that's going to be commonplace to connect with that part of ourselves. And everybody will understand how to do this. It's going to be easy. And just to add to that, 
in the most ancient of Atlantean times, it was very easy for those realms to communicate between themselves when they were in not as dense a physical reality and not reliant yet upon technology, but more spiritual technology. And so maybe it's just us remembering our way back to when we used to be able to communicate that way too. Oh, I love that. Definitely. Any final thoughts? We just have a minute or so left about tying this huge subject of the Sphinx and everything else we talked about together. Well, I would just love to say, because I do this job almost every single day, that the beings that come through my clients, you could call them the extraterrestrials or higher consciousness, they always say that, you know, it's so funny that humans are always trying to be when they already are. They're always trying to get something when they already have it. That basically a human's job is to be messy, not perfect. We're not supposed to be perfect. We're here to be messy. And we come to this earth to have these experiences. Because when you go back to the in-between, then all is known. You've just forgotten. That's why there's, you know, chaos and pain. But when you go back to the in-between, everything is known to you again. So while you're here, just make a mess. Don't be perfect. Leave the stupid jerk. (laughs) And have as much fun as possible. Sarah, that couldn't be more beautifully said. Let's just get messy. Not beat ourselves up for being messy might even be a better way to put it. And enjoy this and learn everything we can while we have it this way. Thank you once again. I can't wait to see what you come up with next because undoubtedly new information is going to start streaming through your clients. It already has. Super exciting. Okay. You going to tease us a little? Oh my gosh. Well, a lot of what I've been getting recently is tribal information and it's been coming through like crazy. All these different subjects that don't know one another because they said the time is right for justice, not justice in the way that you know, something bad will happen to somebody else, mm-hmm. but justice in the fact that people will finally be heard. That's mirrored also by uh, Sheila Gillette and the Theo group. Oh, interesting. That, yes, people will be heard that we're moving to a time where, believe it or not, governments will be serving the people, <laughs> not the other way around. Right, right. That's what I've been hearing too. I that's so it. interesting. I love it. That's good news. And so when that's all done, put a book together and I'll have you back. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Again, Sarah's book is titled A Hypnotist's Journey to the Secrets of the Sphinx. You can also go to Sarah's website to connect with her personally at theholistichypnotist.com. If you enjoyed this interview, you might also want to watch my previous interview with her here in the Gaia archives. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Let me tell you a little anecdote. A few days ago, a lady said to me in Los Angeles, my husband died a year ago, and he shared with me a great lesson on his deathbed. He said to me, come close. I want to tell you something. Listen very carefully. I can only say this once. I don't have much strength left. She said, I'm listening, darling. What is it? He said, remember this always. Each morning, the moment you take your head off the pillow, you have all you need.
an iceberg. And the tip of the iceberg is what's above the surface. That's the conscious mind. That's the mind of choice. That's the action mind. Uh, what's below the surface, and that's most of the iceberg, right? That's the subconscious mind, like a submarine. You don't know it's there, but it's there unless it surfaces. Well, most of us say we want X. I want a new car. I want a fancy house. I want、uh, inner peace. I want a loving relationship. And then we start to go out into our world and we say, "I will earn the right." And、uh, you start working away at life. You're using your mind a lot, and you're working at everything, and things get in the way. Life seems to throw curves at you. You can think of everyone in this world that you know as dragging a whole bunch of suitcases behind them. The emotion code is a way to cut loose all those suitcases, all those steamer trunks, all that baggage that you've been carrying around all your life. The end result of that is that you become light, and you become able to manifest into the world what you're supposed to be able to manifest. Imagine living in a world where everyone is actually manifesting from their heart into the world. Their perfect creation that is inside each of them—that's where we're going. Understand emotions are that when we have emotions, oftentimes we don't express our emotions, and the the good emotions we do express, but the the negative or the painful emotions, they get trapped in our body, and and we we can become sick from those emotions. And the way I understand it is like a, a glass of water. Where you add water, you add water, you continue to add water. But when we don't express them, when we don't give it energy, and we don't work through our stuff, then ultimately it's going to spill over into a disease or an illness or something that manifests as a result of what we haven't worked on. I am absolutely convinced that it is our our trapped emotions and、uh, traumas. And anxieties and unprocessed life experiences that we hold in our nervous system are the the source of everything that ails us. One of the most profound things in my life has been able to share ancient wisdom that I came across just as a young guy traveling around the world and fascinated by communities that pretty much live off the grid and they're long lived, they're healthy. They're happy, and it always bothered me. How can they be that way without hospitals and doctors and miracle supplements and pills and capsules? They don't have any of that. What I've come to understand is at the core of every symptom, every stress, every disease pattern 
that we experience, whether it be physical, whether it be emotional, are emotions, memories that are buried in our subconscious mind. And when these are triggered, our body reacts. It's called a maladaptive stress reaction. And what it means is that we're not able to adapt in the present moment, here and now. And what happens is our body reacts as if something from the past is going on right now. Now, when we react to conditions in our life, there is an emotional component that begins to create chemistry in our bodies because the body is interpreting an emergency situation. Now, all organisms in nature are designed for short-term stress. Uh, gazelle gets chased by a lion. 15 minutes later, it goes back to grazing and everything returns back to balance. Human beings are a little different. We can turn on the stress response just by thought alone. We can think about some past bitter memory that's tattooed in the recesses of our gray matter and like magic, it comes to life. And in that moment, it's real. Whenever you see something, because the brain works in pictures, there's a response to that image of the sensory impact. If you hear a sound that sounds dangerous, your body, your brain will create an emotional molecule to get you to respond to that. And as a result, our heart rate increases, our immune system suppresses, we become more anxious because we're not in our fullest potential in the moment. The core of every symptom, stress, and disease are emotions and memories, traumatic perceptions that are buried in our subconscious mind. Conscious and both unconscious contributing to the challenges we're having in our physical body. When we have experiences in our lives that overwhelmed us emotionally or, or brought us a lot of pain, what we're finding is that there are these protective mechanisms that help us to overcome and survive these experiences. These protective mechanisms actually take these experiences Oh, well, are we playing something like that just because it happened? It just started. No. No? <laughs> mm. Okay. So let's do something then. Pick one. Drama. Okay. Sorry, everybody, but I think it, it just went... To the next one, we yeah. We'll do that another time. Sound and megalith. Sound and megalith. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, everybody. This one is uh, 
Oh, this is all the, the whole gang. This is the whole gang. Oh, yes. Greg Braden, Dr. Bullard, William Henry, Robert Grant, Nassim mm-hmm. Harameen. Shall I go on? <clears throat> well, we'll read here. How was sound used to construct ancient megaliths of Earth? From the manipulation of gravitational fields to the electromagnetic ties of consciousness. Professionals agree most, most, um, ancient megaliths are aligned with frequency nodes, much like planetary chakra points. Top researchers and experts weigh in on potential sound technologies used to create structures like the pyramids of Giza in Egypt. Gobluteki, Gobluteki Tepe in Turkey, plus Tiwakan and Chichen Itza in Mexico. Through examinations of these legendary structures, explore the vibrational nature of our universe. So let's play with this one. I'm sure we're we're about 27 minutes worth here. Here we go. Let's do this. But there's thousands all around the world. From pyramids in Egypt, Guatemala, Mexico. Some of them dating of the time of hunters and gatherers. For instance, in Turkey, temples have been found that are built out of megalithic rocks 12,000 to 13,000 years old. How is it possible that supposedly primitive peoples hunter-gatherers. They don't have the wheel, they don't have an organized culture, supposedly, but somehow they're able to build these constructions out of 5, 10, 20, thousand ton blocks of stone that sometimes they haul for miles before they're put into their ultimate location. The blocks uh, that they were using to build these temples were so massive that they couldn't have been dragged along by manual human labor and then put into exact perfect position. 
And then the arrangement of one block to another was fit so tightly and so perfectly. We know that in ancient times, many people built beautiful buildings, beautiful cathedrals, without knowing mathematics and modern principles. Some of these remarkable monuments are not anything we could reproduce today with all of our technology currently. How were these giant stone structures created? And by whom? People who were transforming to higher states of consciousness. And in these higher states, they got understanding what should be done and how they can do it. Or it was using sound technology to create an anti-gravity field or some kind of magnetic resonance. There was a way that they had an advanced technology to build these temples and these megaliths. It might have been sound or frequency in combination with technology that at certain frequency would produce gravitational effects. There's no other real truly scientific explanation for how they accomplished what they accomplished. The ultimate answer has to involve sound. They must have been able somehow to put themselves into some kind of sympathetic resonance with these materials. Personally, I believe it makes sense that many thousands of years ago, Earth was in a different vibrational state than it is today. The possibilities are as intriguing as the buildings themselves. But maybe that's not where we should start, unraveling the mystery. We tend today to always look at the actual constructions on the site, rather than starting by looking at the land itself. In all of these cases in the ancient world, and only in very recent times, was the understanding that you always look for the sacred power spots first. Many megalithic sites, including pyramids, and stone circles, and sacred sites around the world, are deliberately located on Earth energy lines or at nodal points of this global Earth frequency grid. These are the points on the Earth that have a particular power to them, that have a particular vibrational quality. And that vibrational quality is actually the energy quality of the original unified field, the singularity state, the one that everything came out of. They seem to be intended for transmuting or channeling the energy for healing or ceremonial purposes. These sacred power spots on Earth function similar to chakras or acupuncture points in the human body. And they will have the ability to help to harmonize energetic fields and consciousness through the energy of that site. These power spots have unique alignments across the globe. Everywhere you look on the planet, you find these magnetic nodes which have these power locations coming up out of the Earth, whipping around the planet. But these locations are where a lot of the ancient temples and structures are built. You can start to see that they were not just placed randomly around the world, but they seem to be placed 
in very specific relationship to each other and with very specific mathematical angles to each other. Teotihuacan being a great example where you have the moon pyramid, the sun pyramid, and what is called the way of the dead, which I like to think of as more the way of initiation. The biggest power spot becomes where the palace of the ruler will be formed. Then other power spots will be where they place all the different temples and the places to connect directly to spirit. They'll also take the power spots and they'll create a pathway from it, knowing that the pathway, which would later become the road systems, is going to be a type of channel. And it will take the power spot energy and run it along the pathway as if it was water running along a water channel. Underneath the pyramid of the sun and also Great Pyramid at Giza, they have the ability to absorb something called physiostatic electricity from running water. As the water moves under the magnetized granite at the base, it creates physiostatic electricity, which these ions rush up into the pyramid itself. And there it's sent into specific chambers. Once it hits these different chambers, the hypothesis is that in some way, it creates electric power. And in some way, it comes out of the apex of these pyramids. Another way to look at this energy current is from a sonic or musical perspective. For instance, in Teotihuacan, this way of the dead had waterways that flowed from one level to the other, to the other, to the other, showing very specific relationship between each of these cascades of water to produce very specific musical harmonics across the whole complex. At Chichen Itza, you see something really amazing. You have the Pyramid of Kukulkan, which is a great temple. And then you also have the Temple of the Warriors and you have the Observatory. These structures were built long before the mines even arrived. The Mayans learned about some of the secrets of the sounds and frequencies that are emanating from that location. Depending on where you're standing, you can hear different sounds if you clap or make a certain noise. You can get different echoes back. All of these are nodal points on a web or a matrix of energy across the Earth's surface that in the ancient traditions of the West was referred to as the net. And the people in ancient Egypt that knew how to work with this vibrational matrix were literally called in the documents from ancient Egypt, the masters of the net. Could it be that the masters of the net were leaving us a spiritual and technological blueprint for all ages? If you look at the Teotihuacan pyramid complex in Mexico, right by Mexico City, you discover something amazing. First of all, they have the same exact alignment of the three pyramids at Giza by the Great Pyramid. The second thing is, is that the Pyramid of the Sun in Teotihuacan is exactly 50% of the height of the Great Pyramid located at Giza in Egypt. Also, what's amazing is the base of the Pyramid of the Sun is exactly the same exact size as the base of the Great Pyramid at Giza. So what does this tell us? It tells us that it's the same architect. The same architect that built the Great Pyramid Complex at Giza is the same exact architect that designed the Teotihuacan Pyramid Complex. 
Who were the masters of the net? And where do we find them in the ancient texts? Biblically, we have the story Joshua, the walls of Jericho. Joshua, who is the successor of Moses, who was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, has an extraordinary way of bringing down these walls. The Lord tells him to have his warriors walk around the perimeter of the walls of Jericho once a day for six days. They're following seven priests who have ram's horns in their hands, and they're also carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And he tells them that on the seventh day, they are all to walk around the walls of Jericho seven times while the priests simultaneously blow a long blast with their horns. And then at one point they gave a great shout. And the walls came down. What that tells us is that they're walking in unison, they're shouting in unison, and there must have been a consciousness component as well. And with that sound, they're able then to bring down the walls of Jericho. The ancient people possibly had a way to reach sympathetic resonance with each other and with a given material, such as stone, and its particular density, which is also a frequency. If they knew the correct resonant frequency of whatever made up the walls, they could have conceptually used sound in that manner. The Bible makes clear that it wasn't the Ark of the Covenant that brought down those walls. It was the power of sound and the unified consciousness of the soldiers and the priests. Conspiracy can mean a secret plan, often negatively oriented. But the actual breakdown of the word in Latin, conspire, means to breathe together. So anytime people do singing groups together, chanting mantras or praying together, visualizing together, dancing together. This is a kind of conspiracy. Anything powerful can be used to heal or to harm. The masters of the net may remain a mystery for the ages, but perhaps it's possible to decode the messages they left behind. Including the principle of sympathetic resonance. Resonance is a very important principle that has to do with how things self-organize into collective behaviors. If enough people come together and they actually are able to uh, use their vocal cords to create the same frequency, whether it's the OM, the primordial OM, or another type of a frequency chant or a mantra, those frequencies can resonate together in a way where eventually they can actually move solid objects. Ultimately, understanding these principles of resonance and sympathetic resonance can allow us to actually understand how to build very advanced technology instruments, musical instruments you can think of, that are resonating in the proper configuration so that they produce a sympathetic resonance frequency to this fundamental energetic field of space and time. 
And when you have that, it's like you've logged on to the structure of space and the universal internet. It's believed that the ancient cultures used several resonant type technologies, one of them being the jet pillar in Egypt, which is essentially a column with four crossbars. The pyramids were sound structures, so the purpose of the pyramids was to vibrate at certain frequencies to bathe the entire Egyptian civilization in these frequencies. How are those sounds then transmitted? And the idea is that that's what the jet pillar was for. It was sort of like a transmitter of the vibration coming from the pyramid. The Egyptians had a really interesting conception that if you saw an image of a jet pillar, it could perform the function of the jet pillar. So maybe the image of the jet pillar actually performed that function as well. And this jed, ironically, looks just like a Tesla coil. If you look at the electric poles in your neighborhood, you'll find little jeds attached to the main box that's connected to jump to the telephone and the electric poles. What's interesting is Tesla found a way to utilize this in one of his experiments, and he actually turned it into an oscillator. Now, when you look into ancient texts, you find that the elite of the elite gods had something called a jed pillar ankh. The jet would be actually embedded into the actual onk, and the oscillation would match the exact frequency of the owner. Now, why was this important? Well, they had stargates in those times, according to the text. They had gates where they would walk from one planet to another. The gate itself was key coded to the specific frequency of only the highest level people. And if you didn't have the jet pillar onk in your hand that resonated your frequency that was programmed into the gate, you couldn't walk through it. In addition to the jed, they had the uaz, which is a rod that has a base that looks just like a tuning fork. And I'm of the opinion that if something looks like something, then it is that. So it's quite possible that the Egyptians would utilize the uaz pillar as a tuning fork that would literally help them to continue to resonate at that higher frequency emanating from the pyramid. Also in Egypt, we see the origins of a symbol called the caduceus, which is a central rod with entwined serpents that's topped by a circle or a ring. And the idea is that that rod literally is a magic wand that produces a ring or a vibration. In the classic example, you'll see the Egyptian god Thoth holding the caduceus wand, while he's also holding the key of life and resurrecting Seti from the dead. So it appears as if the caduceus and the key of life do, in fact, work together. And of course, in the Greek tradition, Hermes carried the caduceus wand, and this was his tool or instrument that he used to open portals or gateways between realms. One of the famous examples of ancient machining is at the Temple of Seti at Abydos. There's a temple called the Osirion that is 40 feet beneath the ground level of the Temple of Seti. It's composed of cyclopean red granite blocks, mostly composed of quartz, which means it's going to have a resonance or a vibratory capacity 
And etched on two of those enormous pillars is a flower of life. Nobody knows how it got there or when. But it's another clue that this is the path we need to follow in order to understand how the Osirion and other temples that are like that were actually constructed. The shape of the temples also may play into this resonance theory. We understand in biogeometry that the very well-known pyramid shape that they used in Egypt to build on the sacred power spots to connect the power spots in the heavens with the power spots in the earth, that that shape itself is one that resonates with what in the West today we call the astral plane. And so by putting this particular shape on that location on the land, you are creating a connection between the earth and the first true spiritual plane of experience so that people could then in the pyramid shape have an experience of the astral plane and begin an astral journey. The construction was shrouded in sacred geometry and sophisticated mathematics. The king's chamber in the Great Pyramid was set at a very specific angle of about 6 degrees 15 minutes off of center. They understood the powers of all these angles inside of the shape geometry of the pyramid. In 1859, John Taylor was the one who first discovered that the pyramid has encoded within it the formula for pi. He discovered that if you divide the perimeter of the Great Pyramid by its height, you get two pi. This is at least 2,000 years before pi is actually discovered. The Great Pyramid encodes the speed of light it encodes the circumference of the earth. It encodes the distance between the earth and the moon. Archaeologists are now discovering evidence that this expertise was found across the globe. Now we have LADAR technology that allows us to see under the foliage in southern Mexico and Guatemala and so on. And we're discovering thousands and thousands of pyramids, some very large that we thought were mountains. We're seeing that there is a very specific intended uh, relationship between temples all around the world. Were the humans during the era of building pyramids more sophisticated than civilizations today? Did they have outside help? or other gifts unknown to us? In the construction of those megalithic temples, we always find a legend about sound as a method of levitation or the power of sound and its impact on the human body. Personally, I believe it makes sense that many thousands of years ago, Earth was in a different vibrational state than it is today. And as a consequence, Human beings had access to levels of mind, methods of perception that we're not even aware of today. The ancient Egyptians understood that they could use sound in a much more advanced way than we know today to be able to move objects or to reduce their weight and the gravitational effect, making these types of amazing constructions much easier to do. 
even into modern times, there has been the preservation in some closed groups, some family groups, of the knowledge of how to use particularly sound to be able to do a type of stone levitation. It cannot just be done by the average person off the street. They have to have had done work to transform their consciousness state, which then transformed their energetic body to be able to merge with these vibrations and direct them properly. The big question is, where did this technology come from? When a person is in front of the Great Pyramid or even in it, you get a tremendous inner sensor and knowing that this is non-human. And by that, I, I don't mean to go to extraterrestrials or aliens in flying saucers because they didn't need flying saucers in order to move around the cosmos. Mm. What the pyramid texts say is that ordinary humans have the ability to be transfigured into a higher being, a being of light, and then be projected through the pyramid portal to other regions of space-time. And conversely, beings from other regions of space-time could come to Earth through the pyramid. Are there human beings capable of such expertise in modern times? Surprisingly, examples do exist. An amazing modern-day technological feat is right here in America. It's called the Coral Castle, located in Coral Gables, Miami, Florida. A gentleman by the name of Edward Leitzklin, who couldn't have been no more than four foot eleven and maybe 103-104 pounds, actually was able to not only harvest giant blocks of coral, but he was even able to cut them and then hoist them into position, creating something called the Coral Castle. He moved over a thousand tons of heavy coral and molded it to different shapes to make this thing without any equipment. He would do this at night without people being able to see him. Some of the kids would look over the gate to see what he was doing. They said he'd always be whistling. He had this contraption on this tripod with this magnetic box at the top and this gigantic magnetic crank at the bottom. And when asked, he said, I've discovered how the pyramids and other large structures were built. Most likely, it was sound or some other form of electromagnetic energy that they used to resonate the stone, lift it up, and move it as though it was light as a feather. It's possible that more examples, like the Coral Castle, will be revealed in our lifetime. We're very fortunate today that through archaeoacoustic research, we are now very close to being able to duplicate the effect of those megalithic temples. And that is tremendously exciting. Science fiction has always been ahead of science fact exploring the capacity to control gravitational field may actually come from understanding our far past. The concept of back to the future emerges that knowledge from the past may lead us to an extremely powerful and successful and sustainable future. Assuredly, 
free energy technologies are encoded within those megalithic temples. Also, ways in which we can live in a manner that is more harmonious with the earth and will enable us to create ultimately a sustainable civilization. That's our quest and that's our goal. Coming up next on Sound of Creation, we travel through time to see the many mystical ways in which sound has assisted in humanity's evolution. <laughs> That's the didgeridoo, right? Mm-hmm. Ah, we can play our friend's song again sometime, Rama. Okay, this is the last one for tonight because we've got to squeeze in our sister Caroline. So this is called the last, <laughs> the last supper decoded. Mm-hmm. What secrets did Leonardo da Vinci encode within the legendary Last Supper fresco in Milan, Italy? I was, before I go on, um, on Thursday it was our second Last Supper in the Orthodox Church, and today's Holy Saturday, and if you're in the East Coast, it's already Easter Sunday in the uh, uh, Orthodox uh, Church. Mm-hmm. So we're cel- celebrating this whole process twice. Mm-hmm. So anyway, polymath and on- entrepreneur Robert Edward Grant delves into the mystery of the priceless wall painting, exploring why best-selling books like The Da Vinci Code and Holy Blood, Holy Grail are popularizing these lost histories and enigmatic works of Da Vinci, revealing discoveries he made firsthand within the Great Pyramid of Giza. Grant connects the the dots between the Alpha and Omega, Jesus and his disciples, Mary Magdalene, Da Vinci, and ancient Egypt. I'm sure we're going to get some insights. Let's do this. This is 25 minutes. Here we go. This is the Codex. The Last Supper painting by Leonardo da Vinci is one of the most famous pieces of art. It's a fresco located in Milan, Italy, and has been the object of analysis by cryptographers for many, many centuries. As one of the most famous works of art in the world, And because it's attached to a wall, this painting cannot be sold. In fact, it's priceless. 
This painting seems to house so many encryptions in it that in fact it's become the subject of mainstream media and films for many years. Dan Brown's account in The Da Vinci Code is one example of this. Holy Blood, Holy Grail also points us in a similar direction, hidden encryptions inside the Last Supper painting. The first of these that everyone iconically remembers is that what we all believed was John the Apostle sitting to the right of Jesus was not in fact John the Apostle at all. In his very hermaphroditic sort of garb and look, John is actually the representation, many believe, to be Mary Magdalene. One of the things that we notice is that there is a void space between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Now Jesus has clearly a symbol of what looks to be an upside down triangle represented as the divine feminine. What I realized is that the inverted triangle of the Last Supper also carries the exact same angular reference of 51.843 degrees. Is this yet again pointing us to the Giza Plateau? What we find here also is other encryptions deeply hidden within this enigmatic painting. Another example that we can see here is that the face of Peter the Apostle, who strangely has his hand down the blouse of Mary Magdalene, and his right hand seems to be holding in a contorted position a knife. And who is it that's sitting in between Peter and Mary Magdalene. That's none other than Judas himself. In fact, you can see him holding his 30 pieces of silver in a small bag. Why would it appear as though Peter is seeming to conspire in some way, shape, or form with Mary Magdalene? And why is it that she's leaning in to listen to his whisper? What would they have to whisper about? And the face, there's something with the face of Peter also that seems to be drawing attention. Weren't all the apostles roughly the same age as Jesus? When Jesus was crucified, he was widely known to have been 33 years old. And yet we see the face of Peter as being a man probably in his late 40s or early 50s, having almost all gray, even white hair. But is there something else that we can notice about his face? Well, if we look at a self-portrait of Leonardo da Vinci from a similar period but later in his life, we'll notice that the face of Leonardo da Vinci himself in his own self-portrait matches the face of Peter, the apostle, who later became the head of the entire church. And is the knife that's being held behind his back a knife held by his hand, or rather is he holding the wrist of Mary Magdalene? These questions and more were the subject of our analysis. We also looked at the back wall, noticing that there were many other encryptions that somehow relate to other prominent places in none other than the King's Chamber itself. Prior to visiting the Great Pyramid of Giza in 2018, 
Robert Grant intuitively sketched two particular Greek letters in his notebook, as if subconsciously making connections between the king's chamber and the Last Supper that were yet to be discovered. When I arrived in Egypt, I looked down while in the king's chamber, I noticed the presence of what looked to be two letters, the Alpha and the Omega. So an Alpha and Omega on the sarcophagus of the king's chamber, isn't the pyramid famously devoid of any writing or hieroglyphics? And for thousands of years, hasn't this room been frequented by millions of people potentially? Let's not forget, this is the most studied building on the planet. It was the tallest building in the world for well over 4,000 years. And the King's Chamber is the most prominent of the chambers within the Great Pyramid. How is it even possible that this could not have been seen before? And is there anything that relates to the Last Supper that might point us in the same direction? You'll note that underneath the table, you can see the feet of several of the apostles. Some of them are wearing sandals. And you'll notice as well that if you try to look for the feet of Jesus, you will not be able to see the feet of Jesus because they're obstructed by what looks to be the upper doorway of some sort of portal in and out of the chapel where the Last Supper painting is housed. But what's also interesting about this is that when we notice the location of that portal, and if we believe art historians, they say that later in the 17th century, a doorway was cut into the wall of this very famous painting. Now, this doesn't really seem to hold water for me because Leonardo da Vinci was famous in his lifetime. In fact, this was a very famous fresco that the King of France himself made particular mention of in historical records. So why would the owners or the people that were taken care of as caretakers of this important place on hollowed ground have cut a doorway obstructing the painting of Leonardo da Vinci, potentially even then known as one of the greatest artists of all time. If in fact the doorway was not cut into the fresco years later, but had always been there, as Robert Grant suggests, then the question arises, did Leonardo da Vinci integrate this door into his masterpiece? And if so, what is the significance of this possible encryption? So when I started to notice that the other proportions of the room of the king's chamber were relative to the Last Supper painting and vice versa, I started to think, are there other encryptions that might be hidden inside the walls of the Last Supper painting that are showing us and pointing us back to the King's Chamber itself. What Robert Grant realized is that the placement of the Alpha and the Omega on the rim of the sarcophagus within the King's Chamber are proportionate to Jesus, the Alpha, and Mary Magdalene, the Omega, within the Last Supper. And when we place an overlay, the exact position of the sarcophagus in its original position would occupy exactly the doorway that is obstructing the feet of both Jesus and Mary Magdalene. 
And we'll also notice that the proportions when we place precisely the line of the ceiling against the back wall, which would reference what we refer to as the Western wall of the Great Pyramid, is precisely pointing to the same proportional dimensions so that the entire table in perspective could be viewed as being part of the Last Supper scene. Is this telling us something more about the windows and portals and tapestries that are located within the Last Supper painting itself? Of course, we also notice that the location in the Last Supper painting of both Jesus and Mary Magdalene also conforms precisely to the golden number and golden cut. 1.618 verses 1. Interesting as well that again, these proportions are matched in the Alpha Omega that I discovered on the rim of the sarcophagus, which is exactly 5.6 inches wide. The King's Chamber is 31.415926 meters. And the square root of that number, which is pi times 10, turns out to be 5.605 inches. 5.605 squared equals the dimension of the perimeter of the king's chamber room itself. Interestingly as well, the serif, or the peak of the letter A, is precisely at the 33rd inch of the 89.62 inch long sarcophagus. I and my colleagues note that is exactly one over the Euler number. Euler's number is best known as the base for natural logarithms and is used in everything from explaining exponential growth, radioactive decay, and calculating compound interest. This is a very important number as fundamental as transcendental pi. In fact, if we take both of those numbers and we apply them together in the relationship of a tetrahedron nested within a sphere, we find that when we consider that a tetrahedron nested within a sphere would have a displacement of one-thirds of the volume of the sphere inside the tetrahedron and two-thirds being outside of the tetrahedron nested within that sphere. And we apply those same proportions in a weighted average calculation. What we find is that pi times two-thirds plus Euler number, which is 2.718, times one-third added together in a weighted average calculation gives us integer value 3.000. Both of these numbers seem to be boundary conditions for integer value three. But why would we have the Euler number pointed to the alpha and omega on the rim of the sarcophagus? Advanced knowledge? Additionally, in the Vitruvian Man, Leonardo da Vinci left an area value of the square that didn't match the area value of the circle, which is pi with a radius of one. Instead, he left us an encrypted message for all to see, which is that the area, if we take the time to actually measure it, using the radius value of one of the circle, turns out to be precisely 
the Euler number 200 years prior to this purported discovery of the Euler number and its attributes, arguably the second most important mathematical constant to mathematicians, even of our day to day? What was Leonardo trying to tell us? What else can we see inside the Last Supper painting? Let's look a little bit closer at the window behind Jesus. If we look closely at the pediment above Jesus, immediately above him and above the window behind him, we'll notice an eye. Not only is this orientation showing us and pointing to an eye, but we're also seeing that this is an ancient symbol used in Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism as an all-seeing eye. But in Egyptian mythology and history, we know better. This eye is the eye of Ra, God of the sun. So quite fitting, in fact, that it's above, immediately above the sun of God. But in esotericism, this goes deeper to explain the separation between the conscious mind, which is acting for us, like a sun to the outside world. And the subconscious mind is the missing eye. But it's the eye that's always there, but not shown in this outward world. This eye is referred to the eye of Horus. Now, going back into Egyptian mythology and the story of Osiris, Osiris had quite a conflict and battle with Set. And Set was able to defeat Osiris, and in fact, he cut him into 14 parts. And as he cut him into 14 parts, of course, his son, Horus, wanting to avenge the death of his father, Horus took on a battle with Set. And in that battle, Horus lost his left eye. It was plucked out, as the mythology tells us in the Egyptian pantheon. This plucking out of the left eye of Horus could be pointing to something more significant. And in esoteric circles, it actually represents the loss of our intuitive sight. The loss of the feminine, which this eye, which is often referenced as the eye of Thoth, because it was restored eventually by Thoth. Horus had lost his left eye, went to Thoth and asked Thoth to repair it for him. And Thoth used magic to repair the eye. So often, this eye is referred to as the eye of Thoth. The two eyes of Horus, the right eye being the eye of Ra, and the left eye being the eye of Thoth. Represented by the moon, intuition, the feminine, that which might be, in a mathematical sense, irrational, and merging it together with the linear lines of the rational. The conscious mind taking over the personification of our own persona, and ego, and the unconscious or subconscious mind being represented by this eye that was missing and plucked out. So where is this eye of Horus? Maybe we need to turn to yet another da Vinci painting to see where this might connect us back to this eye of Horus that's the left eye and often referred to as the eye of Thoth. The clues to locate the eye of Thoth may be found in another da Vinci masterpiece, possibly inspired by a famous woman of royalty who once lived with Leonardo da Vinci. 
the controversial wife of King Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn was known as one of the most enchanting women of the day. From 1516 until 1519, Leonardo da Vinci lived in the same home as Anne Boleyn. What had happened was King Francis of France had conquered Milan and the Sforza family. And when he went to Milan, he immediately asked to go into the chapel and they did not want it to be destroyed. He wanted to see this very famous fresco by Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci was of course still alive. In his aging years, he was asked by King Francis to move into his palace to spend the rest of his days helping to design an ambitious new castle. So he recruited him to do so, and Leonardo moved everything in his life at that time out of Vinci to Chateau d'Amboise, which was the seat at the time of the French court. Anne Boleyn happened to eventually enchant King Henry VIII so much that he left his first wife in a period of time that this was expressly forbidden unless granted an annulment from the Pope of Rome himself, which the Pope refused to grant to the King of England, Henry VIII. So Henry VIII was able to finally divorce her by establishing his own new church, the Church of England, which is today the Episcopal Church. Anne Boleyn later became the mother of Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I, who was one of the greatest and longest reigning monarchs of Great Britain since that time. Only eclipsed today by Elizabeth II. Anne Boleyn was also famously tried for having had an adulterous affair with another man while she was married to the king. The king used that as the impetus to cut off her head famously. But Anne Boleyn lived in the same house in her late teenage years as Leonardo da Vinci. And today, we believe that there's a painting that represents their meeting. And that painting is referred to today as La Belle Feronnière, the Iron Maker's daughter. Now, as we look at this painting, we'll notice some prominent things about it. First of all, it has a, a very dark background, almost like the night sky. And as we look at it, we'll also notice that her part seems to be very significant. It represents an inverted T or Tau cross, another symbol of Rosicrucian encryption. Additionally, we also notice that she has what looks to be some sort of amber gem right over her forehead, right between her eyes, not far from where we'd expect to see like a, a bindu in an Indian person who's representing their Ajna chakra, their third eye. We also notice that the light that is caressing the strands of her hair adjacent to her part line actually looks very similar to an iris. Can we also see that the hair and the light bouncing off of the strands of her hair adjacent to her part line are actually forming the lines of the iris of this eye that is surrounding her head in the darkness. 
Because of the orientation of the eye, we notice that, of course, it is a left eye. And if we place this painting immediately adjacent to the Last Supper scene, is this the missing eye of Horus that we find on this female archetype in Anne Boleyn, a famous character in history who happened to live in the same home as Leonardo da Vinci for three years prior to his death? Is Leonardo pointing us yet again to this merger of heart-brain consciousness? We'll also notice on the back wall, there appear to be many hidden encryptions. You can see a lantern. You can also see script writing. And you can also see what looks to be the profile of a lion. On the left side, we'll also notice a letter A prominently above the tapestries that is on the left wall as we look at it. But can we find other things as well that are hidden into this painting that might actually point us like a map to other things inside of the king's chamber itself? Let's first look to see if we can find the Eye of Ra on the back wall of the king's chamber behind the sarcophagus on the western wall. In the exact same location when we mirror match the precise location of the seam between the ceiling and the back wall. Crossing over two stones, and you can see the line of the entire eye, and also what looks to be almost like a yin-yang iris inside that eye on the same location of the back wall. The king's chamber, famously devoid of any markings or writings, now has yielded up to us an Alpha Omega on the rim. We also found a compass not far from the Alpha Omega, pointing out degree references. And now we're seeing that the back wall of the King's Chamber is matching up with what is painted more than 500 years ago into the fresco in Milan by Leonardo himself. What other things can we find in this painting? On the right wall, we can see the faint letters of Alpha A written in a script from the period, Renaissance period script, Alpha Q W. W is a lowercase omega. Alpha Chi Omega. The Last Supper painting, just like the Vitruvian man painting, houses within it hidden encryptions that Leonardo da Vinci more than 500 years ago left to us to find through time. Representing this very ancient symbology of balancing the square and the circle. Finding the balance between the masculine and the feminine and bringing together polarity into unity consciousness. Merging the rational mind with the unconscious creativity that is resident within achievement of the heart, brain, mind, and consciousness. Could Leonardo da Vinci be pointing us to a deeper, hidden, esoteric wisdom teaching? Join us for our next episode, where we're going to go deeper into this great mystery to understand what it means for us.
Oh my gosh, it's, it's time again, everybody. Let's get started with our, that was very interesting. Um, we're getting uh, precision uh, uh, stories here. We're able to use it now, that's why. So here's the message to our light bringers. All of us here, April 22nd, 2022. Oh, yeah. One, two, three, four, five, twos plus a four. <laughs> that's 14. And that's five. So this is a date of change. All right, here we go. This week's guidance from the Ascended Masters Galactics, Earth Elements, Fey Elders, Angelic legions, archangels, and other divine beings known as the collective. Greetings, friends. We are very pleased to have this chance to speak with you again today. We share below a message we offered in a recent abundance call to assist you in integrating the powerful energies and light codes now flowing, flowing to you. Since the Neptune-Jupiter conjunction on April 12th, and other configurations, as well as the powerful solar flares that are occurring now and affecting you on every level. All of you are wanting to move up vibrationally now. All of you are wanting to release. And yes, there is crying and sadness some days, most assuredly. You are releasing the only form of life you've known for millennia. That's going to feel a little strange sometimes. You are releasing things you don't quite understand. You're not even fully aware of the level of galactic and angelic assistance on this planet. You feel as though you would like to know exactly what's going on. Your experience is not exactly as though you were children. Yet you know you have not yet been trusted with the whole story regarding what is happening on many levels. There is still a bit of a veil there so that you cannot really see all of these amazing ships. Not quite yet. Yet you are on them. We guarantee you, dear ones, you are on these ships in the etheric, in your sleep state. As you knew everything that was happening with the star, star nations, in some ways, it would be harder for you. You would want to be with them in the etheric all the time. Your higher selves understands, your higher self understands that kind of life. When you're in your etheric body, as you're in your sleep state at night, you understand everything happening now. And you're full of joy on the higher levels. You're full of excitement because full disclosure of the galactic presence is not so far away. It's not turn the page. Yet... Great strides are being taken. Yet, here you are, still on the earth, still in a body that feels to be mainly 
acclimated to the third dimension. Hmm. That can be very annoying, very difficult. And yes, some ships are being seen with the physical eyes and being photographed. We had two sisters that had, uh, yes, Toriana and Penny this fine uh, week, uh, these experiences. You will see more and more of that. Even though the mainstream media is doing what it can to hide that reality. Yet on some level, you have beautifully accepted all of these situations into your heart. And in that moment, you reign supreme over all of it. In that moment, you are not owned or bossed around or abused by any of it. The minute you accept something, the minute you are in a situation where you say to yourself, this too is my life, this too is earth life, and you stop fighting it. You come into your mastery so beautifully, dear ones. We can see it even when you don't feel it. (laughs) It understandably, it's understandable that the ego mind is going to say, well, I have my preferences. I like to complain sometimes. Increasingly, you will find yourself complaining a bit. Then backing up and saying, I don't really care about that. I am going to get unhappy about it. Yes, the neighbor's dog barks incessantly. And yes, we are overcharged for nearly everything on the planet right now. Everything should be free or close to it. And yes, I know there's miraculous cures and free energy, and they're not being used, and on and on. And you're just going to breathe. Breathe out in those moments. Just breathe out and let go. You don't have to wrestle with any of this. You don't have to struggle with anything in your lives. Cease to call it a problem. Cease to call it an issue. You can just say, yes, there it is. And go back to just being in your breath. Now, for a moment, we're going to bring in a beautiful column of light to work with everyone's energies. Everyone's higher selves is here. Feel that beautiful, sparkling, golden light filling every cell of your body, every particle of your etheric body, your consciousness, your mind, your emotions, so that you become one with it. You just disappear into this divine gold dust that is flowing to the earth right now. And with that very beautiful light vibration, that very, very fine vibration, you are going to flow that very powerful, beautiful, sparkling golden light into your being. And turn the page. If you want to image yourself at the top of the planet 
in the Arctic, there is a great opening there into inner earth. Admiral Byrd did something about that, went to the inner earth that way. He did. But you can use any portal you wish. You might image yourself at Mount Shasta and finding a portal there to inner earth or just about anywhere you like that you imagine these are portals. It might be under the sea. It's up to you. Let's travel right now. We're just going to fly. Your higher selves, your higher self has you by the hand. And he or she is going to guide you. You're in your etheric body. You're flying down that portal until you find yourself in inner earth. It's not dark here. There is a sun that illuminates inner earth. And we're flying. I know that we had played something earlier tonight where they were talking about living underneath the Giza pyramid and it was no light and they lived for a long time but there are different levels of uh, reality so let's just it's both and everybody all kinds of experiences going on here in your current very fine vibration on a molecular basis you have shifted to where you can walk right into these crystals it's as though they are water So, pick one of them. Whatever you imagine is fine. Pick one of them to walk into. In this huge cavern, this huge open space that's really a temple. And inside that crystal, dear ones, you're going to be gifted with some aspect of your mastery that you did not know you could could claim. Now, to begin with, ask for something. Such as... I want to develop my peace of mind as a way of life. Oh, sounds good to me, everybody. (laughs) Or, I want to release all stress and worry and understand, understand, overstand that the universe loves me and always provides. Whatever it is I am going to, I am going through, there is always a divine solution. I want to walk with that energy. Or perhaps, You just want to feel loved. You want to feel and be divine love. Perhaps you want to develop a network of friends, a new life partner, some new feeling of higher purpose in your lives. You might be asking for healing. You decide. If there's someone that you want to help, ask to know what is the wisest thing I can offer in that situation. What is the highest gift I can give in that situation? Because it's not really for anyone to rescue anybody else. Everyone comes here to walk their own path. Understandably, if you have small children, that's a bit different as they need looking after. But dealing in terms of adults, capable people age 18 and older, their lives are really their own turn the page this is a longer story tonight so you're going to ask for some aspect of your mastery you don't feel you've reached quite yet so go ahead and do that now 
speak to this beautiful being. Crystals are living things. They are sentient. And this lovely, beautiful crystal being can hear you, no problem. And they will respond. This is a time of crisis on the planet because it's a time of rebirth. So you may want to ask for the mental, emotional vibration of how to handle that in the highest possible way. Then just open to receive. The second thing you may want to to ask for, dear ones, when you're ready, is the most perfect gift for you that you could receive right now, the most perfect form of abundance. Leave it to your higher selves to know what that is. Just give the nod to them. Whatever is best for me now, I ask to receive that in peace and in joy, as well as I ask to be gifted with a sense of balance as I live in a world that is undergoing tremendous change right now. Then just open to receive. We can tell you that all your soul families are here, and that means many representatives of the star nations, as well as the fairy realm, the angelic realm, the realms of many nature nature spirits, because many of you are related to such. Your inner earth family is so very happy. You're here. They're keeping a slight respectful distance because they know how important this is for you. But they are sending you their love. If there's something you're going through that just feels too big to deal with or something that is pulling at you and burdening you, just lay it down there within that crystal so it can be transformed. Many beautiful angels are present with you as well. Now, the inner earth plasma sun is actually responding to the development of your sun, who's called Saul. The inner earth sun is feeling those shifts and is in a discussion, a dialogue with Saul. The two are assisting one another's paths because your son Saul is going through incredible, incredible shifts and transformation. The particular form of light that's flowing to you now is actually a language and it is speaking to every cell and every particle of your being. And increasingly, you are finding yourselves in a beautiful ongoing dance with those energies. It's beautiful to see. So when you're ready, dear ones, just come back out of that great crystal and smile. And say hello to family members if you would like. <clears throat> They're always there for you. Again, <clears throat> your higher self takes you by the hand. And you're going to fly. Fly up through that portal. Come out of the inner earth and fully back into your body. Guided by that beautiful divine golden light. Come back fully. Stretch arms and legs. When you go, when you, we are going to ask the higher selves 
would tapping emotional freedom techniques be helpful at this time? In the abundance call, we, we go through this in the, in the abundance call. Okay, so then they pause in listening. Well, what they're suggesting is, if you've got a pen and paper, or you're at your computer, if not, that's all right, just imaging doing this. What they're suggesting, first of all, is to ask yourselves, the reason everything feels so strange and pressured and confusing right now is, and then there's a little blank line so we can fill in the blank, then fill in that blank. If you can, write down a few things. Maybe your lives. Life is changing in a big way. Maybe, maybe something in or near or around you or your life is shifted. Maybe it's just what's happening with the earth, with your country, your community. Go ahead and write it down or type it out. Again, if you're not near a computer or a piece of paper, that's all right. Just think that sentence several times and answer it each time. <laughs> There's this little pug-nosed dog that picture all wrapped up in a blanket. This is very cute. You can phrase it differently. The reason I feel so sad these days is... And there's an open space. Or, the reason I feel so stressed these days, or the reason I can't sleep is... And then, fill in the blank. When you're ready, they want you to do a second one. And that one, your higher selves are telling us, is... As I step more into my mastery now, I notice that I am more able to, and then fill that blank in, then write it down. What are you more able to do now as you step into your mastery? Just let it come, let it flow. Write whatever comes up. It doesn't even have to make sense. That's all right. You might write down one or two things, or you might... Write down four or five things. And as you step into your mastery, there are things that you are now more able to do or be or be or feel. Believe in the magic. It's me. It's important to let yourselves write whatever, whatever comes up very automatically. It's also important to greatly value that. Value these very honest conversations you have with your inner selves without judgment. Now, we're going to ask the higher selves, what else would be very helpful? Almost done, sort of. (laughs) Well, that's very constructive. They are saying to write or think if you prefer. When I feel really stressed, when I feel the world has gotten a bit too crazy, or my life has. I know I can calm myself by, and then fill that blank in. Then write three or four things. How can you calm yourself? It could be as simple as going into your breathing. That always works, everyone. It doesn't it have doesn't have to be elaborate. Doesn't have to be ten therapy sessions. It could be walking in a field and picking flowers. 
the last thing they're suggesting, if you want to uh, do another writing exercise, is to write out, tell me why I came to the earth at this time. Now, this is most helpful if you're writing it with a pen and paper because you can shift that pen to the other hand, the non-dominant hand and uh, that you never write with and let it come forward. This can be very enlightening. Ask that only your true self comes through. Then just write. Don't think. Just write very authentically. And finally, it probably won't be a long, drawn-out explanation, but it can be very enlightening. If you need to abbreviate the words, you can do that because the writing will be a bit squiggly. Rewrite it with the unusual, with the usual hand, the dominant hand, once the whole thing is there, once you have channeled from your subconscious. Because that is how you tap into the subconscious in an obvious way, writing with the non-dominant hand. If you're ambidextrous, it won't work as well, but do what you can. Some people are able to do automatic writing from the subconscious as they are typing on the computer by imagining that they're writing with the non-dominant hand. Or you can imagine you're writing it with the non-dominant hand, even if you're still writing with the dominant hand. What your teams are saying is that whatever comes forward is not going to be the whole story. But you may still discover something very interesting. We are going to send light as you're finishing that. Everyone who has placed themselves or loved ones in the circle of light, we surround you all now. If you wish to place yourselves or loved ones in the circle of light, Right now, that's fine. You don't even need a reason. Let a line of light go from your heart to everyone in that circle. There's a special light flowing down from the higher realms now. And the reason it's come into this group is because everyone has, or on a higher level, called it in. That This light is highly sentient. It comes in with beautiful higher purpose and it lifts every particle of your life life to a higher level. So just breathe it in. Every bit of you is taking this in now. Ask yourselves if you're ready to accept your mastery and another question and answer the question. Your answer might be yes, I'll, but I'll need some assistance. And that's fine, dear ones. Beautiful. We are honored to assist as all, as are all who belong to divine light. We send much love and many blessings. We are thrilled to work with everyone, as always. All of you are highly valued. All of you are loved. All of you are supported. All of you are believed in, in the sense that we know who you are. And we have seen you work miracles. And we know that you are doing it again now. So we send you many blessings, dear ones, with great thanks for all you are. Namaste. And I pass this talking stick filled with all kinds of fairies and feathers and angels and rainbows and 
sun drops and <laughs> meadow hoodies and hobbits and everything in the middle. And emerald serpent feathered one is passing this talking stick to you right now. Rain bird. Here it comes. Oh, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, Tara. Thank you, Zala. What a well fun and beautiful evening. Lots of good juicy stuff and yeah. It's beautiful what's coming forward and it's really yeah, <laughs> fuel for the the brain and the heart and the soul. So lots of gratitude. And I'm passing this talking stick over to you, Lama. What you got? Okay, this is an what I haven't played in many, many moons. Is this a song? Going to just do the song? Oh, I was just going to do the Rumi. Oh, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. All right. Yeah. Let's do it. Here we go, everybody. Hang in there a few more minutes. story 
My place is the placeless, a trace of the traceless, neither body or soul. I belong to the beloved, have seen the two worlds as one, and that one call to and know, first, last, outer, inner, only that breath, breathing, human. I belong to the beloved, have seen the two worlds as one, and that one call to and know first, last, outer, inner, only that breath, breathing, human. Breathe, everyone. This is cool. We'll see you in your dreams and on the ships and the Sarah now. Inshallah, Sat Nam. Sat Nam Ji. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil, live long and prosper. And Mahalo Nui Loa. Aloha, everyone.